Greetings and good afternoon, everyone. This is Cheryl, and I'm so pleased to be here to welcome you to Tara and Rama's Saturday afternoon program, The True Planetary and Galactic History Herstory and True History Herstory of Nasara. Blessed be at this most holy time, everyone. I welcome you, all of my brothers and sisters of the light. We are going to have a very special opening meditation here today as we are celebrating the Wesak full moon of yesterday. It was, uh, it was a lunar eclipse that took place exactly at 1.34 p.m. Eastern Time. And uh, so we're going to go ahead and make a tr- journey here to the Wesak Valley. So let's get started. Take a nice deep breath going deep within your heart center. And as you go into that portal, that heart portal to the portal to all that is, we call forth for the full emergence and integration with our soul, with our higher self, with our monad, with our muddy I am presence, all of our multidimensional being, through to our God presence and goddess presence. See yourself in your muddy pillar of light, filled with the white ray of Shambhala, the white ray of Lord Buddha, the white ray of the Christ and God Source. It is also being filled in with the highest of golden frequencies. as Lord Maitreya and Lord Buddha are joining us here today. See, sense, and feel your mighty pillar of light fully anchored to source, fully anchored to the heart of Mother Gaia. As we once again recommit ourselves to being the bridge between heaven and earth, the anchor for the new golden age, and the open door that no one can shun. The golden frequencies are bringing in the Christ consciousness and the frequencies of divine wisdom, illumination, and enlightenment. We invite everyone across the planet to join us in this work. And so we say the following prayer. Please join me in saying, I am my I am presence. As my I am presence, I am one with the I am presence of every man, woman, and child. I am one with all my family members and loved ones. I am one with all that is. Take a nice deep breath. As we see joining us, sense it, feel it, experience it, every man, woman, and child joining in unity consciousness here today, anchoring their pillar of gold and white light, participating, perhaps very unconsciously, 
their dream state, their sleep state. But we welcome the I am presence of everyone in this work. And for everyone, we invite in all soul extensions, planetary and galactic, all of our ancestors, all of our genetic lineage, our ancestral lineage, all the generations past and forward, our spiritual lineage, our soul families and soul pots. We welcome for all, all of our guides and teachers, our healing teams, our beloved guardian angel, our beloved twin flame, our ascension council, our mission council. We call forth the assistance of all the kingdoms, the plant kingdom, the tree kingdom, the mineral kingdom, the bird kingdom, the animal kingdom, the diva kingdom, the elemental kingdom, the fairy kingdom, all of the kingdoms of nature, the whales, the dolphins, the unicorns, and all magical kingdoms. We welcome all of the realms of the angels, from the angels and archangels through to the cherubim and seraphim, all angelic healers and healing teams. We welcome the ascended masters, the brotherhood of light, the sisterhood of the rays and rose, the order of Melchizedek, the radiant ones, all of the enlightened masters, all divine mother emissaries, Divine Father emissaries, all of the planetary and cosmic hierarchy of light, and all ascended master healers and healing teams. We welcome our friends in the Galactic Federation of Light and their healing teams, especially those that we work so closely with, from Arcturus, from Pleiades, from Sirius, from Andromeda, from Chiron, from Venus, and from Lyra. We welcome all cosmic galactic universal beings, and healers that can be of service. We welcome the assistance of the entire company of heaven, asking our Mother, Father, God to overlight all that we do, especially at this most sacred Wesak time, to magnify, magnify, magnify all that we do, all that we receive. 999 billion times 999 billion times in alignment with divine will and divine law. The maximum each being can receive individually and collectively. Ever expanding to perfection. We call in all the rays, all the flames, all the universal laws, all the ascension waves. And with every energy and frequency, every prayer and invocation, every blessing, every grace, every dispensation, every activation, we ask that it be received individually and collectively through every cell, chakra, meridian, layer of our auric field multidimensionally on a conscious, subconscious, superconscious level as well. And we ask to do this to easily and effortlessly digest and assimilate, ground and anchor, integrate and embody these frequencies and all that we receive with the greatest of ease and grace and joy and peace and bliss and ecstasy 
serenity and tranquility, balance and equilibrium, without resistance on any level, without discomfort on any level, without fear on any level, in love, in light, and in laughter. Take a nice deep breath. As the frequencies come in, the blessings of Wiesach that we are calling forth here today. And we invite in everyone in our circle of support from the very first name that created it to every man, woman, and child, to every family member and loved one, every pet, every animal, every group, every organization, every business, every corporation, every institution, every aspect of human life, all of the nations, all of the militaries, all of the governments, the legislative aspect of each government, each Congress, each Parliament, each Council, all of the people that create laws and all the laws that have been created, all the laws that need to be dismissed, all of the laws that are in the process of being created. We call in Lady Liberty and the Goddess of Justice to ensure that only the highest and best takes place in this in the legislature of each nation. Call forth the same in the executive aspect of each government. Each president, each prime minister, each leader of each nation. And for we're going to make the exception and, and ask... Um, the same for the newly crowned um, King Charles III. Again, we bring in all the rays, flames, universal laws, and ascension waves to each of these beings. And all decision makers, all cabinet posts, all people of influence that play an executive role in each government, and the judicial aspect of each government. The Supreme Court here in the United States, all federal, state, and local judges, the judicial aspect of every nation, all court cases, all juries, all grand juries, all court decisions, all legal proceedings, and all judicial decisions. Again, calling in the goddess of justice and the goddess of liberty to ensure only the highest and takes place highest and best takes place in each of these aspects of government. And the climate climate change, all extreme weather conditions, and anything on this planet, dis-ease, 
lack of abundance, a lack of any kind we have in our circle of support. so that we take our place as the ascended divine beings of light that we are. And we hold the perfection of the divine blueprint, everything coming into place in divine order, everyone loving and accepting themselves. All of the issues that we have going on on the planet are in the circle of support. And yet, we hold the divine perfection in full faith and trust in the transformation that is coming in with this We Suck full moon yesterday. All the transformational energies, all of the transformational events that will continue on during this month of May. And hold everything in divine order and divine perfection according to the divine blueprint of our ascension into the light individually and collectively for the planet and all upon her. And we call in all of the energies around this full moon, this Wesak festival, all of the energies around the, the lunar eclipse, all of the energies around the month of May, whether it was Beltane or Mother's Day next next week on the four, on the fourteenth, um, and all of the events going on that are drawing people's attention, we call in all of that energy into our collective cup of consciousness for the transformation of the planet that everyone come to recognize right here and right now the divine being that they are and see the divinity in every man, woman, and child. We call in Mother Gaia to receive all that we receive through her chakras and meridians and layers of her work field multidimensionally through every ley line and song line, through the grid system, the love grids, the light grids, the unity grids, all of the multidimensional grid system, through all of her chakras and meridians and layers of her work field, through every molecule of soil, molecule of air, molecule of water, molecule of fire, through every portal, every vortex, every monument, every place of power, every stargate, every city of light as we continue on this amazing journey with Mother Gaia. This journey of ascension, collective ascension, the first time it's ever been done this way. And we continue up this spiral of evolution as Gaia takes her rightful place as Freedom Star. Take a nice deep breath, along with the white and the gold. There's a beautiful crystalline, diamond-like energy coming in. Breathe and receive it. Receive it into every cell, chakra, meridian, layer of your orca field, multidimensionally. 
and breathe in the frequency of tranquility that it brings. As I say the following invocation, I go within and open the petals of the crystal lotus. I go within and as the lotus blooms, my mind, my body, my emotions quiet. As my consciousness steps into the center of the lotus, I become tranquil with who I am. I flow with the serenity of spirit. As I sit within the lotus, I know the Buddha that is myself. So as we work with Lord Buddha today and celebrate the festival of the Buddha, we'll talk about the Wisak in just a second. We're also calling in Lord Buddha's illumination and enlightenment frequencies as well as the serenity, peace, and tranquility. Take a nice deep breath as we receive the yellow gold light of illumination. The love and I am presence, light of my soul. I call for the full power of the sacred fire from the temples of illumination, for a full release of illumination flame through my entire consciousness, being, and world. As I call it in for myself, I call it in for every man, woman, and child. I ask for the flame of illumination to blaze and transform all that would hinder the manifestation of love, wisdom, and power within and without my life stream and my ascension in the light. I ask the masters of light to resurrect the memory of my true identity in God Goddess and the blueprint of my divine plan. By the flame of illumination, I call for the restoration of my full Christ consciousness and full Buddhic consciousness as it was ordained by God Goddess in the beginning of my descent into manifest form. I call for the flame of illumination to descend and blaze divine wisdom into every cell of my being, into my crown chakra and all of my other chakras, and to every aspect of my being multidimensionally. I ask the flame of illumination to reconnect me once again to the forever present pure knowledge of the universal mind of God Goddess. Flood the earth with illumination flame each moment of each day to show humanity their way back home. Beautiful and precious golden flame, let thy light bring the end of separation in the consciousness of humankind for the manifestation of God's holy purposes 
and the return of a golden age of divine love and enlightenment. Join me in saying, so be it, and so it is. Beloved, I am. Beloved, I am. Beloved, I am. Take a nice deep breath. I'm going to give you some reminders about the Wesak Festival. So the Wesak Festival, again, this is from Joshua David Stone, who I started my ascension work with. The Wesak Festival is the most important of the three major Ascended Master Festivals. It is a time of the year under the sign of Taurus, the Taurus full moon, which is actually a Scorpio full moon, when humanity receives the highest frequency of light. And by the way, if you didn't hear this before, the next time that there is a lunar eclipse with the Scorpio full moon, it will be in 2031. So WESOG is a living event based on the current astrological cycles and not past events that occurred centuries ago, as most religions celebrate. The WESOG festival is the festival of the Buddha, commemorating the anniversary of his birth, his attainment of Buddhahood, and his ascension. The Buddha the perfect expression of the wisdom aspect of God is the embodiment of light and divine purpose. So that first festival in under Aries <clears throat> is the um, that would be the, the Libra full moon um, is the festival of the Christ closest to Easter. And the third one is the one in, um, usually in June, under Gemini, Sagittarius, full moon. And that is considered the festival of the goodwill of humanity. We're celebrating that next month as well. And so this particular festival, term the week, we thought, refers to the Wesak Valley in the Himalayas, where every year all the Ascended Masters gather both in the inner and outer planes to share in a sacred ceremony, and we're going to do that ceremony today. So we're going to be working with um, the Manu Alagobi, Lord Maitreya, representing the Cosmic Christ, St. Germain, the Mahakohan, and Buddha is going to come to us as we await his presence in our visualization, our ceremony. Just know that the Wiesak is a time of great renewal and celebration. The quality of the energy is the force of enlightenment. The energy that emanates from the heart of God, Goddess, and is related to divine understanding and the love-wisdom aspect of God. 
and on a planetary level, it initiates new world education. So we're calling forth lots of education. And this affects the educational movement, values, literature, publishing, television, radio, newspaper, magazines, writers, teachers, speakers on the entire planet. And it is very powerful when large groups come together at this time. And WESOC is the greatest window for mass enlightenment that can occur on a planetary level. So during the ceremony, Buddha sounds forth a great mantra. I don't know the mantra. And we don't have record of it. But we will take a moment of silence to experience it. As Buddha becomes an absorbing agent of the first ray force, then using the magnetic power of the second ray to attract this force to himself, holding his study and then redirecting it to Lord Maitreya, who is the receiving agent of this particular energy, disseminated then to the seven kohans and their ashrams for a sevenfold expression and direction into the world. So we are going to receive the blessings of Lord Maitreya, Lord Buddha, and Sanat Kamara in our ceremony. And this is considered by some to be be the beginning of the spiritual year, as it is a time when you can receive new instructions for your divine purpose as a light server. So we'll take a moment to do that as well. So the Wiesong has four basic functions. First, to substantiate Christ's continued physical appearance on the earth. That was all of us becoming Christ in action. To physically prove the solidarity of the Eastern and Western approaches to God, Goddess. to form a rallying point and meeting place for those who annually, both literally and symbolically, link up and represent our Mother, Father, God's house, the kingdom of of God, Goddess, and humanity. And fourthly, to demonstrate the nature of the work of Christ. And in this particular case, we're working with Lord Maitreya. The purposes of the Wesak Festival are the releasing of certain transmissions of energy to humanity that will stimulate the spirit of love, brother and sisterhood, and goodwill. The fusion of all humanity into a responsive, positive, integrated whole. And the invocation and response from certain cosmic beings as we achieve these goals. So this is an extraordinarily powerful time and we're calling forth the wisdom of God through Lord Buddha and through our cosmic Christ, Lord Maitreya, we call forth the love of God, be made manifest to all humanity, again linking the festival of the Christ and the festival of 
Lord Buddha. So let us go on with our ceremony. Just allow yourself to receive. Visualize clearly. Enjoy the process. Relaxing and receiving as we call forth everyone that we have invoked to join us, to assist us to receive the highest frequencies of the Festival of Wesak, the Wesak Ceremony, and all of the blessings, the cosmic blessings of this sacred time. And as we relax, we call forth the full opening of all of our chakras, including all of our ascension chakras, those around the head, and all of our multidimensional chakra system. We call forth at this time our inner plane spiritual hosts supporting us and making the journey to the Wesak Valley. As we join in spirit in a group Merkabah, you might imagine it like a gigantic boat or ship that will transport us to the Wesak Valley. all of us being joined as we invite in everyone everyone across the planet everyone that we have invoked our oneness with to join us in this divine experience as we travel to the actual Wesak Valley in the Himalayas to experience this Wesak ceremony took place yesterday, but there is no time we're connecting in right now. So as we travel, we find ourselves descending into the Wesak Valley, joining all of the other ascended masters, initiates, disciples, everyone gathered there. And we can feel, see, or sense the presence of Lord Maitreya, the beloved Christ. We see, sense, or feel the presence of St. Germain, our beloved Kohan of the Seventh Ray. And we see the Masters standing in a triangle around a bowl of water that sits upon a very, very, very large crystal. And we see, sense, and feel the presence of Alagobi, who holds the first-rate position in the spiritual hierarchy, that sapphire blue ray, 
Vishwanath Kamara and all of the masters, all of the lady masters, all of the spiritual hierarchy. And as we begin, we're going to do their traditional prayer. The prayer of called the Great Invocation that I've always done at the ceremony. And so, as one heart, one voice, one mind, in unity consciousness, I say this for us all. Let the forces of light Bring illumination to humankind. Let the spirit of peace be spread abroad. May everyone of goodwill everywhere meet in the spirit of cooperation. May forgiveness on the part of all be the keynote at this time. Let power attend the efforts of the great ones, so let it be and help us to do our part. Let the Lords of Liberation issue forth. Let them bring succor to to all of humanity. Let the writer from the secret place come forth, and coming forth says, Come forth, O Mighty One. Let the souls of all awaken to the light, and may they stand with massed intent. Let the fiat of the Lord go forth. The end of woe has come. Come forth, O mighty one. The hour of service of the saving force has now arrived. Let it be spread abroad, O mighty one. Let light and love and power and death fulfill the purpose of the coming one. The will to save is here. The love to carry forth the work is widely spread abroad. The active aid of all who know the truth is also here. Come forth, Almighty One, and blend these three. Construct a great defending wall. The rule of evil must now end. From the point of light within the mind of God, let light stream forth into the minds of all. Let light descend on earth. From the point of love within the heart of God, let love stream forth into the hearts of all. May Christ return to earth. From the center where the will of God is known, let purpose guide the little wills of all. The purpose which the masters know and serve. And from the center which we call the race of humanity. Let the plan of love and light work out, and may it seal the door where evil dwells. Let light and love and power restore the plan on earth. And so it is. And so we are there in the Wezak Valley. And the full moon is just still above the horizon. 
and you can feel the palpable excitement building as we all await the arrival of Lord Buddha. And the moon begins to rise, and a stillness settles upon everyone. And everyone is looking toward the northeast. And there are certain movements and mantras that are sounded forth under the guidance of the seven kohans of the seven rays. And in the northeast, as we all look that direction, a tiny speck can be seen in the sky. That sparkle of light is growing larger and larger. Larger and larger in each moment. And you begin to see the Buddha becoming discernible. Seated in a cross-legged position, clad in a beautiful saffron-colored robe, bathed in such light and color, just grows brighter and brighter. His hands are extended in blessing. And everyone is in amazement, in awe, as the Buddha hovers over the bowl of water. And a great divine mantra is sounded by Lord Maitreya that is used only once a year at Wizak. And this invocation is so powerful. It sets up an enormous vibration of spiritual current. You can feel it. You can sense it. Even if you don't hear the language, but it is so very powerful, sending out this enormous vibration, marking the supreme moment of intense spiritual effort for the entire year for all initiates and masters present. We continue to watch in awe. As Lord Buddha hovers over that bottle, that bowl of water, not a body of water, the bowl of water. And you can feel the transmission of his divine energies. He's transmitting the divine cosmic energies into the bowl of water and through Lord Maitreya. That energy is sent forth by Lord Maitreya to the entire spiritual hierarchy and to all of us who form a part of this hierarchy on earth. Feel it, sense it, experience it. Let yourself really tap into the vibrations and feel this massive downpouring of cosmic energies from the planetarian cosmic hierarchy flowing not only through us, but also flowing out into the entire world and into the earth herself. And as these energies continue to pour in, we see the bowl of water taken from the crystal begin to be passed around the crowd. Everyone gets a chance to take a sip of this holy, blessed water 
and you see yourself feeling yourself taking your turn. Sipping this water blessed by Lord Buddha. What a profound transformation takes place. And you might see yourself walking toward Lord Buddha, Lord Maitreya, and Sanat Kamara. Feel yourself taking your turn in front of them. As you stand before these three loving masters and share with them on the inner plane, what you feel your service work, mission, and puzzle piece is, in God's divine plan on earth. Take this time, take this divine moment of blessing to make any requests to God, Goddess, and Lord Maitreya, Lord Buddha, and Sanat Kamara for help for yourself, for others, and your intentions especially in manifesting your divine mission. See yourself asking for what you need. Asking for the support you need. In this year ahead. To fulfill your mission. And even as you speak them, you begin to feel and visualize these prayers being answered. And your heart overflows with gratitude as you thank Lord Buddha, Lord Maitreya, and Sanat Kamara for their divine guidance and blessings. Take a moment to walk in the sacred space of the Wiesach Valley as you move toward a beautiful nature spot and away from the crowd. And you find a place to sit and allow yourself to just be resonating with all that has taken place, filled with amazing blessings and dispensations, allowing yourself to feel an amazing sense of joy and gratitude for the blessings at this moment, the blessings of the entire Wesok ceremony. All of the grace, all of the dispensations being received here at this sacred time, allowing a sense of integration as these feelings become embedded into the core of your being. As you recognize the oneness, knowing that all of us and the entire hierarchy 
of light, all of the inner plane ascended masters, all of the hierarchy are one. Take a nice deep breath. And as this integration is taking place, and you find yourself as the ceremony begins to complete, looking toward the ceremonial circle and gathering near the large crystal and the bowl of water. Everyone has taken taken part of the ceremony. Everyone is feeling so much love, so much enlightened energy, and so much gratitude. And we begin to see, feel, and just visualize Lord Buddha as the work in the ceremony is complete. He begins to rise in the lotus posture, very gently, slowly, floating back to the northeast and to the realm from which he came. And we continue to watch in awe and great gratitude as Lord Buddha again becomes a small speck in the distance. And we begin to realize that it is time to complete our journey in the Wesak Valley. And we gather with everyone. We gather as our inner plane spiritual hosts. Bring us back to that gigantic group Merkaba. And we join this Merkaba in total oneness, joy, and love. And very gently, we can feel the group Merkaba floating through time and space, returning us back to our individual locations, to our physical body. And as we continue with our eyes closed, we take this time to send love to all of our brothers and sisters here joining with us on the call. All those that have joined and shared in this journey, this WESOC celebration, we send love to each other. And we send love to the planet and all upon her, all of, his fa- all of our family members and loved ones, everyone breathing in and receiving this great love, feeling the oneness of all life. And we are receiving a blessing here as well, a blessing from Lord Sai Baba, giving us a final blessing and benediction 
closing this WESOC ceremony by etherically sprinkling upon us all his sacred Vibhuti ash as a sealing blessing of transcension and ascension. And we breathe and receive this sacred blessing from, from Lord Sai Baba and all of the hierarchy of light. So make sure you find yourself back in your room, back in your body. Fully integrated body, mind, and spirit. As we give thanks for the amazing blessings of this time. We call forth Sandalphon and Gaia to assist us to ground this energy in divine order for our being and to assist every man, woman, and child. doing so as well. I wish to remind you that there is another sacred blessing always on the Sunday, I believe it's just the Sunday closest to the Wiesach by Lord Maitreya. So I want you to make a note that at 3 p.m. your local time no matter what time zone you're in, it's at 3 p.m. your local time. Lord Maitreya sends his blessing just a few times a year. And one of them is for this Wesak full moon. All you need to do is to set your intention to receive it. I suggest that you set your alarm on your phone. (laughs) That's what I do. (laughs) Five, maybe ten minutes before, but five minutes might be sufficient to set your alarm five minutes to three. That's tomorrow afternoon, Sunday, May 7th. Tomorrow afternoon at 3 p.m., your local time, to receive this blessing and just simply open your crown If you want to write intentions ahead of time, if you want to write the intention and you know that you're not going to be in a quiet space, set the intention that you and everyone around you receives it. Again, you can always do the prayer, I am my I am presence and I am one with the I am presence of all humanity and just open to everyone receiving the blessings of Lord Maitreya at the sacred time. The energies come in for about an hour And it's wonderful just to rest and receive. But if you can't do that, hold the intention that you are receiving every single benefit of this special dispensation. So I'm going to take this time to thank you for your divine service in doing this WESOC ceremony. Thank you, your divine servant, for your divine service every Saturday and invite you to further divine service each and every Sunday and Monday evening when we do the Ascension Meditation and Activation Calls. We'll be celebrating Wesak Sunday and Monday. Be lurking a lot with the Enlightenment and Energies. 
the energies of divine wisdom for all humanity. And we invite you to join us every Sunday and Monday evening. The call begins with greetings at 8.45 p.m. Eastern. So that's 5.45 p.m. Pacific time. We have about 25 minutes of greetings, about 10 after Tar and Rama come in and give us a brief update. At 9.30, we begin our work in earnest of bringing heaven to earth. All of our ascension activations then begin 9.30 Eastern, 6.30 Pacific time. The phone number that we've been advised to use that is one of the clearest is area code 480-660-2224. The code is 946-7441-POUND. 946-7441-POUND. But keep in mind that I have an extensive list now of all kinds of cities if you need a local number. I actually had uh, a friend of mine that um, was calling in on the old 425 number and it it wasn't very clear. So I had her call the local number here in the metro Detroit area. And it was so clear, it was, it was remarkable. So if you want a local number for your area, that's a possibility. There's all kinds of numbers to call. Um, there's international numbers. I have someone else that's using the app now. And they've started getting charged for their, for their call on the 425 line. And... Um, they're not supposed. Well, they're not. You're not supposed to be charged. And in fact, if there's any T-Mobile customers out there, <laughs> um, the four eight zero number you're not supposed to be charged on. That's one of the reasons I recommend it. The one I just gave out four eight zero six six zero two 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 four. There should be no charge for any company. And. So this person's using the app and it's working wonderfully. There's no way they can charge you because it's going to as if you were online. So you can go on the computer and do it that way as well. And I can send you all that information. Just contact me. And I need to know if there's any issues with the line. We're working with freeconference.com. And um, so... Let me know by email, Cheryl Croce at AOL.com. That's C-H-E-R-Y-L-C-R-O-C-I at AOL.com. And so um, we invite you to participate. And with this, um, I'm going to pass the talking stick. We want to thank Torn Rama for their service all these years and thank Rainbow for all of her service. And uh, I literally have to go, I have to run. <laughs> I have an appointment at 6, and so I'm going to go ahead and pass the talking stick 
So my love and gratitude goes with all of you. Have a magical, magical week. Call on the blessings. Call on the miracles. Uh, miracles are meant to happen at this amazing time of the year, especially with the, solar, with the lunar eclipse that we had. So let's release all of the past and create the new and create heaven on earth. So blessings of heaven to each of you. Thank you. I'm going to pass the talking stick, Rainbird. Thank you, dear. Thank you, Cheryl, and thank you for your divine service. And what a beautiful meditation today. So, so much gratitude for you, and you go well. Okay, I'm here to do the housekeeping as we are a listener-supported radio program. It's all of us that make it happen. And so each week we have these with BBS Radio, um, and uh, we'd like to keep up on those. <laughs> so we have um, also, uh, we are assisting Tara and Ronald with their needs. So let's talk about BBS Radio first. Go into your heart space, see what's yours to give, and then go to bbsradio.com and click on Radio Station 1 or Radio Station 2. You'll see the schedule there. For We're on Radio Station 2, so as you click on Radio Station 2, you'll see this program listed at the 3.30 hour on Saturday, and it is the true history history of Nassar and our galactic origins with Tara and Rama, so... You could just click on that icon that is there on that schedule, and it will take you directly to our account with DBS Radio, where you can make a donation in any amount. And the same uh, is true with Radio Station 1. We have programs on Thursday, a night at the round table with a panel at the 8 o'clock hour. You click on that icon there, that takes you to our account. And the Friday program is at the 8 o'clock hour on Radio Station 1 as well. And it is hard news on Friday nights with Tara and Rama. So you just click on that icon. So there you are. You're making that donation. I want to share with you what we need for the, <clears throat> the radio this week. We need $377. There's $88 that is passed through from the week before. And the other $289 is for the week coming that we're at, we're in now, so it's it's due Sunday as well. It's all due Sunday, so this is something we need to take care of right away as we can. Reach into our pockets and make that donation happen so that we can be even even with the radio. <laughs> so thank you, thirteen thank yous, honey in the heart. So much gratitude for all the ways you show up, and this is a really good way a good opportunity to show up right now and uh so there you go that's what we need for the radio and then going on for tara and rama they they're about desperate they have not having enough coming in so we need to again be attentive to that if they have to have gas money to rama has to have that gas money to make his his uh, runs through the country. He's already in the country, but he he needs to go 20 miles <clears throat> from home every day so that he's able to make his contact. And so that requires gas money. And they also actually are still eating, so they need money for food. They need, they require $200 for their living expenses, and it just needs to come right away because they're really on the skinny right now. And uh, they also have $465 in bills due this week. 
Two of them are due on Monday. Um, of $286, and two of them were due on Wednesday. Uh, <clears throat> no, that's, that's 286 179 is due on Monday with two bills, and then on Wednesday they need to pay two bills that come to 286 So 465 is what they need for their bills this week. And, uh, yeah, let's keep them functioning there. And then E.T., the car mechanic is still in need of $400 for his labor. Uh, so let's get that taken care of so that his labor was in February and this is May. And we need to make sure that that gets paid. So that's $400 due for E.T.'s labor. And a lot of gratitude for that. <clears throat> so there you go. Um that's it. <laughs> so we're looking for close to $1,000 for Tara and Lama and $377 for the radio. So it's time to get generous and and make it happen with ourselves and with, um, for Tara and Rama and for the radio. So 13 thank yous, honey in the heart. Long life, so evil. Here's how we make a donation to Tara Rama. You want to go to the web address to access the PayPal account. That web address is rainbowroundtable.net. And as you go, go on the home page there, click on that menu grid, and you will see uh, everything that's on that site. Look near the bottom of that list. You'll see the donate link. Click on that, and that takes you to the Rainbow Roundtable PayPal account. And you can make a donation there in any amount. Thank you for your generosity. If you want to access the friends option, you'll also see on that page a little heart. You click on that heart and it gives you the friends option. And that's where you enter Rama's email at uh, PayPal. And that email address at PayPal for Rama is Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 9999 at hotmail.com. And I'll say it again. K-O-R-A-N-9999 at hotmail.com. And there you get to enter that email, and that gives you the friends option, which makes your money go further. So your contribution goes further when you do it that way. Either way is perfect. We're grateful for all your contributions, however they show up. Um, so as you're sending something, please let Rama know. And that email address to communicate with Rama is Koran. K-O-R-E-N-99939 at Comcast.net. And um, what else? Oh, yeah. As you need it, there's a mailing address. And I'll give you that. It is Ram D. Berkowitz. So R-A-M-D Berkowitz. B-E-R-K-O-W-I-T-Z. Berkowitz, Post Office Box 280-280, and that's in Santa Cruz, New Mexico, 87567 is the zip. I'll say it again. Santa Cruz, New New Mexico, 87567. Uh, So there you go. That's the address and all the information for sending money to PayPal or by mail. You got that. So, great. 
So there you go. 13 takings, honey in the heart, long life, no evil. And I'm passing this talking stick. And it's, it's do, they're still doing a lot of Mexican tunes. So you're seeing the, the, the good Cinco de Mayo Mexican band playing. And then all these Buddha mantras are going on in the background and all the rays and all the gems that are healing and all kinds of feathers and fairies on this talking stick, along with the little people, the Menahunis and the Hobbits, and the, also unicorns and dragons are showing up and coming with us in that Excalibur sort of truth and, and that serpent-feathered one. So greetings. Tower and Rama, here comes this talking stick. Welcome. Greetings. Greetings, everyone. Happy Wesak once again. Yes. Uh, Full moon. Part of everything eclipse. day, yesterday. <laughs> Thank you, Cheryl. Thank you, Rainbird. We are so grateful. We are so grateful to everyone. Thank you for helping us. I know the times are intense with what's going on. They are. There was a huge solar flare that went over the earth. I still got to figure out how to print the article out. <laughs> From Sonia. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. It's uh, the Tom and Sweet Angelique the cat today just said, drink lots of water, Stay in the violet flame and work with the energies of the full moon and Wiesach and <laughs> King Charles got his crown and blazed the violet fire. That's all I gotta say. King Charles the clone at least. Yes. Um, and the country is divided. Britain is very divided on the issues. Uh, of keeping a monarchy or not. And the term that I heard on the news is they want the ones that are divided against uh, keeping the monarchy, they want a parliamentary republic. Not quite sure what that means. I know what a democratic republic is. That's what we are here. Right? Constitutional republic. Yeah, small d. Small D. Where's the D from? Democratic. Oh, a constitutional democratic republic. Yes. Is that what you mean? Yeah. Three words. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh, and it seems like the world is really contemplating what freedom might really mean. Uh, and... And what I'm experiencing from all the different realms from what I'm t being told is that the energies that are coming in along with the different fleets upon fleets of galactic forces yes this planet is becoming free and everybody gets to have their place in the sun no matter what color species you are. 
No matter what color species you are? No, no matter what color, what species, what form you come in. Is that a root from the cat kingdom? Yeah. There's a movie out there. Uh, it's called Valerian and the City of Planets. And it, it, it's, believe me, it, it is amazing because it is about how these two folks that are human help to save this race of beings that are, let's say, in danger of extinction because uh, they look a little different and they talk a little different than us and they do things a little differently. And it's on YouTube, Valerian and the City of Planets. Valerian, B-A-L-E-R-I-A-N. <laughs> Just like the root, the Valerian root. Yeah. What's that good for? Uh, to help you go to sleep. It's oh. good for pain, too. Okay. Yeah. Valerian and the City of Planets, it's on YouTube. Yes. It's a new... New movie? Oh, it's been around since oh. 2021, 2020, maybe. Hmm. Again, what's it about? Uh, these two humans that help save a race of being, a race of beings that are, let's say, being exterminated because they're a little different than uh, what we know and understand and these two humans have to go up against their superiors basically and commit uh, a form of uh, treason as it were to get the attention of the rest of the galaxy to get their support against these folks who are not exactly doing the right thing in the local galaxy. It's got a good outcome. I gotta say that. But it is amazing the stuff that you see. Cause it is like what I see in the different realms. All the colors of the rainbow beings that they live in oneness. They live so under the office of the Christ in peace and love. I pass the talking stick. There was a very long, uh, it was a two-hour crowning of King, King Charles. King Charles, and then, uh, and I think it was at twelve o two p.m. their time today that he was crowned, and then about twelve fifteen, ten minutes later. Um, his wife, Camilla, Camilla was crowned queen too. So now we can say king and queen. King Charles said queen Camilla. Yet, like I was saying, there's a divide in Britain. And there were a lot of signs at the march. At the, at the, at the demonst, oh well at the parade or whatever. Uh, and 
the people have up on their signs, you are not our king. And so what they want, again, is they're saying a parliamentary republic. Although the word parliament refers to the monarchy's mm-hmm. process, so that's confusing. I don't know enough about this. They call they call uh, Britain's form of government a constitutional monarchy. Mm-hmm. Whatever that must mean. Word magic is what I get. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, the way things are going over here is not too much fun either. No, there's another form of word magic over here. And Sheldon Whitehouse has been squawking to the rooftops. And the fact is that we have never, ever questioned raising the debt ceiling or paying our debts. Let's put it that way. Whether you got to raise the debt ceiling or not, we've never, ever questioned paying our debts. And what the Republicans are doing are just that. They're questioning paying their debt. They're saying, these are our demands. In other words, we won't raise the debt ceiling, meaning we won't pay our debts, period, unless we can cut Social Security, we can cut Medicare, Medicare, we can cut veterans' benefits. I mean, there's a litany of things they want to cut. So let's just calm down (laughs) and assert prosperity. And may we all continue to pass every test. It's really important right now. That all being said, we're going through that biblical saying, we're going through that eye of the needle where it says it's hard for a rich man to get to heaven than it is for a camel to get through the eye of the needle. I know some big camels. Well, I don't think it matters. General size of the camel is a lot bigger than the eye of a needle, Rabba. Yeah. Once you get on top of a camel, it's it's a bit, you know, it's bigger than a horse. Oh, much bigger. Yeah. You're you're pretty far away from the ground. In other words, if you fall off a camel, you're yeah, it'll hurt a bit. (laughs) A bit. (laughs) Did you ride on the camel? Yeah. In Egypt? I did. And I hung out for dear life. <laughs> you hang out to the, uh, the, the hump reins. in front of you? Oh, they had reins, yes. like a horse? Yeah, just like a horse. I, I, I did hear camels are pretty stubborn, though. Yeah, and they can turn around and spit on you, too, if they don't like you. <laughs> no. Yes. <laughs> did you get spit on? No, they like me. Oh, <laughs> Okay, um, I guess it's time to get started with what you have, Rama. You've got a nine-minute... i got a nine-minute story, a different version than what Cheryl shared of going to the Weesock Valley and going through the ceremony of the Weesock Festival where Lord Buddha... Sananda, Kumara, and Maitreya show up. And um, 
Yeah. And the green Tara shows up too. Yeah. It's Gautama Buddha, um, Sananda Kumara, and uh, Sana Kumara. And then overall, these three, you might say, male figures, uh, the green Tara overlights that energy. So, and we all got something to do there. Right, Rob? Yeah. Okay, well, let's see what this one says. Okay, here we go. Here we go. Legend has it that for centuries in a remote and hidden valley in a Himalayan mountain range, a sacred gathering takes place at the exact time of the Taurus full moon. This full moon, also known as Wesak, has long been associated with the Buddha, the Lord of Light, the messenger from the East, who returns each year to bless the world. The Buddha was born, attained enlightenment and died under Taurus, the sign of illumination, of vision known as the Eye of God. The eight minutes leading up to the exact time of the full moon are said to be the time of supreme spiritual opportunity within the entire annual cycle, when the forces of light make an effort to increase the flow of enlightenment into the world and bring wisdom and understanding into the minds and hearts of people everywhere. As we link up in consciousness with this ceremony, we participate in a living event. It's important to understand that Wesak is the festival of the living Buddha, not a commemoration of the Buddha of antiquity. The legend states that as the time of the full moon approaches, many people from the surrounding district find their way to a little valley in Tibet, on the further side of the Himalayas in which the ceremony of blessing takes place. There gathers also a group of those great beings who are the custodians on earth of God's plan for our planet and for humanity. They range themselves in the northeastern end of the valley and in concentric circles prepare themselves for a great act of service. In front of a large rock, looking towards the northeast, stand the three great lords, These are the world teacher, who stands in the center, the lord of living forms, the Manu, who stands on his right, and the lord of civilization, who stands on his left. These three face the rock, upon which rests a great crystal bowl of water. As the time of the full moon approaches, a stillness settles down upon the crowd, and all look towards the northeast. Certain ritualistic movements take place in which the grouped masters and their disciples take up symbolic positions on the floor of the valley. This is all done to the sound of certain chanted words and esoteric mantrams. The expectancy in the onlooking crowd becomes great and the tension is real and increasing. Through the entire body of people, there seems to be felt a stimulation or potent vibration which has the effect of awakening the souls of those present, fusing and blending the group 
into one united whole and lifting all into a great act of spiritual demand and readiness. The world's aspiration is focused on this waiting group. As the chanting and the rhythmic weaving grow stronger, all turn in the direction of the narrow part of the valley, looking over and beyond towards the northeast and through the long narrow portion of the valley, far in the distance, a point of brilliant light is seen rising over the horizon. Gradually, the point of light becomes the sun, blazing and approaching ever nearer. As the blazing sun approaches, its size and light completely obliterate the opening of the narrow valley, and only the sun is seen. Its effulgence fills the whole of the larger valley, and it is as though all present stand within the sun, so intense is the lighted brilliance. At the exact moment of the full moon, the great sun hovers over the altar. The sun is now realized to be the tremendous spiritual radiance of the great Lord and Son of God, the Lord Buddha. Enormous in size, his hand extended in blessing received by the world teacher. Once the exact moment of the full moon passes, the figure of the Buddha recedes to the far distant horizon, fading out of sight. The world teacher turns to face all present as he intones the great hierarchical mantram used only once a year. The invocation sets up a great vibration, which is of such potency that it reaches up from the group to God himself. It marks the supreme moment of intensive spiritual effort of the entire year and the spiritual vitalization of humanity and the spiritual effects last throughout the succeeding months. As the Buddha disappears, the bowl of water imbued with his blessing is distributed to all present. Through the united effort of the world teacher and the Buddha, working in closest cooperation, a channel of communication is built between humanity and God. The linking up of the Buddha and the world teacher creates a bridge in consciousness across which masters, initiates, disciples and aspirants are able to walk and make If you're a woman who owns a business, then you need a virtual assistant. And not just any virtual assistant, you need a doer. Outsource doers train and match virtual assistants. Contact with certain energies not otherwise easily available. As we link up in consciousness with this event, we aid the Buddha in his work to contact, hold, and distribute spiritual energy in the service of humanity and the planet. What can we do to play our part in the Wessex Festival? For two days prior to the Wessex full moon, the day of the full moon, and for the two subsequent days, endeavor to do the following things. Link up with all people of spiritual intention and goodwill throughout the world. Using the creative imagination, eliminate out of your consciousness all negativity, seeing yourself clearly as ranged on the side of the forces of light. Preserve a spirit of love for all individuals. 
when meditating and invoking the forces of light, endeavor to forget entirely your own personal difficulties, tragedies and problems. Secondly, endeavor at sunrise, at noon, at five o'clock and at sunset, plus the exact time of the full moon in your own land, to say the great invocation with the intent to invoke, precipitate and anchor in outer manifestation the waiting potencies. Do this aloud when possible and in group formation whenever feasible. The Great Invocation From the point of light within the mind of God let light stream forth into human minds. Let light descend on earth. From the point of love within the heart of God let love stream forth into human hearts. May the coming one return to earth. From the center, where the will of God is known, let purpose guide all little human wills, the purpose which the masters know and serve. From the center, which we call the human race, let the plan of love and light work out, and may it seal the door where evil dwells. Let light and love and power restore the plan on earth. Oh, that was wonderful. Mm. I like the way they changed the words. Yeah. Human minds. And human heart. Yeah. Okay, as you can come back. Uh, and we will be putting in the circle of support uh, one of our friends that are listening here is nearly blind at this point. We have some other friends, uh, and uh, uh, do we have Jerry's email, Rama? Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, Jerry, if you're as you're listening, will you send us your email? Because I think you might have some suggestions for this this friend of ours that's almost nearly blind now, as you have been experiencing, and you've been experiencing improvements with things that you know about. So we wanted to link that up. I uh, We also know about something, but it's something we came aware of from way back in 2003, I think it was, and it was on NHK News, which is out of Japan. And that the Japanese scientists developed a pair of glasses and they have something, you know, these things that you, part of the glasses that go over your ears, but where the, where that part meets the, uh, 
the uh, front part where the glasses are, uh, right there, like by your temples, they have something that they put, very small something or anything, yet as you wear the glasses, you can see. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm a little concerned about technology that close to your eyes. Or your brain. Or your brain. <laughs> I'm not sure what that all sounds like. But anyway, uh, maybe, and others might pursue looking like, send an email to NHK News. Um, and Rama will make an attempt to uh, is sharing it with more people. Uh, so uh, the gift of being able to see is a great gift and those of us who might be having less of ability to see know what that means. <laughs> so thank you, thank you, everyone. Anybody else that knows anything about this or anything else to help with vision? And just uh, email Rama at Koran999 at Comcast.net. Thank you, thank you, everyone. And while we're on it, then... Uh, go to the request for assistance that we put out. And at the end of that request, Micah has a, a letter about NFT, which stands for a, a program. It's a program. It's got very unique way to uh, bring people into the program. And I just want to say that they have over a million people that can come into the program and there's a way for each one of us to have some leads from that group. They have a a program where you can obtain a hundred leads from those million people. And then as this begins, uh, what we understand uh, from um, Robert, I forgot his last name, Braddock or something like that. But anyway, the the CEO is that the overflow will be like an avalanche of overflow so that this will bring within the first three months a really wonderful addition to our funds so that we can start learning how to do things uh, with that money uh, and be of service to others. And it's a good introduction to what we will be doing from the time that Nasara Law is enacted and we're going to be changing our lives to use the funds that come from there uh, to bring an equality and a whole new system, a whole new money system. So is there anything else you want to add to, Rob? Blaze the Violet Fire. All right. That's good. And where do they go? Just go to our website. Yes. Which is http colon forward slash forward slash www.rainbowroundtable.net. There you go. For looking for that request for assistance. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. So here we go. Tell us what we're going to... Oh, do you want to read that? Okay. 
We're going to start. We've had two programs from uh, Ethan Fox, Ethan Fox, and Michelle Sheldon. And so this is the third one. This is two hours and two minutes. And the title is Cataclysms channel uh cataclysms and dimensional shifts wow and i'll just read this really good uh explanation in this episode of channeled revelations it looks more like michaela to me but anyway michelle sheldon channels the council of light ethan discusses the great flood and the timeline and dimensional shift that occurred around 12,000 years ago. What caused it and its implications to the world we live in today. The conversation continues with an explanation of the cataclysmic event at the very beginning of the Earth's manifestation. The encapsulation that resulted and how it is changing in recent times. Further discussions involve the role that the Anunnaki played in the Great Flood as a result of their 12th dimensional technological experiments. Other topics include the connection between small cities. Smart cities. Oh, smart, excuse me, thank you, thank you, Mom. Smart cities. ESG standards? What's ESG mean? I'm not sure. Okay, well, we'll find out. (laughs) And the move toward depopulation of the Earth and a relocation of human beings to Mars. Other topics include the use of technologies to alter human behavior, how dimensional shifts change the position of the Earth, within the galaxy, the 369 magic square, the flower of life, and how to use these to establish an unbroken connection to the universe. About Michelle Sheldon, Michelle Sheldon is an intuitive channel, executive director of the Flower of Life Institute and marketing director of the Awake and Empowered Expo. During a struggle to overcome chronic pain, Michelle experienced a shift of awakening. Discovering her intuitive gifts and launching a journey to better understand her connection to the spirit world. In the course of her healing process, she left behind her role as a marketing consultant and soccer mom to step fully onto her soul's path as an intuitive channel. Michelle has the ability to channel a variety of multidimensional extraterrestrial and angelic beings to answer questions about her story 
current challenges and where we are headed in the future. She joins Ethan each month on Awake and Empowered TV to bring universal channeled messages to the listening audience. Through her transformational experience, Michelle has come to understand that her channeled messages are vibrational in nature, energetically uplifting and healing those who hear them and allowing lightworkers to firmly step onto their soul's path and serve as a human conduit for healing energies. By tuning in each week, listeners will gain inspiration and tools to maintain and raise their vibration, as well as to heal and open their energy field. By directly connecting with the consciousness of multidimensional beings who are here to support our evolution. She has experienced astoundingly accurate results. She often receives visions of significant past life experiences and describes how they are impacting a client's present journey. And so it's HTTP http colon forward slash www dot and I'll say the name the way it looks it's Michaela M-I-C-H-E-I-L-A Sheldon S-H-E-L-D-A-N dot com okay I see we got Padme on line three Padme is all yours here it comes Greetings, Commander, Lady Master. Greetings. Uh, I just wanted to... Oh, hi. Can you hear me? Hello? Can you hear me? Hi. Can you hear me? Don, do we have Padme? Uh, Yes, we should be hearing her right now. She is on line three. Padme? Hello, hello. Hello, greetings. I'm here just fine. Oh, is that you, Rainbird? It is me with Rainbird on. Rainbird confirmed she can hear me. Are you hearing Padme, Rainbird? Yes, I am. I'm hearing you too. I don't know why you're not hearing. Oh, you're you're not hearing Padme right now? No, no. Isn't that strange? I just wanted to confirm with them that it is. Can you hear her now? I can hear Padme way, way, way in the background, and she's trying to talk loud. Mm, I'll turn her up. Padme? Greetings. No, we still can't hear her. She's uh, way wow. too far in the background. Huh. Okay. Well, maybe Rainbird can just say, it is Michaela. Uh, Ethan, she is, she, I, it is pronounced Michaela. I can't, we can't uh, hear that her. That was all? Maybe Rainbird will confirm yeah, for me because you can hear Rainbird. Pronunciation, yeah. right, Padme, it's Michaela. Her name is Michaela. Yes. That's all she wanted to say. Yes. Okay. Okay, you. so we're all going to need to think. Okay, I thought so. All right, thank you, Padme. I know I couldn't hear you. I'm not sure what that was about, but I think we got everything straight. Thank you. All right, we'll begin. Thank this. you. Thank you for your lovely Saturday. Happy Catterday. 
to all. Hey, now we can hear you really loud and clear. <laughs> How weird. Well, thank you, Don and Don, Don and BDS. Greatest station ever. Thank you yeah. for all your hard work. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to confirm you had it right, that it is Michaela. You said at the end, but uh, that is her name. Um, right. And it's always wonderful to hear it. And thank you. Happy Saturday, and thank you for being on there. Day two for all of us. Thank you. Blessings. Blessings back to you. All right. All right. Here we go. That was day. Hello, and thank you for joining us for another episode of Channel Revelations. I'm Ethan Fox, and I'm here with Michaela Sheldon. And today we'll be doing a channeled session again. And uh, as I always say in these channeled um, revelation shows, I don't discuss any of the questions with Michaela ahead of time, so she has no idea what we're going to talk about. Just so, you know, she is a trans channel, so she is not consciously aware of what we're discussing while the guides are speaking. So we have a really clear and pure connection to higher dimensional beings and their wisdom. But just to be sure that her mind and intellect doesn't interfere with the information at all, I don't discuss any of these topics with her beforehand. And generally, by the time we're done, she doesn't remember anything we talked about either. So um, so whenever you're ready, we can start. And just bring in whatever guides we can start with, and then I'll go from there. We have the presence of many. <laughs> We're working with the Council of Light. Okay, great. So in many discussions that we've had in the past um, with the Pleiadians and I believe the Council of Light as well, the topic has been discussed a lot about how there was uh, how we are in a time on planet Earth right now where we're in a different way re-experiencing the Great Flood or the cataclysmic time that was similar to the Great Flood that happened. Uh, can you, uh, is, is that true, first of all? It is true, but of course, every timeline that is repeated is a bit different than how it has manifested before. And there are many different components uh, or reasons as to why that would be. Uh, including the dimension that you are in and the types of beings that are present on the planet. As well, you must consider that a great amount of linear time has elapsed since these previous events have taken place. So you are essentially on a completely different planet uh, than the one in which that timeline took place. But uh, certainly we do agree that this is one of the more significant influences that are coming back to affect the collective currently. Okay. I, I, now, I realize, just to preface, and especially for those who are watching from home, that I understand that the kind of discussions we're going to have in this particular conversation are going to be a little bit hard to uh, tangibly bring to a grounded three-dimensional level because we're going to be discussing some multi-dimensional ideas here, but we're going to do the best we can. Um, so in that context, then, in a linear timeline perspective, if it's possible to articulate that, 
was this great flood about um, 9 to 12,000, 13,000 years ago, something like that? Uh, we could uh, confirm that, yes, what you are saying is true. But also, as you have already suggested, we uh, must answer these questions in a more universal way because to truly understand time and these events and, and how they come back around, you, you must understand that you're moving through dimensions and space and time. And then as you do so, it's truly not possible to make a determination of number of years between these various periods. And, and the reason we believe this is because these events are still taking place, in other words. And then we, we hate to introduce such a confusing um, analogy right off the bat, but everything that has ever happened throughout the universe um, it is assumed to have a beginning and an end, uh, but that isn't necessarily so. Uh, evolution is taking place throughout the cosmos and things that have happened here are manifesting elsewhere and have resolved themselves or become different challenges. And this is true of, of the event that you speak of. Okay, of course, as human beings, we are living in a third dimensional, fourth dimensional, linear timeline where we're dealing with time. And so it's hard for most of us to comprehend multidimensional concepts, although I'm sure many of the people watching the show can understand those ideas, at least intellectually. Um, so when you say these events are still happening, what you're referring to, and correct me if I'm on the wrong track, is that all experiences that have ever happened, as you said, are still happening and are always happening, meaning even though we can say that was 12, 13,000 years in our linear past, in, in this linear past that I'm sitting in right now, that experience is still occurring in a, uh, in a nonlinear way. Um, and as a result, the outcome of that that is still occurring could still change and influence what we're experiencing in our current linear future from that time, even though from a linear perspective, we would say that's in our past. Does that make any sense? We agree with what you're saying. And, and perhaps to simplify, um, what happens on a specific planet, it isn't necessarily relegated to the uh, experience of the beings who are there. Uh, in other words, everything that's happening, everything that you're creating is affecting everything else throughout the universe. And, and this is why uh, many of us who assemble as intergalactic beings come to support humanity and other races in, in raising consciousness and becoming very aware of how they are interacting and interplaying in various timelines. So, so we'll give you an example uh, of how this works. And we want to take it up to the highest level and then bring it down to a more uh, individual soul level uh, and make it more personal. Throughout the cosmos, uh, everything that has ever been created still exists. And many are familiar with the term the Akashic Records. We believe the Akashic Records are a living legacy uh, of everything that has ever happened before in a spiral continuum coming around to affect something else. And this doesn't, again, necessarily mean that it is relegated to the planet in which it happened. And, and this is obvious uh, in much of what you're experiencing today in terms of some of the genetic wars 
that have gone on in multiple star systems and on planets beyond Earth. Uh, these things are now entwined with human history and, and you're experiencing them not because you've done something wrong, but, but because our purpose, all of us, uh, throughout the universe is to expand the experiences that we are able to have. Meaning we're taking what was before and we are influencing them to always become something different in hopes of a more uh, improved uh, life that we are all able to live together. But if we take that uh, analogy and, and we bring it down to the individual and, and what you're asking us about the Great Flood, for example, uh, every individual who chooses to exist um, within a specific race or incarnate, for example, as human, is carrying a contract to work with specific timelines that have actually taken place on the planet before. So certainly there are commonalities between all of these themes and events, but, but let's say, for example, becoming human predisposes you to having to deal with the great flood, the way it happened on earth. And so within your DNA, uh, collectively, there is a time in which that event will somewhat begin to bubble to the surface. And we want to be very clear that it doesn't have to be a flood at all. What's most important about any timeline, like the Great Flood, for instance, is the vibrational, vibrational contribution of all the souls who have gone through it. Uh, it's building to become a creative event and how it has continued to resurface and, and replay again and again. So often this timing is based on, a, on an evolutionary threshold. Humans uh, arrive uh, collectively at a point in history where they are now matching something about that event. And it is often a collective emotional response. It could be fear for example, and, and we see these events even coming back around because there is so much attention placed on them. It is not the only factor, uh, and we're not saying that you should never look at history and, and understand it, but how you perceive it has a great deal to do with, with how it resurfaces. And within each one of you, there are similar components that are far more personal. Uh, as you know, you've lived lifetimes before and you categorize them as past lives or sometimes even future lives. And and while um, the timing of them isn't exactly important because they're all taking place simultaneously, there, there are common threads wound within them that must resurface as events in your life. So many people would say um, we should go back and heal our past life karma. And, and to us, we think every component of that past life karma that you need to address exists in the here and now for you to actually um, encounter and have a response to. So it it is interesting, uh, we think, to, to go back and to calculate these periods of time and to understand when they took place and to even research the universal laws and methods of how they resurface. But to simplify everything in the present moment, in, in the quantum reality that you exist within, uh, every timeline you've ever touched before is a, 
is a possibility for you to either relive or change. Is the Earth and the Earth's consciousness in some way isolated from the rest of the universe due to the extremity of the activities on the planet today? It has been, but this is no longer truly the case. So, so let's explain. And, and as the Council of Light, we are the perfect ones to answer this because uh, we are a council of representatives from every planet throughout the universe. And we have formed uh, very long ago for the purpose of understanding the relationship between all things or the inherent connection in how energy flows. And, and what we have come to realize is that, again, and, and we've mentioned this in our, in our first answer, um, you are not just affecting your own life. <laughs> Everything that you are doing here, it immediately has an impact on the collective you chose, humanity. But that vibration is sent out to other planets and, and other star systems. So, for example, in Pleiades, uh, there may have been an incredible evolutionary passage in which beings learned how to work with uh, emotion, emotional intelligence. And, and through that experience, they became a far more loving collective and civilization and experienced uh, many benefits. But if there are wars going on on planet Earth and emotion is not being constructively um, processed, that can set back other planets and star systems. And, and this is a very simplified um, explanation we want you to know because it isn't quite that easy. Um, there are so many different determining factors, for example, uh, higher dimensions versus lower and the impact of the wave of vibration in those um, um, relationships uh, has a bearing on, on, on these various things that we're talking about. But all of that aside, um, very long ago, um, a very unfortunate uh, events took place on planet Earth, and we've had many unfortunate events, not unlike all of us who are speaking to you now. Uh, but in particular, um, it was a, uh, we'll say, a cataclysmic event at the very beginning of Earth's um, manifestation, where many different beings from different star systems volunteered to come and a new race. Um, and this is a story that we have shared many times having to do with reptilians. Reptilians who are in a very dire situation coming to your planet to harvest their own DNA because they were certainly here and seeded the most beneficial and, and benevolent parts of them within you. But all of that aside, what we began to notice was there were so many distortions happening here. Anytime a race is taken out of its creative power or its sovereignty, the timelines that are created are going to have a very profound negative effect on other races. So we, along with you, because you are a part of this council, uh, which we could go into detail about as well, decided to encapsulate the earth. Now, encapsulation itself could be a topic we could speak to for hours. Uh, it is not a sanction. And, and this is most important to understand. It's more of a, we'll say, protective layer, whereby uh, anything that does not reach a certain threshold of consciousness cannot pass. But the unfortunate 
part of an encapsulation is that universal energy also has a hard time getting through. So if, for example, uh, you are creating wars here, uh, and that vibration of war is a very low frequency, the encapsulation would not allow that experience to be um, passed on, let's say, to other star systems to influence timelines or creations that are taking place elsewhere. But the same goes for what is coming in. What is coming in, if it is higher than the threshold of the beings that are inside the encapsulation, it is very difficult to assimilate. Now, all of this aside, um, there has been so many miraculous changes uh, having to do with the Earth and this encapsulation. In fact, we could say it is almost completely disintegrated. So you exist on a brand new Earth right now with grid connections to the greater universe, more information coming in from the cosmos that you are able to assimilate and, and less concern about what's happening here. And we know your question may be, what about all of the negative things that are taking place on our planet? Well, certainly we have concerns about those, but consciousness is the most important consideration. And even though you are seeing a lot of difficult um, uh, experiences still playing out, the reason for them is a raise in consciousness, meaning right now you are purging some of the densest energy that you have been um, held back from for decades of time. So what we monitor is not only the activities uh, that are taking place on a certain planet, but the inner growth and as a collective, how that scale of consciousness and vibration is changing. And certainly what we've seen is a higher threshold of new timelines that are more fifth dimensional in nature. And that is a positive as well, because those will cancel out or override the ones that are lower in their dimension. Okay. Understanding everything that we just discussed today, um, I'm still going to ask a lot of very grounded third dimensional linear questions because Otherwise, these shows would be boring. We'd have nothing to talk about. Uh, and my role here is to bring these concepts into an intellectual perspective that the average human being can comprehend and apply um, in their lives, integrated with the multidimensional concepts so that it makes more sense to us because we are operating in a third dimensional construct. And as a result, there are certain third dimensional perspectives or structures that we have, our minds, which process information in a more linear way. Um, and uh, and so from that perspective, you say that this encapsulation is pretty much gone right now. In our linear perspective, when did this occur? Was this five years ago, 20 years ago, 100 years ago? It has been a gradual change and it, and it had to be. In fact, there were times when we saw a great deal of progress and backward motion because an encapsulation is a living consciousness, not unlike a planet. Uh, it is a, is a plasmic type of energy and, and interference. So it has to evaluate everything that is going through it and, and everything that um, is created within it, which we know is difficult to understand. Uh, but imagine your human aura. Uh, while your human aura is not a separate consciousness of you, uh, it is a conscious part of your human technology that is always sharing and expressing what the true soul essence 
um, is experiencing. And this is very similar to what's happened on Earth. But we do want to make a slight correction because you mentioned that uh, humans are living in a third dimensional construct. We don't necessarily agree with that statement because what's happening on planet Earth right now is a new uh, multidimensional energy uh, being ushered in. So we are seeing timelines that certainly do still exist in the third dimension, which is simply a more material and slower speed of vibration than as you move upwards uh, in number. Uh, but we're also seeing uh, timelines existing in fourth and fifth dimensional energies. So it's hard for us to say that every human is actually living in the same dimensional reality right now. Um, and that is both um, an incredible uh, experience as well as we know quite chaotic because it may seem as if you are living in completely separate worlds and, and in many respects you are. Okay, so many of us and probably the majority of people watching a show like this are probably operating in many dimensions simultaneously, right? And while still walking in the third dimension as well. I mean, is, is it possible for a human being to be walking in the third dimension in a physical body and not have some third dimensional expression at all, but be fifth dimensional entirely, for example? Not necessarily. Uh, actually, we would say it's the other way around. We see more people who are embodied in fifth dimensional timelines going back and, and forward and intersecting with more third and fourth dimensional experiences because the, the, the bandwidth of consciousness is there to handle that. And many of you uh, understand the term uh, cognitive dissonance. It, it's used quite often in spiritual circles that we see humans who are not available to um, uh, entertaining our ideas and beliefs. But cognitive dissonance isn't actually a choice. Uh, those who are fully ingrained in the third dimension only, again, do not have the bandwidth of consciousness or energy to perceive beyond it. And that is why many of the same choices are being made over and over again. So souls who break free of that dimension, meaning they have some type of spiritual awakening or raise of consciousness, may still be operating in the third dimension, but they will begin operating in the third dimension differently um, to accommodate what they now know. To distill that down into a human practical perspective, you're essentially saying that when we go to our Christmas and Thanksgiving family dinners, trying to convince other people of a multidimensional reality and how we see reality, uh, is there's no point in doing that is what you're saying because they are not able to access that knowledge and when they can uh, or when they become more multidimensional in their functioning here they'll just naturally gravitate to those ideas themselves we don't even look at it as knowledge we look at it as options those who are more fifth dimensional uh, and we're not making a judgment here we're, we're simply just uh, stating the reality as we know it through universal law those who are operating in higher dimensions, who have a higher consciousness, are multidimensional and perceiving more options. And that doesn't necessarily mean that everyone in the fifth dimension has the same beliefs. It doesn't necessarily mean that there is one truth, which we know is difficult for many of you today, because it seems logical 
that there would be one truth in terms of, of everything that's going on in various constructs uh, of the earth. Yet what more conscious souls are, are operating with is um, a, a, a frequency field, we'll say. Um, again, we'll use the aura as an example. Uh, if the aura is an extension of the soul's essence and its experiences and what it believes, uh, the more conscious that soul is, the greater the aura is going to expand. And that is um, uh, a reflection of the not only amount of knowledge they might have, but the amount of options that they perceive that they are able to take advantage of as a creator. Going back to this cataclysmic event that happened about 13,000 years ago in our linear history, um, there are a lot of scientific theories on this because there is a lot of evidence around the world of there having been some sort of a cataclysmic event that uh, that submerged many of the ancient cities, many of which are still under the ocean to this day. Uh, and some of those theories are around comet strike that hit the Earth. Um, some of them are on solar activity that caused um, intense heat and flooding uh, on the planet. Um, there seems to be some tangible evidence to that effect. Was this cataclysm that occurred something that humanity or some other consciousness or being that was on the planet physically at the time caused, or was this some sort of celestial event or a cycle? Well, we want to um, first describe how we see events like this taking place from our realm, not because we're here to confuse you. We know you want grounded knowledge. But but remember, if you're moving into a multidimensional reality, what you must realize is this was never one event. It was many events crescendoing together into something that you now believe wiped out the planet or many civilizations, uh, when in fact... Uh, what we see are a variety of timelines having coincided together. Now, we don't want to place blame, but we do want to remind you that as human beings, you are influencing the position of the earth and, and its direction of dimension uh, just as much as you are in influencing your own lives. And that's an important consideration because in many different ancient civilizations and, and timeline experiences, consciousness was purposely lowered or malevolent beings were seeing the rays of consciousness as a threat to their ability to utilize the natural resources of planet Earth, for example, or to tap into your genetics, their or a variety uh, of other reasons. So we see the Great Flood as being the result of two very different uh, events coinciding at once. First, the Earth had positioned itself in such a way that there was a radiant energy event, a solar event, that was quite prominent, meaning it was a close proximity to Earth and affected the, the natural tides uh, and the way that the tides were um, uh, timed, we'll say, or, or the rhythm of the tides. And this began to affect many civilizations that were close to the oceans. But in addition to this, 
we see a great nuclear event having taken place in the universe. Now, remember, anything that takes place off planet is going to have an effect on planet, but the, the proximity of Earth to that event, it, it is um, important. It's a, an important consideration. Um, if you think of a, an astrological influence, for example, you can map that to your birth chart. But if the planet that is causing the influence changes in its proximity to the Earth, that is going to affect the influence greatly. And, and so this is what we're saying. The Earth was in a very vulnerable position whereby solar and radiant energy was affecting the tides. But in addition, a nuclear event off planet began to, um, we'll say, permeate the Earth's atmosphere. And, and this created a huge imbalance in that atmosphere, um, setting off again a, a chain of events. Consciousness is always a factor. These events do not have to play out in the way that um, it may perceive, because if humans are in fear, for example, or, or prophesize about something that is going to take place, that prophecy or that event that is feared is more likely to come true. So you can see how that adds fuel to the fire. Uh, we have a situation that is ripe, both physically and vibrationally, to create an event that is going to be a cataclysm. Okay, let me restate what you said so I can make sure I understand. So what you're saying is this event that occurred about 13,000 years ago, um, 12, 13,000 years ago, was the result of the Earth being in a different position. Was now, let me finish the whole thought, but the Earth was, was it in a different position in the solar system such that it was oriented to the sun in a different place than it currently is? Uh, and secondly, you said there was an off-planet nuclear event. Now, was this in our solar system or are you talking about another civilization long distance away? No, in the solar system that you were in. And yes, we agree with what you were saying about the position of Earth. So Earth was in a different position and this solar event, did it push it into the position it is now? Or rather this nuclear and solar event? Uh, well, not necessarily. Um, remember, consciousness affects the movement of the planets and the stars. So if a collective such as uh, the human collective uh, exists on Earth and their consciousness raises, Earth has to accommodate for that raise in consciousness by slightly orienting itself to new energies. And this is a um, function of the poles. So think of the planet as a, a an electromagnetic field. And, and in that magnetic field are, are many different connections. And those connections are both internal, uh, physical, and external, etheric. So anytime that a collective is evolving, or perhaps even going backwards of evolution, what the Earth is attempting to do is move itself into a position where energy is accessible from other planets or from the Akashic records that will support what is happening in, in consciousness. Um, and, and this is important to note because right now, even what we have been seeing is 
Earth is moving into a new galactic position. And it's a very beneficial one, we believe, because the shift of the poles is allowing the Earth to now draw from different regions or, or areas of the Akashic records. And these are, of course, influenced by the heavenly bodies. So is the Earth, can we conceive, because I haven't been to outer space in this physical body, so is our solar system a um, something that has a fixed point, meaning is the sun in the same position relative to the Earth physically today as it was 13,000 years ago, um, or are you saying simply the tilt of the earth or a polar shift occurred and that that simple change in orientation is what caused the change? Well, it is both. We don't necessarily see a fixed point and location for any one planet or star system. Now, if you are mapping them today versus long ago, you may not notice the very subtle and slight changes we are talking about. But from a universal perspective, a very slight shift in the location of a planet is going to cause a great deal of change in how that planet is, is oriented to various influences and how it receives information. But the poles, these are very unique to Earth, are, are a manifestation of how uh, she, Gaia, uh, is able to, to use the energy within to find that most beneficial position. So, so it's actually both. Both of those things happen, um, and have happened throughout history. Um, and we can even go back to the very beginning, the, the birth of Earth itself and say that there, um, the, uh, the core, which was the first to form from many different elemental energies, was in extremely close proximity to the great central sun, uh, which is not the case today at all. Uh, the great central sun was actually supplying very beneficial radiant energy to support the manifestation of material around that core. Okay, let's expand on that concept a little bit because, well, before we get into that, actually, I want to address a different topic. Now, as human beings looking at things from a third dimensional perspective, we might assume that a nuclear event that occurred off planet that would actually affect the Earth to such a degree as to cause a cataclysm or be one of the factors anyway, that that nuclear event would have had to have been pretty substantial and very close to the physical Earth. But is that actually true? I mean, is a nuclear event, even a small one on planet Earth, let's say, that's isolated to a particular region, still affect things in a cataclysmic way in the whole universe? Well, you are making an assumption that the nuclear energy we are speaking of is similar to the nuclear energy that you are using in this timeline today. And, and what we have to explain is that there have been many different iterations throughout history spanning the cosmos of nuclear war um, using the same premise of, of how it is, exists today, but perhaps in a more targeted way and even in a more vibrational way. So uh, many of the advanced technologies that alternate star systems and races have utilized throughout history 
do not need to be so physical in their nature. Uh, war in the galactic universe, or at least the history of that war, has actually been more energetic than it has been physical. So a nuclear event um, of this nature could be a huge vibrational impact on a very vulnerable material planet. So so we could use um, um, uh, an example here. Many of you today are concerned about HARP, uh, for example, HARP technology. Uh, you're also concerned about uh, upgrades in surveillance uh, or even mind control techniques and technologies that are used by your government. Uh, these things are, are very um, real, but not nearly as potent in their power as what many of the advanced civilizations off planet have been able to accomplish. Okay, so you're saying that the, just to clarify, make sure I understand, this nuclear off-planet event that occurred 13,000, 12,000 years ago was the result of a nuclear war that was taking place off-planet? Not exactly, but yes, the premise was war. This was a test that was done in an area of the universe where it was assumed to not have been uh, capable of harm. Um, in fact, um, we're very saddened to say this. It, it was not an intentional event. Even though war was happening at the time, many of these technologies were being tested and they were not being tested necessarily on um, certain beings or, or races of beings, but they were sent into the atmosphere to, to be measured and to be monitored and, and to understand their impacts. But Remember, unfortunately, uh, these two events happening together was the important um, purpose or foundation. Um, anytime a technology of this nature is utilized somewhere in the universe in conjunction with very intense radiant energy of the sun, uh, many different anomalies can take place. Um, and, and again, we don't want to confuse or go into too much technicality on this. But one of the considerations um, that, that comes to the top of our minds is plasma. Many of you think of plasma ships, for example, and these plasma ships travel throughout the universe. You have plasma in your own bodies and, and even etheric plasma that you are working with in your uh, energy field. But plasma is a very well-known state of energy that has been utilized in so many different forms and fashions, um, again, throughout history. And what happens uh, during this period of time was that the radiant energy was so high and so polarized that the amount of plasma existing within the Earth's auric field began to um, increase. And because of that, the interference of the nuclear um, created a great deal of disharmony. And who was doing this nuclear experiment? Well, we would consider them Anunnaki, but at the same time, we don't want to exclusively make the Anunnaki responsible for this. Mm -hmm. And want to preface what we're saying with the idea that every race has both malevolent and benevolent forces and 
are doing things often that are deemed uh, wrong or a mistake. Uh, but at the time, there was a great deal of research being done, um, especially on Anunnaki portals that uh, had existed throughout the universe. And these portals were making very strong connections to Earth, which we might say is the third criteria in, in all of this, because any time that anything happens in the universe certainly is going to affect uh, the Earth. But when portals are open, there can be an, an exemplification of that, meaning um, anything that is uh, moving through a portal from another dimension and being received uh, within the earth is going to be first uh, amplified to understand its frequency. And, and this is an unfortunate fact of why we believe some of the inner earth turbulence created um, disharmony on the outer rim. And was this experiment conducted on Nibiru or some other planet in our solar system? Not necessarily on Nibiru. Uh, much of this work was done uh, within uh, and upon a fleet of ships uh, that existed within the universe. Now, I sort of spoke ahead of myself. Is Nibiru an actual planet in our solar system or is that made up? It is, yes. And, and we... we believe it does still exist and we um, are always observing what is happening there. Um, but you've asked, is it in this universe? And, and the interesting answer to this question is of all the planets that we have seen shift and move positions, Nibiru seems to be the one that has been most um, erratic uh, and perhaps uh, exemplified in this process. And we think it has to do with a great deal of the technology that is available on that planet, meaning it's not just in response to the consciousness of the beings that are there. Uh, there's some manipulation taking place. So we have actually seen Nibiru move into other universes and then come back into this one, uh, it, which is not uh, at all what typically happens um, within the cosm of, of a universe with multiple planets. Uh, but there has been a great deal of change here. Now, there, there are some theories that the reason why the planet Mars is so desolate, or at least we assume it is, we're basing this on what is reported to us by our space agencies, which could not be true. But, but assuming that it is true, and you can verify whether it is true, there seems to be some evidence from photographic evidence from the planetary surface that there was some sort of cataclysm that occurred there too. And some of those ancient stories that were written about this suggest that a planet, a large planet entered the solar system and caused the collision of various other planetary bodies that resulted in Mars, for example, going from being a very lush and earth-like environment to being desolate today. Is that true? And was it triggered by Nibiru? There is life on Mars and, and always has been. And you as human beings actually have representatives there who are studying and and creating things on that planet. But yes, we agree. Uh, Mars is a very lively and lush planet filled with natural resource and a great deal of energy. And we do see that Nibiru was in close contact with it at some point, causing a great deal of damage. At the same time, we know that 
uh, Mars as a consciousness uh, is multidimensional. So we've talked about today Earth and humanity moving into this multidimensional um, experience, which is different than you have had in a great number of, of years. Uh, Mars, being multidimensional, has a great deal of potential to restore itself to its origins. And the reason for this is it has so much access to its own genetics and its own DNA uh, in and of itself, reviving like a technology everything that uh, once was and, and bringing it back into a new state of being. And this is why we think there is such a spotlight placed on this planet. Um, every planet is completely different and has its own benefits, of course. Uh, but the, the technologies here, um, much like we've spoken of in um, Nibiru and even with the Anunnaki, uh, they're very strong and very ancient uh, and they are tied to, to natural resource. The collision that you speak of, though, um, also has to do with magnetics. So anytime a planet is moving through the cosmos or the universe at a very rapid rate of speed, um, it is moving towards something that is uh, polarizing or magnetically attracting its attention. Um, and the reason that this happened with Mars is that there are a lot of similar attributes uh, between those two planets, believe it or not, uh, even though they seem so different and have Nibiru has been so mysterious, we'll say, uh, in your history, uh, they're very similar in nature. So you said that we have representatives from Earth who are now on Mars. Now, are they existing in a physical form similar to what we see on Earth, or are they in a more multidimensional or higher dimensional form? Uh, we would say it's an enhanced structure uh, beyond your capability of living on Earth in a physical body because it has to be. Uh, in other words, those who are living life on Mars are no longer truly human. They've been genetically adapted to be able to work with the atmosphere there and the various uh, conditions uh, but there are also technological enhancements that are made. Um, for example, these enhancements, they are done robotically, but they are also internal and interface with the organs and the breath and, and how uh, digestion works. For example, uh, all of these things have been accounted for. Yet at the same time, uh, there are hybrids who are there, who are human. Uh, there are also beings who are native to Mars, and they are no different than any other ET race, other than that they have their own history and their, and their own characteristics. So these humans and other beings that are on Mars right now, have they been there all along, or did we, did our current civilization on Earth, our world governments, send humans there? Yes, they have been there for quite some time, and it has been a government initiative because there are a great many resources there to also understand and to, to work with. Um, there are both benevolent and malevolent intents here, uh, unfortunately, again, which, which we know is hard to accept from a human perspective because it seems so linear that there would either be good or bad uh, going on uh, in that direction. But 
But ultimately, we've seen, for example, um, ships that have uh, gone to Mars to research and to understand the way the planet works. And some of these ships contain human hybrids and hi- uh, humanoids. Uh, others contain um, different races who are invested and have a purpose or an intention there. So it's across the board, we would say. So if the Earth already has representatives on Mars at present, what's the motivation behind our world governments in sending Mars rovers there to send us pictures and Elon Musk planning in theory, to send human beings to Mars? What is the intention there? Well, there is a vested interest in in creating some excitement about this because while Mars is a very advanced and evolved planet, it has gone through cataclysms, as you have mentioned, and at this time isn't exactly the best planet sustainably for humans to live upon. But What we see going on beneath the surface, unfortunately, is an agenda to remove humans from planet Earth and to make this planet attractive, but to be honest, not support those who find themselves there, which would be a very difficult adjustment in our minds, a completely different way of living than you are used to. Because there, uh, and we'll make the connection because we know it's important to give examples, Currently on planet Earth, there's a a great deal of focus and and influence on sustainability and ensuring that the planet is is not self-destructing. And in doing so, there's a movement to put humans in very close proximity and to keep them in sustainable areas that uh, are very compact and um, self um, uh, sustaining in terms of resource, for example, but may not be the best and healthiest environments for humans to interact in. And this would be similar to what we would see um, if humans decided to actually live on Mars in the future. Uh, it would be a very different type of living where um, those who are planning these um we'll say even architecting uh, these um, living arrangements are not concerned about freedom necessarily or the ability to live healthfully uh, on a planet. Uh, It is more um, an event of putting humans together in one compact area to keep them off planet Earth. So let me sort of rephrase. So are you referring to uh, the ESG, environmental social governance standards that are being pushed forth throughout the world? Right yes, now? We are. yes, we are. Okay. And the building of various um, uh, smart cities like the line in Saudi Arabia, which is a very narrow line where everybody is supposed to live, millions of people. Yes. And the move in the United States to take over farmland and all of these things to essentially concentrate people into very small surveilled cities. Yeah. Yes, we agree with what you are saying here. And and this is just an an extension uh, or an arm of that. And so if, so what you're saying then is that ESG standards and these things are not only about depopulation uh, of the earth, but they're actually preparing humanity to live off planet on Mars in an environment where they're 
concentrated into very small pockets or in lying cities, perhaps underground. To live in an artificial way. Because if humans were to go to Mars today, they would be living in a very highly technological and artificial way in order to survive and, and to maintain their lives as they were able on planet Earth. And, and this is where we see this timeline moving in, in all directions. It's to create an artificial type of living environment as opposed to one that is organic and real. And is that also why we have a very strong transhuman movement on the planet today where we're moving more and more? And again, Elon Musk, who a lot of people think is a very positive influence on the planet today, is working on a lot of these technologies, for example, to implant chips in people's brains. And even today, most people don't realize that they wear a smartwatch or even a smartphone or an iPad. We are to some degree becoming more integrated with technology. So uh, other than the fact, of course, the monetary benefits of the companies producing these products, what you're saying, if I'm understanding correctly, is this is actually part of a larger agenda to integrate the human body and being and experience with technology, ultimately to move them off planet, to live on Mars. This is not the entire agenda, but it is a piece of it, in other words. So so what we see about this Mars initiative is it is somewhat like the research that was being done in the universe that caused the great cataclysm of the flood. It isn't a deliberate focus on moving everyone in that direction, but it is a facet of that um, initiative or, or intention. And yes, to live artificially and technologically is to take humans out of their true divine blueprint and, and connection to nature. So if we were to go back to the origins of Mars in a time in which it was very lush and full of nature and energy, we might say it would have been more conducive to humans living on that planet than it even is today. So, so to choose it as an option at this time shows you that perhaps the intention isn't a positive one. So moving to, well, what's the underlying reason? Is it just simply depopulation or is it that they want to keep the earth for just a few handful of, um, let's say elite people to, uh, to live on and everybody else should move to this, planet where they have to live in isolation? Well, this is a very lengthy topic for us to explain because, of course, uh, it is a multidimensional event. So well, we might say that those who are wrapped up in implementing these things may have personal motivations having to do with um, uh, financial abundance, for example, or contracts and agreements that they have made with others for land. Uh, certainly there are a group of malevolent human hybrids that are attempting to claim the earth as their own because their planets and their home star systems have reached such a state of cataclysm that they are no longer able to call them home. But ultimately what we see happening today and, and playing out uh, across the board is this. Whether it's depopulation or uh, a technological type of control, what 
the goal is, is to create a weaker human structure, one that is more programmable, uh, one that is less conscious and acting outside of its own will. So such that the, the population of the planet will move very easily in the same direction, the direction that those in power wanted to go. So while we might say there is, um, motivation uh, for depopulation and taking humans off planet and sending them to Mars. Uh, ultimately, the ones who remain here need to be in such a state of trance that they are agreeable to whatever those in power decide. And were the various things in the last few years, such as 5G and the vaccine, part of creating a programmable environment within the human physiology. Absolutely. All of these things contribute to what we are speaking of. But remember, they're coming from somewhere. So that that crescendo or collision of timelines, it is relevant here because history will repeat itself. But those who are aware of how this works can take advantage of the energy of those timelines and focus them in their own interests. And this is what we see more um, in terms of what's happened over the last couple of years. Uh, certainly, we can break all of these timelines and experiences apart, and, and we can share why they were forced on the population or, or why they were important, but they all have the same common thread, and that is to uh, lower consciousness, to weaken the human body, and to put humans in a state of trance such that they are able to receive messages from beyond themselves to do things that they wouldn't naturally do. And, and and we could say this is taking you backward in time because there has been so much progress and so much evolution. And, and we'll take you back to our um, original statements about the encapsulation uh, that couldn't have been removed unless humanity reached a certain threshold of consciousness. We are not the ones who decide to do that. You are the ones in control of how the earth moves through these various changes. But just like that encapsulation was disintegrated and new a new grid system was put in place and connections to the universe were made, uh, the earth can go back in time. Now, as we say this, we're, we're cautious because we don't want to seed fear. And, and we want to also include that we are hopeful because we are seeing so much in the way of positive change internally within humans, which is always the first start to that external change, even though it seems to be lagging in its manifestation. Now, at the present moment in our linear experience, there are substantial amount of riots taking place, for example, in Paris. And a lot of people feel like this is a genuine revolution. Explain to me, is this a genuine revolution of the people or are those people being manipulated using the vaccine and 5G and other perhaps frequency technologies to actually produce that riot for the purpose of this larger agenda? Well, it is not to say that the people who are involved in the riots are not angry. And, and so we want to say this first because we see a great deal of anger welling up within humans as they awaken to things that they know are a part of this agenda that we are speaking of. So, so the true and raw anger and desire to protest is there. 
Yet the organization of it at this massive of a scale and the amount of destruction that you're seeing could only be enhanced technologically. Because humans who are truly conscious and aware of what they are doing do not have it in them to destroy their own earth. Uh, ultimately, there's always something unnatural that's causing that to happen. And whether it is um, the uh, controlling of, of minds or the amplifying of certain emotions or, or the seeding of messages, uh, all of that is relevant. At the same time, we do want to mention that the collective we've spoken of, the one with malevolent intent, that is human hybrid and attempting to reclaim the earth as its own, uh, has a very significant army of humans working for it who are at varying levels of realization of this, meaning some of them are deliberately orchestrating events like this with groups of others because they are receiving some financial benefit. Uh, and others are not even aware that they are a part of that army, yet going out and, and manipulating the um, human experience regardless. So so, so certainly these te technologies have a profound influence uh, on what is happening. So we hesitate to say that it isn't real because we know that it's actually um, um, taking the emotions of a human soul and using them as an agent to physically act beyond itself. And is the, uh, just to, you know, to call me from on the wrong track, but it, it, what is the intention behind creating such a big um, protest or destruction in one particular area? Is it to further what we were discussing earlier, earlier, moving people into smart cities in that regional area, for example, um, or just simply to test out these technologies that they've developed to see how well they can control people or some combination of all of those things? It is a combination. There, there are many different uh, avenues and uh, we'll say goals embedded in these decisions, but uh, very uh, rich areas that are full of history um, and especially have uh, underground passageways that are very ancient and, and very rich in energy are revered um, by those who understand them. So again, um, we're looking at areas that are being destroyed that have value to those who are destroying them. And the question might be then why would they be self-destructing? ultimately, because they are meant to be rebuilt in some way. And there's meant to be ownership of those natural resources. So we're seeing a clearing, a deliberate clearing of the earth in certain areas, knowing that beneath the ground, uh, there's still a great value there to be capitalized on and to build back up again in such a way that there is complete and total ownership. Uh, smart cities, as you have mentioned, it, it's a side feature, we think, of, of what you are speaking of. Uh, those are meant to be implemented anyway. But what we really want to focus your attention on um, are the, the, the history, uh, is the history and the natural resource available in those areas because these are going to be the targets 
of many of these destructive acts such that those who are creating them can come in and claim them as their own. Is this similar to what happened in 1666 in London, where there was the, the Great London Fire, I believe it was 1666, where um, which ultimately seems to have been the government itself that set those fires in order to get people to surrender their property and eventually was um, the ability for human beings to own property was taken away at that time. Uh, and became essentially owned by the state. Is this something similar that you're describing as taking place in Paris? Absolutely. We, we agree with what you're saying here. And, and even, even it goes beyond this a bit because it isn't necessarily that the people there lost ownership of their property, but who would want to remain in an area that has undergone so much destruction? So for a period of time, there is no attention placed on that area at all. There's simply deep sadness and and a mass exodus uh, from these various areas. And that leaves them wide open to be capitalized upon. You mentioned that these areas, such as in Paris, have underground um, ancient sites. And um, now... Is there some archaeological value there, meaning there are ancient cities with technologies down there? Or um, you also mentioned energy, and is that referring to ley lines, or what do you mean by energy? So so many different reasons that these areas would be considered valuable. Uh, for example, in Paris, uh, the catacombs, uh, these underground passageways that are assumed to be in reverence of those who have passed on. They are actually connecting various important ley lines and running parallel to them. Um, There are areas of the catacombs that have been secluded and shut off from humanity that were actually revered as healing chambers and sound chambers, for example. But you'll also notice that this area is rich in history um, containing the the path of the Christ, as well as even extra dimensional and extraterrestrial um, visitation where obelisks, for example, have been left behind, showing that these were important power points and free energy devices were created here. So so it isn't typically one thing uh, that's causing these areas to have a spotlight placed on them. Um, it's typically multiple things. You're saying they're obelisks underground or they're obelisks above ground? There have been obelisks above ground in this area. Unfortunately, they are no longer seen in that light. And some of them have been buried underground because of all of the geographic changes that have taken place. And these ancient catacombs and such that you mentioned, obelisks and so on, were they concentrated in these areas because of ley lines? Is that the energy you're referring to? Yes, exactly. There were power points that were mapped beneath the earth by ancients who understood very well the connection between the core and and various important locations. Uh, And because of this, there was a great deal of visitation by those considered masters. Uh, There were um, intergalactic architects that would bore within the earth or create temples, for example, on top of these areas 
to capitalize on the richness uh, and the properties of the energy. I want to go back to our earlier discussion about the encapsulation of the Earth. And so the Earth was encapsulated because of the extremity of the kind of things that were taking place here to sort of prevent it from causing too much harm in the universe. Am I on the right track so far? Uh, Yes. So why would Nibiru not have been encapsulated when they were conducting all these experiments and still are that are causing harm to the universe? Well, this is an excellent question because ultimately any time that something like this is done uh, in the universe with a specific planet, uh, it must be completely different because every planet is a completely different constitution and an elemental being and consciousness. If we were to encapsulate Nibiru, for example, it would have never worked because the vibration and dimension of that planet is completely different. And remember, uh, the advanced technologies there, um, they are to scale of, of our 12th dimensional knowledge, meaning uh, they are very advanced in terms of their ability to um, um, eradicate um, any type of encapsulation like this. So, so what we often do in these situations is we observe, uh, we research, we attempt to um, deflect any timeline energies that we see having the potential to skew timelines in a certain direction, meaning um, if we see Nibiru in close proximity to a planet like um, Alpha Centauri, for example, um, we can use certain technologies and advanced protocols to attempt to support that. But mostly we do what we do here on planet Earth. Um, we raise vibration. So anytime we see an anomaly like this taking place, which we can't account for all of them, and and, and this is an important note, um, we would um, do our very best to raise the consciousness of the planet affected so that they can work out the issues at hand. But but we, uh, even though uh, we are an assembly of 12-dimensional beings, we do not know it all. We are still learning. In fact, we are discovering so much still about how the universe works and how we are able to support um, evolution throughout space and time. It is not a perfect art. They help me understand this concept because from my perspective, a 12th dimensional consciousness should be pretty well advanced in terms of consciousness. It's certainly well beyond third to fifth dimension as most human beings would be functioning in today. So why would a 12th dimensional consciousness on Nibiru that's developing 12th dimensional technology even want to pursue something that would cause harm on the, in the universe? Well, the dimension is never the consideration for something good or bad. But remember, it is a scope of options. So, so let's put this into context on the earth. You might believe that everyone who exists in the fifth dimension or who has awakened uh, within their lives is going to use that consciousness and awakening for good things. But is it, is, it isn't necessarily... Um, uh, coinciding in that way because free will exists throughout the universe. And, and what that means is a very conscious soul can choose to create things that are not consciously aligned or heart based. Um, it is beyond the consciousness. It has a great deal to do with the evolution of that soul. 
And we're not necessarily saying that the technologies on the bureau today are negatively intended. Remember, we're going back in time and back in history when we are speaking about this nuclear event or experiment. Um, there's been a great deal of evolution that has taken place there. But Nibiru is an interesting dichotomy of, of beings and entities and multi-dimensions because it changes so rapidly. Remember how we spoke about the proximity of planets and their intensity of influence. Imagine moving through the universe at such a rapid pace that those influences are very erratic. So, so what we've seen is a lot of chaos on this planet in terms of growth and then decline and beings who are more malevolent and those who become more benevolent. Um, the planet itself, it, it is uh, operating at a very rapid pace and high speed. And that isn't always a positive. Just because something is at a higher vibrational speed doesn't mean that it's directing energy in a positive way. Another concept I want to discuss that we talked about earlier was you mentioned that 12, 13,000 years ago, the Earth was closer to the great central sun. Help me understand when you use the term great central sun, are you referring to the, the great central sun in the center of the Milky Way galaxy or some other multidimensional concept? Yeah, yes, we are. We are speaking of that sun. There are multiple suns throughout this universe. Uh, some of which have um, no longer retained their strength or their position and and others uh, who have. And the great central sun, even though it exists in the Milky Way, as you mentioned, is not always the location. This is not always the location it has been in. In fact, um, it is such a strong um radiant energy that regardless of its location uh, can have an impact on a planet that is not within its range. Um, the reason that we coined the great central sun as being important in, in Earth's manifestation has a great deal to do with its influence throughout the universe because what we see is the formation of a core coming together from multiple different resources, crystalline element, rock, for example, uh, molten fire blending together into a living, breathing consciousness. And the great central sun supported in this endeavor. Is the Earth actually part of the Sagittarius galaxy or the Milky Way galaxy and the two are blending together? We think the two are blending together and, and we don't really consider Earth a part of one or either exclusively. In other words, there have been times throughout your history where Earth has been in alternate positions, even though we know the scientists on your planet are, are explaining differently because those who used to map the stars, those who are using uh, an auricular type of vision and those who are actually philosophers in ancient civilizations understood that their movement was very important. And if they were relegated only to one area of the galaxy would fail in their evolution because evolution requires a, a constant 
change to take place within an entity, a planet, a being, a consciousness. So this movement is extremely important and will always be. So when you say that we were close to the Earth's central sun, and let me just carry this thought for a moment to make sure I'm on the right track, you're not meaning from our very third dimensional perspective that let's say the Earth is moving through space in the Sagittarius galaxy and it's becoming part of the Milky Way galaxy. And so at certain times it may be closer to the central sun at other times. Are you suggesting that that movement where it's closer at certain times and farther away, like right now, um, is more of a multidimensional thing, meaning it's appearing and disappearing from different parts of the galaxy? We agree with what you're saying somewhat. Um, there is inevitably movement. So there is some physical movement of planets and stars, even though we know when you are mapping them from the Earth, it does not seem that way. And remember, we're saying even the slightest movement, it, it makes a tremendous change. But the Great Central Sun is more of a multidimensional radiant energy that is directing itself um, instinctively to planets and vibrations that are important for it to uplift and heal. Um, and yes, certainly the Great Central Sun has been present in certain civilizations and even visible at times and not. Uh, this has to do with the dimension that you are in. So when you move through dimensions, uh, it is very similar to consciousness. What a human would perceive is more options. What you might see on the planet is more deliberate physical and etheric change. And a great example of this, of, of what we're speaking of, is understood as the mandala effect. Uh, those of you who have jumped timelines very quickly and gone from one reality to another might notice that the reality that you're in reassembles in a completely different way. Even though all the elements are there that you remember from before, there is um, a different priority or a different order to those elements. And this is because ultimately, as material and energetic beings, you are holding everything in place through the holographic um, perception that you have. So if the third dimension vibrates in a slower speed than the fifth, what happens is when everything transfers with you into that dimension, it's going to slightly change. And, and we have to apply this analogy to what we're speaking of in the greater universe. So if the Earth is all of the sudden um, a seventh dimensional planet, that would mean that every perception that humans have of the greater universe of planets and stars would adapt in some way and change to meet that dimensional reality. Okay, let me let me simplify this concept in a more fundamental way to to make sure I'm on the right track. Um, so let's say there are two different dimensional potentials, but I'm not going to give them a dimensional number just for simplicity's sake. This is called them um, dimension A and dimension B. And in let's say in dimension B, the Earth is very close to the central sun, and in dimension A, it's very far away from the central sun. And I, as a human being who's having my human experience, may switch from 
timeline A or timeline B at any particular time. And if, let's say, the whole collective consciousness of the Earth were to switch from timeline A to timeline B, we may wake up one day actually being closer to the sun, our central sun, when the previous day we were actually not. And so no physical movement took place. We just simply switched from one version of reality to another. And that's what you're saying actually happened. Yes, and, and we'll we'll add to this um, with our analogy of the poles because that movement of the earth, that shift in the poles is always going to result from that drastic of a change from dimension A to dimension B. Uh, it doesn't mean necessarily that the entire race stays in dimension B, but, but if that many significant souls have made that leap, then the earth must also adjust. So there is some physical movement that is always taking place. But yes, the dimensional shift is going to make the biggest difference. And, and this is why um, two human souls standing in the same physical reality can experience things completely differently. There are some of you that might be able to see a ship in the sky right in front of you. Well, someone standing next to you cannot see that image whatsoever. And this is because you are actually existing in a different dimension than the person you are with. So let me rationalize the idea from the perspective of the collective experience. For example, right now I may be existing in a very different reality than the vast majority of people. And because of that, I have certain understandings and even uh, life choices that are that most people would not consider being available to them. But at the same time, I'm still walking on that same planet where there are these universal influences, such as there's rioting happening in uh, in Paris or uh, the World Economic Forum and all these smart cities and surveillance systems are all things that are impacting my version of reality. All the while, I'm living in a different version of reality that gives me these options that other people don't have. How does that work? Together. Well, the key here in what you are speaking of in this example is perspective. So, so going back to the example that we have offered, in a different dimensional reality, there are different perspectives. So in a material world, you can be having the same material experience and seeing the same things happening on the news, but the perspective of them will be completely different and consciousness is the key. So, so remember what we are stating here is that consciousness is a bandwidth of perspective that opens the mind to options. This is why some will interpret the purpose of these riots or how they are happening or why they are happening completely different than others. Now, some may think we're speaking of belief here and belief is formed through our perspective so if we have very rigid beliefs that lead us down a path of creating a life in resistance or of um, uh, very stagnant creations 
we probably do not have either the dimensional access or the consciousness to support those beliefs. And, and it is the, the opposite spectrum when someone is in a higher dimension. That consciousness and bandwidth of perspective is offering them completely different options of how they see the world. And it's difficult for us to say that this is going to manifest in different experiences because you're a collective. And that is the anchor, or we'll say the common tie between the physical nature of it. And, and in fact, what we're saying here operates differently on every planet and within every race because it must. But, but here on planet Earth, because you chose to be material, physical beings, and you are a part of a collective, what you see manifesting is the result of the input of millions of human souls and their conscious perspective. But ultimately, we do believe that this is going to eventually change. And it has within the level of your life. So many of you are leading completely different lives and lifestyles uh, than others. And it's hard to to be congruent in that area or to find some semblance of agreement in how those lifestyles are lived. And that's just the beginning of how you're going to see this split of timelines unfold. For example, you've brought up the um, possibility of smart cities. Uh, that is a vibrating thread of potential that the collective reality is facing. But it doesn't necessarily mean it has to be everyone's vibrating thread of potential. Some of you have decided that this is not a positive for the reality you want to create. And because of that, you are influencing the direction that you are going, meaning you'll see options to not live in that reality. And it will not be a collective experience, meaning everyone will have to be there. And that's how evolution takes place. So you're in a very fast-paced evolutionary process right now where the split of timelines is very real. The, the split of dimensions is very real. The collective reality isn't exactly mirroring that to the degree that you want, we know, but in your personal lives, you're beginning to see it. And because of that, you will eventually see the collective change as well. Okay, let me articulate this in a very simplistic way. You can tell me if I'm understanding correctly. So let's say I'm living in Paris and um, there's a riot going on and that's... Uh, and I hold the belief that the world is a beautiful place and everything's great and there's peace on earth. But meanwhile, if my perspective or my consciousness does not match that belief, someone may still throw a rock through my window. Not necessarily. We actually think it's the other way around, meaning... The perspective is what creates the belief, but the reality has to take shape from a more collective input of that belief. To ground what you are saying about Paris, um, what we see happening is there are some souls who aren't taking part in those riots. And you may ask, well, what is the difference between the ones who are and the ones who aren't if there is technological manipulation? Well, even technology cannot interface with a consciousness that vibrates beyond it. 
so. There are some souls who are having an experience of what is going on and they may be very disheartened by that experience and may even have lost faith that the, um, the world can, can shift and turn around, but they are nonetheless not impacted by the same frequency uh, that others may be. And this is a very lengthy topic uh, for us to discuss. Um, and let's give you another example because we think it would be extremely beneficial. Beliefs are not linear. <laughs> Uh, a belief itself is made up of, of so many things. Uh, you believe you are stating mantras and affirmations that there is something that you believe and this is helping you to align with certain things. And in a, in a basic way, it, it certainly is. But there are so many hidden uh, thoughts and emotions and, and subconscious beliefs that form around that. And beliefs are multidimensional and multilayered from moment to moment that belief is inevitably changing. And it's changing because as humans, especially as conscious humans, you're always questioning it. And you should be. There should always be a question as to what you believe and what your reality contains. And this is healthy. It's somewhat like being the observer of what is going on and being a neutral and impartial um, observer that is also creating the experience. So ultimately, we believe that you are becoming ambassadors of multidimensional creation, but no one has taught you exactly how to do that. And and to simplify, it, it truly takes a, a sense of observation that goes beyond the physical, where we can see what's happening playing out, but we can also know that there's an energetic part of us contributing to that. And if we work both sides of it, this is always to our advantage because there's never one belief that is influencing the life that we are living. And we get to play with those beliefs and model that creation in every moment. So in order for us to live in this world and not be impacted by these global situations such as frequency uh, technologies or 5G or vaccines or whatever, the, our goal should be to elevate our consciousness then. It, it should be, but it is more than this. And, and, and we always, um, want to remind humans that you came to be physical. So, so consciousness is our, um, upper threshold and most important, um, aspect of, of what you are, uh, referring to because Remember, consciousness offers a bandwidth of perspective and options. And the more options we have, the safer we feel, uh, the more abundant we feel, the more in control we feel, even though trying to control is not always our recommendation. But also remember, you are a crystalline container for energy and, and wisdom. And yes, unfortunately, there have been a lot of physical distortions and frequencies and toxins that have been added to that container that are lowering human vibration. So a soul can be extremely conscious, but might be negating that consciousness by making contradictory choices that contaminate its physical container and make it vulnerable to the technologies we speak of. We'll give you an example. Um, 
many on planet Earth today uh, have come to the realization that metals are not meant to be in the body. And, and unfortunately, these metals have shown up in your foods, in your waters, in your vaccinations, uh, even in your dental work, for example. And all of this is contributing to disease. But more so, metals interface with frequency and technology at a very high rate. So metals in the body will make you more vulnerable to um, these, we'll say, um, control mechanisms, even if your consciousness is high, which we know is a disconcerting statement to make and, and may put human beings in fear, but it is just the timeline that you are in. In other words, you're awakening to all of these physical components because it's meant to coincide with your spiritual awakening. You cannot just work one side of the energy. You must work both. If you are material beings, that material is made of light, sound, frequency, energy. And if those things are um, at a lower vibrational speed, uh, easier are they influenced by those in control. When you say metals, are you referring specifically to heavy metals or are you also including metals such as gold and silver? No, of course, we are only referring to the ones that are destructive in the body. Okay. All right. I'd like to go back to 12, 13,000 years ago when this cataclysm occurred, at which point you, if I'm remembering correctly, you stated that we were actually um, closer to the central sun prior to that. And, uh, and since, and that cataclysm caused us to, or rather was a trigger point that, um, caused the shift to us being further away from the great central sun. Uh, and, uh, so if that occurred at that time and there was a dimensional shift that took place on the earth and prior to that, certain civilizations existed in this different place where they were closer to the central sun would um, would it be accurate to say that those civilizations didn't actually exist on planet earth because it was a totally different timeline on the earth that we know today we're unsure what you're getting at here but the word exist has to be defined because Anything that has ever been created exists somewhere. And certainly these civilizations you speak of did exist, even if they were in a dimension different than the one that you stand in today. We think the question is access, uh, because we know that that is what many humans crave. They want access to the history, to the knowledge, to the understanding of of how these events played out. And, and ultimately that has to do also with a match of vibration. So so you believe that history is hidden from you or something was here or it wasn't here or it vanished or it was uh, destroyed. When actually energy that is created is never destroyed. Uh, it exists in a form different than you are able to perceive and vibrationally match. So as awakening happens, what you're noticing is a great deal of ancient knowledge is beginning to resurface and uh, disclosure, for example, is beginning to happen. And that's not because you have won the argument to release this from those who have held it back from you. It's because you've become the people 
who are now able to interface with it in a very um, physical and logical way. When I say exist, well, there's no question that there are plenty of archaeological sites that exist on the earth today in my form of what I mean exist, meaning I can go there and touch it. So that that have existed prior to this cataclysm. So they've been here before 13,000 years ago or up, up to that point in the very least. So the archaeological evidence is there. Um, when I say exist, I mean if that was an entirely different timeline of experience, the I don't even know if you know books as we know them today probably didn't occur, didn't exist then. But but the knowledge, the information, the um, uh, as far as we know, archaeological evidence is really limited to structures made out of stone for the most part. Is all of that in a different timeline that we don't currently have access to? That, as you said, as our consciousness expands, we will maybe discover those things in our current physical tangible form that I can touch and see with my physical structure. Um, that's what I mean by exist. Well, not necessarily and not all of it. Uh, in other words, there have been relics and, and information from these civilizations left behind that will certainly surface when the time is right and when that knowledge is needed to be understood. But what we must also understand is that a cataclysm of this nature uh, is going to uh, self-destruct a, a great many things. And this is a very, um, unbeknownst to many, technological age in terms of working with elements. Uh, for example, if we use Atlantis, as um, um, the the um, example, many of the um, technologies in Atlantis were interfacing directly with earthly elements and using the energy of those elements to create a frequency field or an environment that could either raise consciousness or protect those that were a part of the reality, or in some way enhance manifestation. But imagine a cataclysm coming to a civilization like this that had such a connection to the inner earth. Uh, things would have disintegrated to the degree that their elemental prophecy would have changed. They would have merged back together into those elements to create something new. So, so what we're saying here is those civilizations that you speak of, were they real? Yes. Did they exist? Yes. Will you find all of the evidence of them if you were to look? Not necessarily. Um, for, for multiple reasons. Yes. Uh, they were in a different dimension. So anything that existed in a dimension other than the one that you stand in today is a very hard connection to make. But it can be made and it will be made. And we believe some of that will certainly surface. But but also not unlike the workings of the pyramids, um, for example, where ships would come in and and use um, immaculate templates to infuse light into the earth. Uh, elements were alchemized and changed and would uh, fall deep into the waterways and and support the underground caverns in raising that frequency of the the pyramid itself. 
many of these things have done that already, meaning they have been recycled and, and used in, in other um, civilizations. Well, assuming that, as we're talking about, the timeline and dimension was different on the planet, on planet Earth, prior to 12, 13,000 years ago, when Atlantis existed and was thriving, the technologies you're describing that they were using back then, would those even work today in the current timeline and dimension that we are experiencing now? Well, that's an interesting question, um, because while they would work, uh, would consciousness be able to support them, you see? And so this is why many of them have not truly come back yet, because if they were malevolently focused, would do a great deal more damage. And, and also you have to consider that the elements of the earth have been greatly contaminated um, beyond what they were in that time period. And those contaminants are going to have an effect on the way that these technologies would work. Uh, yet at the same time, we think there's a great deal of knowledge from Atlantis that is yet to come back and will come back, mainly to um, uh, in the initial phase um, restore many of these natural properties that we are speaking of. So if we were to try to recreate technologies that we uncovered from ancient times, say even a pyramidal structure, we're not going to see the same kind of effects or benefits or impact that they would have had in that other dimensional timeline. Well, it depends on the technology. Uh, you've mentioned a pyramid, and this is one we think is very powerful to use in this timeline, actually, because the pyramid, it, it is a uh, vibrational account of the Earth's magnitude to shift any reality, meaning how it is structured is a, a vibrationally sound container that activates a pyramid type structure that already exists within each human. So they could be very beneficial in homes. Uh, for example, uh, many are visiting ancient pyramids today and having incredible accounts of, of awakening and healings. Uh, but if you're speaking of the Atlantean technologies, for example, or some of those used by the Anunnaki, uh, we don't necessarily think they would work exactly the same and wouldn't have a place uh, here at this point in time um, for, for a myriad of different reasons. So so what you are saying would take a more specific um, and direct approach in terms of where you are focused uh, in space and time and what specific technologies you're asking us about. Well, at the moment, there are still perhaps thousands or millions of pyramids all over the world that still exist, some under the ocean, some under the deserts, um, many that have not even been discovered yet. What purpose do they serve today? They're obviously still in our current um, timeline and dimension. We can go there and touch them. But we, as far as I know, we're not using them for any purpose. So what what was the original intention and is it still serving that same intention or something different? Well, each pyramid is its own consciousness and technology, yet at the same time, part of a collective. So so let's take Egypt, for example, uh, because we think it's important to look at each civilization and each dimension separately. Uh, pyramid locations were chosen 
uh, from those who uh, researched the landscape of Earth using very advanced technologies on ships to understand the important crossings of meridians and ley lines mm. where power points and portals could be accessed. Now, each pyramid has its own code, very much like a computer program. And that code is built within the consciousness of the, the technology and is infused in the area around it. Uh, for example, uh, it was written in languages of light and, and many of the uh, images inscribed on the walls of these pyramids um, carry certain codes and languages that, that hold it in a state that it is able to utilize earth energies in a, in a beneficial way. But through time, unfortunately, what has happened is the knowledge of how to use each one uh, has um, elapsed and, and there is no one portal keeper or, or those with knowledge that is that are or is fusing all of this together um, to be utilized in a beneficial way. Yet, if you were to visit a, a pyramid today, uh, most likely it's still holding that connection. Uh, this is seen in the three, six, and nine um, uh, equation. Uh, three, six, and nine, um, which were um, numerologic measurements utilized to capture a certain vibration, uh, make a never-ending connection to the universe and to the cosmos. It is somewhat like uh, a cellular phone. Uh, your cellular phone has a service. And you are dialing the phone to make a connection. So those who were pyramid keepers or those who designed them understood that the connection could never be broken, but the user could actually direct that connection according to their will or, or intention. Of course, the will or intention had to be a positive one. Portals and pyramids could not be used with negative intention, and that was programmed into its construction. Yet through time, of course, there's been some dismantling uh, underground of these various um, ley lines and connections. And this is why you often see certain chambers beneath pyramids having been um, dismantled or uh, deconstructed because uh, it actually takes down the program, uh, the connection to universe always remains, but it can be used in a more malevolent focus. So, so we could go on and on. <laughs> uh, there's so much to learn and to, to discuss about pyramids, but we think we're answering your question. When you're referring to 369, are you referring to the 369 magic square? Yes, correct. Okay. And I know the 369 magic square has been used by a lot of, um, historical figures, say King Solomon, for example, or others like him, for various purposes. Now, take me into your perspective of the 369 magic square. What, what, is, what purpose does it serve? How does it work? It is relational to the connections throughout the universe. In other words, if you were to map out the, the various um, sacred geometric shapes that can be seen etherically, uh, connecting all things throughout the universe, uh, you would see these various three, six, and nine measurements in these shapes. 
Uh, one example of this, for example, uh, one example of this might be the uh, the flower of life. Um, fanning outward, it is connecting all things in perfect harmony. And great philosophers of the time would take these calculations and put them into their own personal technological um, uh, or even metaphysical practices so that they could use them uh, advantageously for their civilizations or for their own personal pursuits. And how would we use that magic square and in our own personal lives? I mean, is it just simply to put it on a wall or to meditate with it or what do you suggest? Well, there are varying levels of intensity that can be uh, capitalized on when working with this number sequence. Um, in, in certain civilizations, for example, it was a consideration in ancient architecture where the space uh, within a dwelling was actually holding a universal frequency. And in so doing, holding consciousness at a very high rate and also uh, sustaining health and a connection to the divine. But in today's world, we think it's a bit more difficult to implement this into space. So bringing it into your awareness, studying it, for example, or, or having it in a, in a visual uh, in your home uh, can be focused on deliberately in meditation and uh, intention can be placed into it to receive a mm, uh, response, uh, we might say. It isn't necessarily a manifestation tool. Uh, we see it more as a communication device. And when we say communication, it has less to do with messaging and more to do with working in the fullness of energy to your highest capability. Uh, for example, many of you today uh, are attempting to manifest and, and you are practicing certain things to um, create a certain result. Yet that result is something so physical that it doesn't account for all of the possibilities that are best suited to your divine plan. And that's what universal energy does. It works with your own energetic field and uh, all of the programming that's been put in your own DNA. So, so when we make the connection between the coding of a pyramid and the pyramid being within you, we're literally speaking of the microcosm of the macrocosm here. So, so perhaps what we're saying is working with three, six, and nine and in a configuration, whether it be in meditation in your home or in your space, you're opening up potential to the greater universe, working with all of the capability of your energy and having that unbroken connection constantly supporting you, whether it's in health, wealth, relationships, or even self-knowing. And, um, and, and so when you're saying 369, using it in your home environment, let's say, would the manifestations of a 369, such as you mentioned the flower of life pattern radiating outward, also embodies a 369? So if you put that artwork on your wall, you produce the same result then? Correct. Yes. It is, it is all in how you work with it, obviously. We believe in this timeline, uh, because you've gotten so away from the incorporation of that throughout society, you would have to make a deliberate and conscious connection to it. While its very existence in space is going to support a universal connection, you truly are wanting your own consciousness to interface with it as much as possible, even as you walk past it. 
uh, gazing upon it for a few seconds every day is going to continue to build that connection. And is there any limitation to the flower of life? You said radiating outward because the flower of life pattern does radiate infinitely, really. But but obviously, if we were to put it in a space, for example, it's on the wall here in this room, it's encircled uh, and encased in a frame, you might say, a circular frame. Does that make a difference? Not necessarily. We think the image itself is as a living um, consciousness, and it matters not if it's encased in something that seems to limit it. It would never limit its vibration. What about including 369 in the naming of things, for example, your personal name or something else? This is obviously a, um, a very strong connection to the geometric uh, configurations we are speaking of because you are sacred geometry at your core. So if everything that you are reflecting into the world is existent in that geometric pattern, it is going to amplify all that you are here to do. So it's not really a manifestation tool, as you said. So meaning we can't use 369 to produce the perfect relationship or financial well-being or whatever the case may be, or even if you're in the middle of a Paris riot uh, or living in that environment, can you use three? You can't use three six nine to produce a more harmonious, safe environment. Um, so, what is the actual practical use of it? The three six nine pattern is an unbroken connection to the universe. So, when you are interfacing with it, it is somewhat a manifestation tool, but not in the way you would think, because you are already programmed within yourself to live a life that you are always meant to experience. But what you want is the highest expression of that possible to manifest in your life, unknowing what that is yet to be. So when we put conditions in the way, for example, we want to use the 369 pattern to manifest something of our desire that has a specific time and, and color and shape, we are limiting its ability. What we want is to stay very clear and open and trusting in, in the path that we've created such that the universe can enhance it for us. So you can manifest a, a relationship using this tool, but you should be wary of putting too many conditions in the way of what that relationship should be because it could manifest in a way better than what you are expecting. So 369 is not really a manifestation tool, meaning to attract something specific at a specific time. But it sort of brings us into alignment with the, the universe in a manner of speaking, and in so doing may make more things available to us at the appropriate time that we as a soul might have chosen those potentials. So let's just, let me just make up a, a random hypothetical scenario. So let's say that um, I'm experiencing financial hardship right now. And, and I use this 369 or maybe I put flower of life patterns on my walls. And, uh, and so I'm just walking by it every day. Maybe I'm not even meditating to it, but it's in my environment nonetheless. And, um, it doesn't necessarily produce the relationship right now, but maybe if Throughout my life, there were certain potential times when a relationship could have happened. Or could it be, let's say, that the relationship was always supposed to happen right now, but by using that 369 magic square, 
the relationship may be a more harmonious one versus one that might have shown up that would have been more challenging, let's say. I mean, how does, how does using this provide any actual physical, tangible change in, in our lives? Well, the 369 pattern is actually assisting a human being to stay more in a state of neutrality. And that neutrality is always going to assist the manifestation process, meaning whatever has been scheduled as an event into your soul's plan is something that can be experienced in, in many different ways. And, and even at times when there is no relationship, perhaps, or there is no money, you have the ability to experience joy and fulfillment and, and support in your life in other ways. So there's a compensation going on, in other words, where it's not that we don't experience what we are meant to experience, but we experience it in, in, a, in a higher dimensional way, such that uh, there's cooperation and especially unity. And that's why you see this design in so many ancient civilizations, because the goal is not as an individual, for example, to be capitalizing upon um, a specific modality or practice with this uh, symbol. Um, entire civilizations were using it such that their divine plans would interface. So if one was without abundance and another was, they were supporting and assisting each other and finding each other and, and equalizing uh, what was necessary for all to live in harmony and peace. Um, that's where we think the most uh, important impact of these symbols uh, can, can be. So uh, it's why they were used on a much wider scale uh, than what you see today on planet Earth, but they certainly could come back uh, and be implemented in a very similar way. So you're saying that if, let's say, in my human journey, uh, in this particular human structure, I have certain experiences that I've pre-planned, uh, and let's say one of those was a relationship, and if I'm somebody who was alone and single, and let's say that relationship was always going to happen tomorrow, um, and if I use this 369 pattern, it doesn't change that outcome but it will change how I experience that outcome, meaning that relationship could be one that uh, causes me hardship and suffering, or it could be a relationship that I see as very positive, regardless of how it shows up. So even if I'm in the middle of Paris right now and in in living in a riot or hostile environment, if I'm using the 369 pattern, it doesn't change that there's hostility happening outside. But in my inner reality, in my way of being, I'm not impacted by it. I'm maintaining a state of peace and joy and positivity, non-resistance, essentially. We agree with what you're saying, but but more so want to remind you that the 369 pattern makes an unbroken connection to the universe. So even if we find ourselves in a karmic situation, we are working more with universal energy. And and um, an example of this might be other lifetimes and the wisdom of those lifetimes that we have lived, uh, that the wisdom of those lifetimes that we are able to gain and we are able to implement into the situation at hand. Uh, what we see today on the planet, unfortunately, is that humans are working with a great deal of what they call karma or challenging events and circumstances, but unable to rise above them. And ultimately, this is because the access, which is their birthright, 
to universal wisdom, Akashic knowledge, uh, higher consciousness, a higher mind has been difficult to achieve, uh, mainly because uh, many of the pathways or avenues to that have been um, either cut off or, or hidden from you. And it is not just this three, six, nine pattern we are speaking of. Uh, for example, your own DNA, uh, crystalline and carbon uh, together create a field that operates very similarly, where your connection to the greater universe becomes stabilized and you have the ability to work consciously with more information, which again means you see more options and have more choices. But you will see karmic situations differently. And we think this is one of the most um, advantageous aspects of, of using these tools. Uh, many would say that in a pyramid, everything becomes amplified, mm-hmm. even if it is something negative. And, and that's the pyramid's way of making the individual conscious of what they are experiencing. So there is a little bit of discomfort in order to choose something other than it. And, and that's the beauty of how the universe works. Um, we have contrast. We move in and out of these times of, of, of joy and, and sadness and difficulty. But if we are able to connect them all very logically, we will inevitably ascend and we will be able to, um, uh, remain on our soul's path of, of higher evolution at a more uh, advanced pace. I've been noticing lately that the flower of life pattern symbol is being used in by musicians and other mainstream individuals and genres who appear to have malevolent intent at their at their fundamental um, approach to life and the kind of things that they profess now are they trying to corrupt that or is that even possible to do or are or are we seeing the manifestation of the Earth's consciousness going higher and this symbol starting to in, you know, permeate even the malevolent intentions. But we don't worry so much about the corruption of this symbol, but we do believe that there are some who are using it who are attempting to appear very benevolent and on uh, a certain side of history who are not. Uh, but all of that aside, keep in mind that Universal energy is always going to expand and exemplify the intentions of the soul working with it. So if malevolent intent is the focus, what these souls will find is that malevolent intent will come back in some way in their own lives. And it is not a punishment per se. It is just the way the technology works. So so we have no fear that it could be corrupted necessarily. But there are some who are using it in a sense of corruption to to sway the public. All right. Well, uh, that's a lot of things we covered today. Thank you for taking the time. And we, we can certainly talk for hours more on this topic. But but I think this is a good place to sort of end up. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thank you, Michaela. Mm -hmm. And thank you all for joining us today for another Channel Revelation show. We hope you found it valuable and we'll see you next time. Wow. We're getting really good at uh, noticing um, the subtleties. And uh, that's what Michaela's channel is helping us with. 
Very well done. All right, we get a quick break here. And then we'll be back with music and uh, a look at the stars with our brother Richard. And then we'll have a look with Kay Pacha. And Kay Pacha's very long-winded this time again, 41 minutes. And then Tanya Gabrielle's another 17. So we'll get a song or two at the most. Here we go. We'll take our break and we'll see you soon. Namaste. That was a song for Bill Tane. Ah. Dear Delhi Carmel Squares, no makes karma. life a bite better. Okay. That's the talking stick to you, Richard. <laughs> Richard, we can't hear you. Hello. Oh. There, there, we got you now. All right. All right. Yeah. Okay. Greetings. Yeah, greetings, greetings. Let's get right to it here. Yeah. We got Pluto's, Pluto hasn't moved much. Saturn is at six. Uh, Chiron is now at 18 and Jupiter is at 28 Aries now. You got the North Node at five, Taurus, Mercury retrograde at nine, the Sun at seventeen, and Uranus at nineteen. So, since Uranus, Sun, and Mercury have just crossed over the North Node, this is driving the whole situation here on Earth. I mean, Taurus is an Earth sign. All right. <laughs> And all you blame all the problems you want on Mercury and Uranus operating together. They're now within 10 degrees of each other, so it's, you know, Mercury's going to back up for at least another week. So uh, I'm holding off on my uh, major spring project uh, until Mercury goes direct. And when does it go direct, Richard? Uh, a little more than a week. I haven't zeroed it down. I can, I can look, I can search for it. I know that the 19th is supposed to be a real challenging, uh, day. The 19th, you say? Yep. Alright. Which is next Sunday. Not tomorrow, but the next one. Yeah, well, it's only the 6th. Yeah. And tomorrow's the seventh. So, so fourteen degrees. Oh, I'm sorry. It'll be the next Friday. I'm sorry. No, no, no. Next next Sunday is the fourteenth. So the nineteenth is the following Friday. Sorry. Well, yeah, that may be so. Now I'm so I've lost. Got, I've got June sixth chart. I'm so lost now because I thought we were talking about 2024. No. <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay. Go ahead. Uh, go ahead, Richard. <laughs> I was going to say, I put up a chart for June 6th because that's when uh, Dr. Greer is going to do his thing in D.C. Yeah. 
Yeah. And on that day, you've got uh, Venus and Mars opposite Pluto. Oh. Square to Jupiter. That's so, quite a day to be doing your thing, Dr. Greer. Mm-hmm. And and Mercury will be conjunct Uranus, still in late Taurus. Oh, it still isn't going to go direct. Oh, man. Yeah, well, anyway. But, you know, it's just, you know, it's just Pluto retrogrades starting to press the accelerator. Changes. It's all about changes. All about changes. No, yeah, just nothing stable. Nope. Nope. We're not a, there's not a stable molecule in the universe. <laughs> that is correct. <laughs> so, all right. Well, let's go s- listen to Mr. Long-Winded Kaipacha. See what he can make of this mess. I've already made up my mind about it, and I'm just kind of laying low until retro until Mercury goes direct. That's my plan. Lay low, stay off the streets, stay out of the cities. Don't fly if you can't help it. Don't just don't fly. Yeah. Don't fly on mechanical devices. Go ahead and. You know, go ahead and fly other ways. You know, if you got a good broomstick or whatever, you know, use that. All right. Okay. All right. I'm I'm gonna mute. Okay. These are special times, so this is a special paleo report. <laughs> I'm not outside because I have to pack today and bomb out of here. But um, besides not being outside, I'm going to do a bunch of reading from different books today. I've gotten good feedback. People like it when I read from books. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's nice to gather in from different sources and make sense out of Everything that is going on these days. Now, I did just post uh, a two-hour talk that I gave uh, last weekend. But if you haven't seen that, you might want to check up on that. But this is a special eclipse report. And uh, I know some of you are already feeling this eclipse. I mean, it's like super powerful. We had, you know, the sun conjunct Mercury, okay, and it's coming up to conjunct Uranus, as we can see. Uh, in the chart, if you look at the chart, pause on that chart at the beginning, we have a sun sandwich. <laughs> There's Mercury, the sun, and Uranus, right? Opposite the moon for this lunar eclipse with the Earth right smack dab in between. Okay, so it's a super full moon. 
And that moon is moving through Scorpio. Yeah, and this is happening on Friday. Some of these other things that are happening, I mean, like right now, the moon is in Libra. Okay, at the time you're listening to this, maybe, if you're listening to it on time. <laughs> and then it, she goes into uh, Scorpio on Thursday and comes into that exact eclipse. And you want to pay real attention to this, okay? It's at 14 degrees, 58 minutes, Scorpio. You want to see where 15 degrees of Scorpio falls, okay, in your chart. Because eclipses, as I'm going to read to you a little bit, they really affect the the whole collective consciousness. And they're really only going to affect certain ones of us, okay, that have a particular point, a planet, your ascendant, your midheaven, your vertex or your nodes, some point either at 15 Scorpio, 15 Taurus, so where the sun is going to be, right? Right in between Mercury and Uranus. Or, what, 15 Leo, okay, is another one, and 15 Aquarius. So if you've got something at one of those points, it's going to be square. Now, if you've got something at 15 Cancer, okay, that's going to be a nice trine, to that lunar eclipse. And if you've got something at 15 Pisces, it's going to be a nice try. It'll be a little smoother, a little easier for you. Okay, so just uh, uh, take that into account. For all of us, no matter what, Venus is square Neptune. Okay, and that is happening uh, tomorrow, Thursday. Right? Okay. And... The moon's moving through Libra, Scorpio. She's going to go up there into Sagittarius. And then Capricorn, uh, you know, by the next week's Pele report. But the other things that are happening then is that what? Venus is moving into Cancer. Feminine planet moving back into a feminine sign. So there's a lot of lunar, feminine, water, Venus kind of energy going on. And... The sun is in the earth sign of Taurus, and so there's this is uh, emotional. It's an emotional time, and, and I want to talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, okay. And then uh, it's next Tuesday, okay, that the sun uh, conjuncts with Uranus, which is going to really, as 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 we will see with the Sabian symbols. I'm going to read you two Sabian symbols. One is for the lunar eclipse uh, herself, okay, very strong, Friday, okay, and I'm also going to read to you the Sabian symbol for the sun conjunct Uranus next Tuesday because there's a definite big connection between the two as we will discover. <laughs> so stay tuned. <laughs> this is great. And uh, But before that, let me just give you a little bit from Alexander Ruperti, Cycles of Becoming. He, he, he worked with uh, Dane Rudger, one of the you know fathers of humanistic astrology that, that you know that really brought a lot to us. And I want to read to you just a little bit about eclipses. Yeah, eclipses simply measure intense confrontations with all those things in human nature which hinder spiritual progress by keeping one in a rut, albeit 
a comfortable and happy rut. They are opportunities to use the past and present, all that one has previously acquired, as well as where they stand at a given moment, in order to build a more creative future. Since they always challenge an individual to discard all limiting influences and to start something new, they may be stressful times. Whether or not there will be destructive results will depend on the strength of one's inner nature, the sun, and their capacity to maintain their personal integrity while remaining open to necessary changes in the expression of the personality. Lunar eclipses may be more difficult to face constructively than solar eclipses. However, they are also challenges to attempt a new adjustment to life, to give a new quality to one's relationship to his environment. But an astrologer must always remember that eclipses which do not touch important points in the natal chart are not likely to produce strong confrontations for the individual, even though in terms of world events or natural phenomena, they may be spectacular. So we know that BRICS is meeting in South Africa now, and there are 26 other nations that want to join the BRICS movement, which is moving away from using the U.S. dollar as the world currency. It's always been uh, in the past, and it's about a 250-year cycle, almost a Pluto cycle, okay, the different countries, it was the Dutch, and then the English, and now it's the United States, and blah, 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 blah. but, you know, who's ever using, you know, who's ever got the world currency, which is like oil has been, you know, uh, bought and sold and traded with U.S. dollars, and, uh, you know, this kind of a default really puts whatever country is uh, you got the world currency has a big chunk of power, world power, as in superpower. And we can see this kind of uh, moving away from the United States. Another big bank just fell today uh, in the U.S., and you know, the banks wow. are failing one after the other. But anyway, so you know, on a, on a world level, and of course this is the Taurus-Scorpio axis, And this Taurus-Scorpio axis, uh, particularly with the Sun, Mercury, Uranus, North Node of the Moon, the North Node of the Moon, particular focus, okay, for eclipses, has been going through there since January of 2022, and it's going to move into Aries in July. So, you know, this is this, and I've been talking about this, okay, this is a time of really coming into ourselves, becoming more self-sufficient, okay, gaining another source of income, coming into unconditional self-love, 
We need to value ourselves in order to attract and receive. Venus rules Taurus, the feminine principle of reception, right? Receiving abundance, receiving prosperity, you know, really is a mirror of our own ability to value ourselves. If we want the world to value us, we have to value ourselves. Easy peasy. <laughs> and not only that, now I also want to really point out, like, you know, like we said, if you have these points, particularly in this, uh, you know, uh, in these degrees, okay, the, the, um, the Sun Uranus conjunction actually occurs, I'm going to read that Sabian symbol at 18 degrees 56 minutes of Taurus. Right, so the eclipse is at fourteen fifty something, right, and then a couple days later the sun has moved fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, and it hits Uranus. So I mean they are conjunct, okay, four or five degrees is darn close enough, <laughs> and, and even you know Mercury is still conjunct the sun if you want to get techie about it. So, but this is, and how do I want to put it, you know? Um, Let's look at the sun and the moon. The sun is our will. It is our solar purpose, our conscious, creative, powerful, spiritual force. Kaboom. The moon is our psychic, inner, subconscious, habitual, emotional body and self. So kind of conscious and unconscious, right? You know, subconscious. These two forces, okay, the light and the dark, they're called the two luminaries. They are the yin and the yang. They balance each other. They play with each other. They they just really do a dance together. So what you have to do is you have to go back, okay, to April 19th. That was the solar eclipse, and it was in Taurus on the north node of the moon. Now, a solar eclipse is where the moon occults the sun, blocks the sunlight. So that solar will purpose, okay, okay, is kind of blocked, and new psychic forces. So this is a time of new like underworld, emotional, psychic, inner child, past life, you know, energies come in and it's a, it's a, it's a time of, you know, really new capacities. So it's, you know, there, there's tuning in, okay, to nature, to our bodies, to the waters, to the ethers, to the spiritual realms, this whole feminine beautiful but changeable and kind of spooky and loony and like whoa, chaotic, irrational, illogical. You know, it's, it's, it's all coming up. But these, there's also some gold there. There's a gift. There's a sensitizing to the subtle energies that happen right around the 19th. And so these last couple of weeks now, that moon has moved around... And what's going to happen, okay? The Earth, okay, is going to block the light of the sun 
from the moon, right? So the moon is eclipsed by the earth. That is a time where the sun, and the moon's conjunct her south node, so she's weaker. So this Friday, this lunar eclipse, the sun, the solar power, okay, in Taurus, conjunct Mercury and Uranus, this is a time of the solar will, our conscious creative purpose of spirit manifestation through our bodies. It's it's coming up, and it needs to master. It needs to, you know, integrate. It needs to deal with what we could call the dweller on the threshold. The fears, the emotions of the past, the habits, the childhood, the family, uh, you know, our love relationships and partnerships, our sexual partners, uh, you know, Forces beyond our control, Scorpio, okay, you know, this is a time where we really need to come in and get our act together. So it's kind of a test. It's kind of a challenge. I call it a struggle in this week's mantra, yes? So this is really kind of facing our shadows, and, you know, and, and, you know, it's been a couple of weeks now that, yeah, it's like, yeah, these psychic forces are coming up and some are, like I said, new capacities and they're very beautiful and others need to be discarded as old, useless, undermining energies. So where does this happen? It's in Taurus, baby. We're talking the earth. We're talking our physical bodies. And so I want to read to you a little bit about where these emotions lie in our physical organs, in our physical bodies. Because this is what we need to be focused on. This is what we need to be working on. This is, you know, it's like if you get your inner world together, what's going on in the outer world will, you know, be... I don't want to say mastered, but the real work, right, is in our own psyche, yeah? And so for this, I want to uh, go to my good friend of, of, yeah, Mantek Chia, yeah? The healing power of the Tao and um, the healing light of the Tao. Just one little paragraph. I'm I'm not going to read forever. But it is understanding the body. This is a time where we need to understand our body. And our body is more than a a bunch of physical cells bouncing around, you know. But we have, uh, it's far more complex than that. Students. We're all students here. This is the school of planet Earth. Should begin by studying the internal organs and glands. When problems exist within the organs, Certain emotions may arise. When someone is sick or weak in the lungs, the emotions of sadness or depression may occur. Overheating or congestion of the liver can cause anger or moodiness. Weakness in the liver can cause a drop in productivity 
and the lack of control or balance. When the heart overheats, it can cause impatience, hate, and cruelty to arise. Weakness in the heart can result in a lack of warmth and vitality. Weakness in the spleen, stomach, or pancreas can produce worry, anxiety, and a lack of stability. Weakness in the kidneys can cause fear and a lack of willpower and ambition. So the minute it's a smiling exercise where you take turns and you smile to each one of your organs mm-hmm. and they smile back to you and you do this every day. I've been doing it and it's pretty, it's very interesting. You want to like really do a little, see where these organs are in your body and actually smile down to your heart and smile to your lungs because the smile is very powerful and we know that the smile comes from the sun. (laughs) It is the light shining within us, shining on us, bringing the force of life. (laughs) So smile at yourself and identify yourself. Your body is yourself. It's not some like woo-woo way, way out there. Our spirit being is right here. This is what Taurus is reminding us, okay, that we don't need to like project out to the stars and astrology and the cosmos and the da-da-da-da-da. And our spirit is way out there and nirvana is far away and samadhi is even farther. (laughs) You know, it's just like, no... Taurus and the North Node says, come into your body and experience it right here now in yourself. And so what is degree, the Sabian symbol for this particular degree yeah, of the lunar eclipse? It just so happens to be. Children, playing around Five mounds of sin. <laughs> the keynote is that early steps in the development of a mind seeking to be attuned to the higher level of human evolution. This is a particularly cryptic symbol. It may be deciphered if one realizes that our essential destiny is to develop as a five-fold being, a pentagram, or five-pointed star. Number five symbolizes mind in its most creative and penetrating aspect, while number four refers to the life processes operating at present within the Earth's biosphere. Our Western civilization has realized only the lower level of this vibration five. Mind contaminated 
Remember that word contaminated. The mind contaminated by compulsive instincts and emotional involvement. Some individuals, however, are born with a special potential for development of the higher creative mind and in social circumstances favoring this development. In most cases, they are still, and he puts it in quotes, playing around <laughs> with their unusual capacity. They are in the kindergarten stage of this higher mind development. This symbol yeah, is the transcendent possibilities of mental evolution, which require interpersonal communion in consciousness. And they are evolved through that. The free spirit of true scientific inquiry. Pluto going into Aquarius, right? Stationing retrograde. Is only a foreshadowing of such a type of mind, which demands dedication to mankind as a whole, not self-interest. What is seen here is a future-oriented growth. So here's what I want to bring up. Very interesting that the sun is sandwiched between Mercury, the lower mind, the ego mind, the linear, logical, rational, biosphere, earthbound, here, now, brain, Right? Ego consciousness. And Uranus, the higher octave of Mercury, the genius, this, the third eye awakening, the witness, the observer, the liberated, enlightened consciousness that sees far, far into the future and far, far into the past. And is this, you know, represents that creative genius within all of us. Yeah. And so here we have, and even the song for today, all right, I got this song, I, I, I think it's Melissa sent me this song, and it's Renee, she just turned me on to this guy. It's intense. I almost didn't even finish listening to it. But I stayed in with it because it was so fascinating and it's and it's so Scorpio and it's so intense, but you gotta see this guy, right? And he turns and he and he and he's singing to Uranus and then he's singing to Mercury and Uranus and back to Mercury. And it's like ah <laughs> wow, it's like so perfect for this Pele report, I can't believe it. And, and 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 he comes out of it at the end. And then, of course, I'm going to put another song by him that's a little more mellow, uh, you know. And and you can see that this guy is uh, evolving for sure, and on in a very Uranian fast track Plutonian path. But anyway, so we have this. Okay, we have this sense of here's this eclipse. Right. And, you know, it's bringing up all of these, you know, all of these instincts and these habitual patterns. But there is this opportunity. The opportunity is afforded us 
with that powerful sun, energy, and light to move out of this ego consciousness and, and rid ourselves, step out of the rut of the past, of our childhood conditioning, of, you know, uh, you know, of, of different situations that I'll get into a little bit more after I read to you, right? The sun conjunct Uranus. Yeah. And, uh, this, this, this one's been popping up a little bit before. You may even remember it. I remember I did. Taurus 19 degrees. A new continent rises out of the ocean. The surge of new potentiality after the crisis. The symbol need hardly be commented upon. When the mind has been emptied and light has been called upon to purify the consciousness, freed from its attachments and contaminations, a new release of life can emerge out of the infinite ocean of potentiality, the virgin space. What would it be used? This uh, suggests how to approach whatever new phase of life has not only been hoped for, but actually confirmed. The technique is simply to allow the infinite potential to operate in unconstrained spontaneity. This means to have reached a state in which the conscious, rational ego is no longer a controlling factor. Is that the sun conjunct Uranus or what? It's moving away from Mercury. Okay, the conscious ego, lower mind, okay, concerned with this daily reality and it's moving into Uranus, which is, you know, spontaneously creative, breaking free, liberating and just allowing ourselves through trust in divine intervention. Yes, in is the powers of life to support us in our journey and letting go of the worry and the concerns and the anxiety and the depression and the moodiness, cleansing those organs, using that solar power light, using that smile to just wash away all that bullshit. So what does this look like? What is this, you know, what is this, how do we apply this, right? Well, where is it going to come up? Okay. It's going to come up in a number of different places because this is happening on the Taurus-Scorpio axis. So, you know, the number one place, the most intimate place is in our most intimate relationships, our sexual relationships, 
okay, where we have, you know, Scorpio alchemically merged and united with another, okay, and they are in us, you know, psychically, not only through sexual fluids, which is a, a karma sharing, okay, but so it's it's very much so in, and, and what is the call? No more codependency. Yeah, the call is to, like, come home to, it's my heart, it's my organs, it's my body, it's my survival, it's my ability to love myself, irregardless, okay, of what people project onto me, or the shadows that they, you know, see, or what, blah, blah, blah. it's like, I need to come home to my innermost self. My God, that's the name of a workshop that I'm doing. <laughs> I think it's in Spain in September. Check it out. But this this coming in, okay, this this like you know, really, and and, and you know, I'm not going to go into that. But where else? Finances. This is also the money axis. Okay, and this is also a situation of, you know, yes, there are forces beyond our control, Scorpio and the moon and, you know, uh, 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 you know, a global currency and, you know, the CBDCs of the digital currency and the, you know, all the stuff that's coming in with the whole banking and inflation and the economics are going like so bonkers. And the world could turn topsy-turvy upside down and it could cause a lot of people to freak out. But it's just like, okay, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm bigger than that. Spirit is more powerful than that. So even though the boat is rocking on the waves of the ocean, I've got a nice life jacket. I've got a nice, you know, something to hold on to here. Yeah. And what I'm holding on to is the spirit of life. Yeah within my truth, within myself. Knowing that I have a purposeful existence, that I incarnated at this specific time, and I am right where I need to be right now, and I can be in the moment and be spontaneous and allow the new me, allow the change. This is a big change. Allow yourselves to change by letting go of what maybe got you this far or has used to be your security or used to give you an identity or used to, used to, used to, used to. This is a new opportunity for a new identity, for a new phase. So it's time to restructure Okay, you, you know, your finances, your income, your job, how you sustain yourself, how you survive, and open yourself up to new opportunities in communion with other people, like the Sabian symbol said. Yeah. Without codependency, this is, you know, this is, it's like a new way of doing relationship. So these relationships need to alter and change. Okay, and it's going to be uniquely different for each and every one of us because we're all at different stages. We're all in different places of our evolution. This may be a place where, you know, you are single and you need to, like, let go of your fears. 
okay, and trust, you know, someone to open and to be vulnerable. You may be in, okay, a relationship that's no longer serving you or working with you, and you may be dealing with fears about can I make it alone or I don't want to hurt anybody or, you know, feel guilty or, you know, break a commitment or what object. You know, you may want to move into polyamory, but then you're afraid of the shame or the blame that you're going to get from this, that, or the other, you know, religion or family or other, the, yeah, so there's all these different, you know, fears that can come up. And these are the dwellers on the threshold that may be preventing the highest expression of your truth through your body, through your life. It may be even moving to another country, changing houses, okay, changing jobs. And, you know, it's like you want to just kind of look at the whole situation as the, the purpose. The purpose of, this, of the situation is for you to look at your emotions. <laughs> it's a setup. We're just all being set up to evolve through self-discovery, through knowing ourselves and through knowing what's holding us back. That's what it's about. You know, we're not going to, you're not going to die. And maybe you will. Maybe it's time for you to die. And, uh, and, and your soul is going to come back again in another way, in another time, in another place to do it, you know, do it all over again in, a, in an even better situation or whatever. But it's letting go. And yeah, it can be letting go of life. It can be letting go of, you know, fears around death. It can be letting go of, you know, just, yeah. You get the idea. <laughs> so, here is the mantra for today, right? The struggle that lies within my soul is bigger than what's out there. For I must conquer the demons of doubt by facing all that I fear. One last note about this before I let you go. Fear comes in many ways. It doesn't have to be some kind of like phobia or where you wake up after a nightmare or, you know, you, you know, something happens and, you know, you get overwhelmed with emotions and this, that and the other thing. And yeah, it's not all in that realm. And this is the tricky part. The ego is very smart. The ego is very tricky. And it can come in the form of logical, rational, if I quit this job, I'm not going to have, you know, the money that I need to pay my mortgage. So the fear, okay, of not surviving, the fear of not being supported by life, the fear that I am not valuable enough for, for life, like I'm, like I'm separate from the, the, the tapestry of life, the web of life, like I'm a, you know, I'm outside, can, you know, can just, you know, be so deep, so suppressed, that the, and the, and the mind, we make up stories to justify our 
fears. So I encourage you to look at your stories and know that they are stories. Know that the ego is making up a story to rationalize and justify. Sometimes it's rationalizing and justifying you not changing. And this is when shit happens. When we are so caught in our story and, and our mercury mind has, you know, made a whole big bullshit that Uranus comes in, okay, and you get fired <laughs> or your bank closes or your, you know, spouse leaves you or your, you know, so what, what the, the idea here, okay, is, and this is where the, it, it just really comes into, you know, this place of penetrating and really dealing with the demons of doubt. And look at what you doubt. You know, the, it's, 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 it, it can be a pathway down beneath this layer of conscious BS <laughs> into the, the underlying motivating forces, fears, and desires that are, that are the, the root of the tree of your story. I gotta remember some of this stuff. Uh, the struggle that lies within my soul is bigger than what's out there. I must conquer the demons of doubt by facing all that I fear. <laughs> yeah, baby. Happy lunar eclipse. Woo! <laughs> Ready for the ride, baby. Namaste. Aloha. So much luck. I mean love. <laughs> yeah. Luck and love. L and L. Ciao, ciao. Okay, I um, I have tracked down <clears throat> when Mercury goes direct, and it's going to be on the 14th at 11.30, around 11.30 p.m. Eastern. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, a week from tomorrow. Right, so we've got- we got another another full week of Mercury retrograde, and that's Mother's Day, Richard. Uh, okay. <laughs> just thinking, just saying. The fourteenth is Mother's Day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But All Mercury, right then. Mercury goes uh, direct, huh? Okay. Yeah. 
but not until not until eleven thirty Eastern. Yeah, right before the new so day. So the following, so yeah, so the following Monday we'll we'll start with Mercury direct on the fifteenth. Yeah. Okay. So, so I think um, uh, King Charlie picked an interesting day for his coronation. He sure did. It was a it was twelve o two p.m. Uh, London time when he got coronated, and then his wife Camilla got coronated at I think twelve fifteen or twelve thirteen, ten minutes after him or so. Yeah. I'm just, you know, and the, and the, the uh, you know, the, uh, the British people are very divided about it. There were numbers of signs that says, you're not, you're not our king. Yeah, there's some anti, anti, uh, monarchy. Or monarchy. Yeah. They don't want yeah. the monarchy anymore. Yeah. And, uh, Harry, Prince Harry did not show up on the balcony at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was constantly in the background, and then he disappeared and came home on a plane. So he just kind of did his due diligence and showed up, sort of. Yeah. And stayed, stayed out of the limelight, and off he went back home. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know. Well, the brothers are having a big feud. They don't agree at all. They don't like each other or whatever. Mm. I think it's more on the part of uh, of William. William. Yeah, William. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, William's next in line. Yeah, he is. Oh, well. Enough of that. Enough of that. Uh, enough of that. I'm going to go <laughs> get a... Yeah, I got the... I, uh... I got the beans planted in the ground today. Uh-huh. Uh, that's uh, a double a double row, 16 feet long. Uh-huh. Make, make a lot of beans, and then I also uh, I planted some cucumbers in mm-hmm. uh, just in starter pots. So, because I haven't prepared where I'm going to put, I'm going to let the let the cucumbers. Climb on the back fence of the garden. Right, oh, that's good. That's yeah, good. I haven't, I haven't planted. I don't think I've ever planted cucumbers here. I'm kind of planting them for my friend Bill. He, and I don't like the the way they treat cucumbers in, in this part of the country. They always wax them. Oh yeah, that's not cool. And those wax dip cucumbers, they do that for shelf life. So you, when you get them, they're already old. Yep. Absolutely. So don't eat those. Don't eat those. All right. Well, have a good have a good week, everybody. If I don't talk to you anymore. Tonight. Okay. Thank you so much. Until we meet again. Until we meet next week, for sure. All right. For sure. All right, one more week of Mercury retrograde, and it's going to go direct at six degrees of Taurus. It'll be at six degrees. Okay. All right. Over and out. Namaste. Here we go. Here we go with Tanya, everybody. Let's do it.
everyone, it's Tanya Gabrielle here, Wealth Astrologist. Welcome to Star Codes, the astrology numerology forecast of an upcoming event. And in this case, we are going to look at an event that's already in play, but continuing for at least two more weeks, depending on when you watch this video. And I'm talking about the very powerful and positive Mercury retrograde in Taurus. Now, you might think, why am I saying it's positive? People think of Mercury retrograde as a challenging time when computers stop working and electronics have issues. And honestly, Mercury is so much more than, than that. I know we're immersed in our devices, but this Mercury retrograde is happening in the middle of eclipse season. On April 20th, we had the total solar new moon eclipse in Aries at 29 degrees, right at the very end of Aries. And on May 5th, we have the lunar full moon eclipse in Scorpio with the sun in Taurus. So this is a time anyway that is more intensified. So having the Mercury retrograde is going to lessen the intensity because it's taking us inward. We want to slow down. And... But we have to look at the degree number that the Mercury retrograde began on, on April 21st. And that is 15 degrees Taurus, a very powerful degree of spiritual alchemy and magic. 15 is the number that uplifts others through joy, through being able to shift the energy in the room just by your frequency. And the eclipse coming up, on May 5th, the lunar eclipse in Taurus is at 14 degrees 58 minutes, which is literally two minutes away from 15 degrees. So literally the same place in the zodiac. So we have a concurrent area of Taurus, the middle of Taurus activated, the heart of Taurus. And this means that magic is in the air. It means that your thoughts will be refined, Mercury governing your thoughts and your messaging, uh, to consider more deeply how magic plays a role in your life and how you perceive abundance and how you feel abundant. So be prepared for some aha moments, unexpected shifts that set you free to experience more pleasure, more love, more of what is lacking when we only turn to our devices. Now, Mercury does rule the news cycle and communication and media. But if we don't engage with nature and have a balance, which is what the number 15 and the Earth sign of Taurus is all about, then we miss out. We're not meandering the back roads. We're constantly taking the fast pace, get from A to B in the fastest way possible, the freeways, the highways. And we're never relaxing and enjoying the beauty around us. Our mind is too overstimulated these days. So Mercury retrogrades in the sign that Venus rules. And Venus is about pleasure and love. Venus is, what do we value? She's asking, what do you value in your life? So Venus wants us to pause and take pleasure and smell the roses and listen to the sounds of nature and experience luxury in every way, shape, or form. So there is a really delightful connection here to 
everything that matters in life. Taurus is tactile. Taurus is very much connected to touch. And getting away from devices will help us to go to books instead of the online dictionary. When you go to an actual dictionary and you open it up and you're looking up a certain word, you see other words and you touch the page. So your brain is getting activated in ways that it could never get activated if you just go online and find that one word and see the meanings. Because in the dictionary you see, oh my God, there are all these other words. And your fingers are touching the pages and your fingers are connected to your heart. And that stimulates areas of the brain that are very, very important. So there are a lot of things that happen that are connected to tactile luxuriousness, the luxury of touch, the luxury of sound, the sound of the paper, just staying with that example. So you can move into a place where you speak differently because you're hearing more, you're listening more, you're paying attention more to your intuition that gets drawn to something specific, like another word in that two-page dictionary that you just opened up. Your mind is getting a rest. You're immersing yourself now in things that are delicious, delicious food, homemade dishes, that you're creating, again, touching, smelling, feeling, your senses are being used, and you're hearing everything make sound, everything that you touch. And if you only hear your keyboard going all day or you're touching your phone, that's a very limited bandwidth of engagement with what's plentiful on Earth. So one of the things with Taurus is to watch if you feel any tightness here. And when it comes to awareness of what's happening in your body, Mercury needs to be in the back seat, meaning your mind. Not that the curiosity of Mercury is in a back seat, because curiosity is part of the intuitive engagement. But we want to really listen to see whether our voice or our throat area feels tight because that means what we're expressing ourselves with may not be the full being of who we are, the full soul expression. So this Mercury retrograde is moving us out of our thoughts and the fascination with thinking and becoming more fascinated with how the body is feeling, what the body is hearing, feeling, sensing, smelling, tasting, sensing on all the subtle levels, including energetically. And that's what most people aren't conscious of. So when we go to the magic of the 15 degrees, the love, alchemy, the the, the sensual expression, the nourishment, There's no other way to experience life, real life, than with your senses, the five senses and the intuitive sense. The only way you can experience your true self, who you really are, is through the body, through listening to the body. 
the mind was built for a different experience. It was built to imagine something other than the reality of, of the physicality where we live in and the touch, feel, smell. It's to think about life. And that is useful, but the mind isn't useful to experience the present moment. The present moment is devoid of thought. It is only inspiration and intuition. And the present moment is standing with your two feet on the ground. Remember, Taurus is that earth sign. So we can do both. And that's really amazing. We can experience reality and we can imagine through the mind what the future might entail. But we need to learn to use our mind, our tool, for what it's actually good for and not let it use us. So Pluto's moving to Aquarius, which governs the higher mind. Gemini and Mercury govern the lower mind. Aquarius and Uranus, the higher intuitive mind. Pluto's moving to Aquarius, where it is now at zero degrees and about to retrograde, is very much setting us free to not let the mind control us. We need to master our mind. We not, we do not want the mind to master us. And that's really the biggest challenge we have because we are very mind centric with all the info and data overstimulation that we turn to day in, day out. The only time that most people pay attention to their senses rather than the mind is when something exceptional is happening that draws your attention away from your mind and it happens on a sensory level. And that's when we're experiencing pleasure or pain. But even then, we usually don't stay with that experience very long. You know, we go back to our minds and analyze it and worry and imagine and plan and judge and define and form opinions about it. The mind stays extremely busy. So... The only way that our true essence, our beingness, experiences life is what arises in the moment. And all those things are not present moment awareness whatsoever. The imagining, the thinking, the worrying, the planning, right? The defining, the forming opinions, the judgments. When you are attentive, you don't engage in that. You are literally just curious about What's next? You're touching every moment. You're wondering with gratitude, with love. There is no judgment. There's just experiencing. Of course, it's natural to not always experience this state of attentiveness and curiosity. And But we have to make a commitment to experience it some of the time. Because the more we do, the happier we are. And if 15 degrees is a sign of anything, it is uplifting through joy. It is about being happy. Magic. And you recall being a child, the magic. Delight, the curiosity of magic. That's happiness. That's being in the moment. That's breathing in pure bliss and excitement. So once we shift away from thinking our thoughts, it's much easier to be fully immersive, attentive, curious. And the reason is 
Our thoughts contain our programming, and it's not easy to stop thinking long enough to experience that attentiveness and immersion when our programming is going, the loop is going. The only thing that we can do is stop thinking and start feeling and doing and experiencing. So with Mercury retrograde in Taurus, the sign of pleasure and comfort and simple living and being grounded in reality, it's the perfect time to stop thinking so much and start feeling your senses. That means engaging in things that involve your senses. Engage in music, in cooking, in reading, in walking without thinking, you know, noticing everything around you. You have to stop thinking or you won't be able to be in your body, feel your senses, be in the present moment to experience being in a place of enjoyment. Are you enjoying, right? And it's not that your soul doesn't like to think. We have both capabilities, but it's thinking when it's needed. So let me add here now that because Saturn just recently moved back into Pisces after about 28, 29 years, and this is a very important moment because Pisces does govern the shadow side of illusion and Saturn will be there for two and a half years. Pisces is in a harmonious relationship to Taurus and this connects us in a way that is very, very beautiful right now because Pisces with Saturn, the very grounded planet of reality, is going to shatter those illusions. So this Mercury retrograde in Taurus, coupled with Saturn in Pisces, is incredibly good timing because it's the beginning of, Pis- of, of Saturn's journey there. And because Jupiter is about to move from Aries into Taurus on May 16th, Again, enhancing the earth energy and the joy of the earth. Jupiter is joy. This will complement Saturn and Pisces as well in a beautiful way. So notice and experience every word you speak. Listen to the sound of your voice and other people's voices. Focus on everything that you're touching. Pay attention to it. Enjoy being a human being in a body that literally engages in all the senses. And notice what every experience creates in your body. Listen to your body. It's constantly speaking to you. It's telling you where there's tightness, whether your jaw is tight, whether your tongue is tight. Pay attention to those areas. And It's not the thoughts about what's happening. It's the feeling about what's happening. That's your soul's natural curiosity. That's where the attentive goes really deeply. So may you be in that place of curiosity, tactileness, attentiveness, the total immersion of life on earth. So have an amazing Mercury retrograde in Taurus and for more on the amazing month of May. So much is going on that month. Listen to a free excerpt of the premium wealth forecast for the May edition at 
premiumwealthforecast.com. We do a deep dive into every day of the month, the two lunations, the universal month number, and I channel a transmission from the Merlin Metatron Collective as well as a special bonus every month. So you can listen to that free excerpt at premiumwealthforecast.com. Again, have a great Mercury Retrograde, and I will see you in our next Star Codes podcast. Lots of love. Rama, you got to tell us the number to go to our conference call. Oh, 720-716-7301. And the PIN code is 353-863-POUND. Okay, 720-716-7301. And the pin code is 353-863-POUND. Okay, we're going to see you there, everybody. And then we'll be right back here at BBS Radio at the top of the very next hour. So see you on the conference and join us. All right, namaste for now. Welcome back, everybody. I saw some scenes with the uh, waters and the rocks that were where we went to see Swami Purna and uh, what's her name that you just played, Rama? Diva Primal. Diva Primal. She was there with her partner. Mitten. Mitten, right. They were there and uh, we went for a walk uh, in the uh, in the in the rocks, and there was some more. Uh, there was a river behind there, but it looked like they had filmed scenes in the picture, uh, the backdrop pictures from that exactly same same place. Anyway, that's just I picked it up. I could pick that up. But uh, thank you, Rama. That's nice. That sounds like it's a new one. Is that a new one? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So now what? Um, Are we ready to go head towards this one you wanted to do next here? Yeah. Okay. This is called... A psychic paramedic. And we've had her, uh, we've heard her before. Uh, Regina Meredith is the host and Sarah Grace is her name. Some souls may not immediately realize that they have passed away after a sudden or traumatic death. This is where author, medium, and former emergency paramedic Sarah Grace 
uses her extrasensory perceptions and telepathic abilities to ease the transition. Through her personal journey out of an abusive childhood and self-destructive behaviors, she learned to harness her sensitivities and allow these innate abilities to heal and guide her life. In vivid detail, Grace describes many profound experiences as an emergency paramedic and how these life or death situations reignited her relationship with her subtle senses, subtle senses and with the angelic realms. All right, that's where we're headed these days. Well, let's see what happens here. All right, Rama's working here. Wow, that was fast. Make sure it's set nice and the right sound. Yeah, that's good. That's good. I didn't understand what I was seeing as a kid. All I would know is that my mom would be somewhat okay and then get triggered. And in the violent rage outburst, the individual, that soul essence that I could sort of feel as a mother would be gone. I was having a day and I got mad. So I picked up some rocks and I threw it at her and I roll over and I look and there's this chief with a full headdress sitting on a horse. All of a sudden I felt really like a schlep. After my overdose, I went through the UCLA EMT course and I got sent straight down into South Central Los Angeles. Yes. He turned all the way around to where I was sitting and he looked me directly in the eyes and said, I'm going to die today, aren't I? There's as many ways to die as there are to live. Yeah. And there's nothing to fear. It's like taking off a heavy coat. Those of us that are sensitive, it's our time. We are being called online for a purpose. Yes. Like all of this stuff that I've been through makes sense now. Imagine a world in which you were seeing a constant show of lights, moving forms, and hearing voices from other dimensions crying out for your attention. Demons to angels, the noise never stopped. This was the world of Sarah Grace as she grew up in the world. After a very difficult start, she found her way to managing and ultimately using these abilities to help others heal. Welcome. It's good to see you. Hi, Regina. Thank you for having me. Found out we're practically neighbors. Practically so. We both live in the Sierra foothills. Yes. Beautiful yes, area. It is a beautiful area. And you needed that to, to find some peace after the life you had lived. Yes, it's been quite the ride. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So anyway, first of all, you were, I think what was so intriguing to me about your book and this story is that we often try to imagine what happens when we're just jettisoned from our body in something quick and tragic mm. versus what happens when someone is passing away in a hospital after complications and, mm. and everyone kind of knows what's going on and there's some preparation. And so these stories of what you saw as a paramedic are the ones that are not told as a rule. And so before we go into your life, let's start where it started from you and in the book kind of the round, it's seeming round, randomness of life. A young woman named Taylor, 
who was basically clocked by a Hummer in her little Civic Mm -hmm. and where she was on her way to what was to have happened and what your experience was. Oh my gosh. I I remember this call like yesterday. So we're talking about, you know, me being a paramedic, working as a paramedic in the California 911 system Mm -hmm. and being able to use my psychic abilities in those emergency settings. And so Taylor was just a young, beautiful girl driving her car uh, one evening and she made a left-hand turn and got hit by a drunk driver in a hum. It was a big Humvee. And uh, she was trapped and pinned in her Honda Civic, but her head was kind of shot into the back side. And we were having to extricate, uh, having to navigate cut a cutter out of the car. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot that has to happen when we're dealing with that. So was, was she still alive at the time? She was. I could see the agonal respirations, yeah. which looks like guppy breathing yeah. is kind of the final gasp. Yeah. And there was a lot of blood coming from her head. So her femurs and legs were trapped and pinned under the steering wheel and her head was in the backseat passenger side. So her body had kind of contorted. Mm-hmm. And so I knew that I was going to need to access her airway and try to help her breathe as we were cutting her out of the vehicle. And as I was doing that, I began to notice... So you have to understand this is such a high velocity scene anyway, oh, right? Yeah. Because anytime we have jaws of life, it's, and, yeah. you know, there's a lot of personnel on scene. This is a really Adrenaline high, yeah, high octane call for sure. And then it's such a young yeah. female. And then we we're also dealing with the DUI and the driver guy over there. And so there's a lot of facets to the scene going on. And from a high sense perception, I'm aware of all of them simultaneously, which is a lot to manage. It is. But in that, I noticed it starts like fireflies, very, very beautiful to see. Um, and a celestial angel came on scene and just blanketed the entire scene with this calm, nurturing, very almost like silent, reverent presence. Mm-hmm. And Taylor, so Taylor's body was in the car, but her soul had been hovering above. And in my clairvoyant vision, I could see her soul. And she was confused. She didn't understand what sure. was going on because just a second ago, she was making a left-hand turn. And so using my uh, clairvoyance and telepathic ability, I started communicating with her, like you were just in a car accident, you're dead, we're working on your body, this is what's happening. And then the angel came on scene and then she started to look at the angel and ever so slowly her soul became one with the celestial mm-hmm. and they disappeared from my view, at which time we lost pulses completely and yeah. she um, departed from her body. And she was on her way to see her boyfriend and her boyfriend was getting ready to propose yes. to her. As I, I found that out at the hospital after we transported because, yeah. you know, we wanted to, I knew that she had crossed, I knew that she was gone. But, you know, we have protocols to run as a paramedic and we wanted to do everything possible for her. And we brought her into the hospital and one of the police officers on scene had come in and told us that he, he just And it does make boyfriend. it all seem so random. And yet I did an interview with Lee Harrison, the group of Z's the other day, and you've mentioned this as well. Mm-hmm. You've come to learn that we have many exit points. Yeah. There are many opportunities. Many. But I look at something like that and I think, where was the sense in that one? Mm-hmm. I think that each soul's incarnation has so many layers of you yeah. know, karmic and ancestral. And there's so many different levels to it that it might not make sense it to might our not little be mind. Yeah. yeah. 
but there's a there's an organized rhythm to the chaos of the well, universe. I about me if she'd gone on to marry this man, something entirely different, a different trajectory would have happened that maybe her soul didn't want to experience mm-hmm. after all. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're right. We just we just don't know. But watching this whole scene because you were fairly new to the job, as I recall, I wasn't new to the job, but I was not open to my abilities. I was still you heavily open closeted to, okay, there about my abilities, so I had a lot of fear, and yeah. it was so much for my mind to be like. You know, it's one thing just to do CPR on a person. Like, right. to, just to watch somebody die is a lot. Yeah. And then to watch somebody die, like, high octane and be able to see their soul and watch their confusion and watch their, you know, whatever their experience is. And then ultimately their transition. It's like, where do you put that? You know? Well, that's what I was wondering. Um, so that's when you began opening the abilities blended with your paramedic skills. How did that shift you? That is that first experience. What did that do for your understanding of your place really in the world in doing this? Well, I've been able to see, hear, and feel energy outside of the normal senses since I was a kid. Yeah. Right? We'll talk about that. We're going to get that in just a moment. Yeah, no problem. But I, I wasn't, uh, comfortable. I wasn't open with mm-hmm. it and I wasn't educated on how to, how to navigate it. Mm-hmm. And so it, you know, it was a lot. It was really, really hard. For the first number of years as a paramedic, I mean, it just happened. The, the, the energies became like a symphony and I could watch what was happening and I would know what was going to happen two or three paces ahead, which actually came in handy on an hour oh, yeah. one call. Oh, yeah. But not having the footing, not having the understanding, it, it was really hard on me. It's just a person who was just trying to live. You know, it's like, I have kids. You got to go home and make dinner and put them to bed after something yeah. like that. You're like, what do I, you know, yeah. how do I deal with this? After you've watched something so profound. Mm-hmm. So now let's go back to you as a kid. Mm-hmm. My heart hurt reading your book. Uh, you had a very rough start to life. Indeed. And you're... Your parenting was was not the best, <laughs> I think it's fair to say. So let's talk a little bit about, first of all, you were a young girl and you were seeing, not just seeing and hearing, but you were feeling everything and other mm-hmm. people's emotions on top of the circus of energy and beings that you were seeing. So let's talk about how that came forward in your life when you were young and how did you share that with others and how they perceived it? So my abilities for me, well, first of all, I grew up in South Dakota mm-hmm. in the middle of nowhere, um, pre-internet. So there was no just like hopping on the computer and Googling, like, why do I see dead people? You know, and church is kind of the center of the little community. Oh, very, very conservative yeah. Yeah, yeah. area where I was. And so I was just a normal kid, you know, cruising around on my little bike and doing my little thing. And one day I just woke up and the first thing for me was auric fields. So I started to see color around people and around, you know, I can see orc fields around everything, uh, trees and plants and animals and whatever, but predominantly people. And so I just was like, oh, okay, well, there's that, you know, but I was just going to keep doing my little thing. So my experience was it increased over time, two weeks to two months, probably in full duration for it to fully come on for me. But it started with clairvoyance in auric fields and then it went into kind of this expanded state and like sensing ley lines and energy of the earth plane and then I could feel everybody's emotions and I could Mm -hmm. feel their intentions and as a seven-year-old that's startling right and then I could start to see disease and blocks and different you know energy blocks and 
people's bodies and then I could hear their thoughts and then it progressed ultimately to seeing, um, you know, dead people and spirits mm-hmm. a lot of because uh, I was right around the Standing Rock Reservation. So a mm-hmm. lot of uh, native spirits. And that'll come back into play in a minute. But let's go to your mom mm-hmm. because she was really a profound influence on your life. And, you know, people will listen to this and say, but why would you have to choose that experience? But I have to say, I've interviewed a lot of people and it is not unusual to have a really tough kind of road with the parents as these abilities are coming online and you'll be able to pull it together for us later. Tell us about your mom because she had really violent psychotic episodes. Yeah, very, very wounded soul. Um, my greatest teacher. I, I personally believe that uh, the people that teach us the most severe lessons uh, can be our greatest teachers and she was definitely that for me. So uh, unstable, uh, mentally unstable, energetically unstable, emotionally unstable, very wounded. Um, and she would swing. So there would be a nice side. Nice mom. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then there would be the really close, you know, behind the closed doors at home mom. And a lot of rage, uh, a lot of darkness, a lot of violent tendencies, physical tendencies. Well, I mean, it went pretty far, more extreme than you would normally hear. And then yeah. she would try to smother you when you were sleeping. Yep. There was that. And the, I had nail polish remover in my contact lens, almost blinded me. I had a hammer to my skull. And the, the, those were just three of the, yeah, it was like that every single day for the first 16 years of my life. It's just, I mean, unimaginable that you did not choose an exit point. Well, <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a lot, you know, it was a lot to work with because here I was in the middle of nowhere and I didn't have the safety and stability of a nuclear family. I didn't understand why my mom was attacking me in this way and I didn't really have any support or anybody I could. Yet she was your mom and you were totally dependent on. Mm -hmm. Where was your dad? He was a businessman, so he was gone a lot, just trying to like make a buck back in the day. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I think he was doing his best with a really untenable situation. You know, it was interesting when you when you were writing about these um, episodes, mm-hmm. when your mom see, almost seemed to vacate her body. Mm-hmm. And I have it written down some of the things you said her soul would vacate her eyes mm-hmm. and her eyes kind of turned black. black. Mm-hmm. Her field was filled with blackness and shards, kind of jaggedy mm-hmm. shards. Have you seen this elsewhere besides your mother and also... Did you see any other entities around your mother that were feeding off of her, encouraging her, or enjoying this energy she was creating? The intensity of rage and instability or the energy of rage and instability has a very dense frequency, and it's almost got this metallic sheen to it. So I didn't understand what I was seeing as a kid. All I would know is that my mom would be somewhat okay and then get triggered and just turn on a dime and go into some violent rage outburst and in the violent rage outburst the mother or the individual that soul essence that i could sort of feel as a mother would be gone and all i could feel was this vacuous kind of and it's it's amazing how their eyes literally turn black Black. and i've seen that countless times again in the 911 system 
Mm-hmm. But with her, she had her auric field would expand and there'd be like these metallic kind of barb energies coming off of her. And again, I didn't understand. I didn't, I didn't know what it was or why it was like this. I was just literally trying to physically survive at the time. And those types of attacks were so common for me that I got very adept at physical combat. So, mm-hmm. and also evasive mm-hmm. uh, behaviors. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was interesting because as I was reading that, I was reminded of um, a friend of mine who I was witness to a channeling of theirs from a very good channeler. And at the end of all of it, um, the channeler said she was starting to feel very weak mm. and she actually became quite sick mm-hmm. and stayed sick quite a while. But what she revealed to me before, uh, right after the person left the house, she said there was something in that energy field where it was... Um, these geometric metallic mm-hmm. pieces of black mm-hmm. um, that she had never seen before. And his issue was rage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, super common, the frequencies yeah. of rage. And- but it's interesting because you've put, you've put a visual, visual to, it, to it. And that's the only other time I've heard someone put a visual to mm-hmm. it other than that day. In fact, he'd been in and out of mental institutions mm-hmm. because he he couldn't handle the unfairness of life yeah. he'd go berserk when he'd see unfair things happening yeah. lose his bearings and they'd haul him off at an airport and such but he had that same shard like black glossy metallic mm-hmm. field mm-hmm. very interesting yeah so amidst all of this i mean you're you're a very smart woman you're a very disciplined person underneath all this and you turn to um running academics Mm -hmm. trying to prove yourself in school and also then you became a long distance runner but it wasn't working for you with the other girls well ultimately underneath everything i was just looking for safety and identity right like just like anybody i just wanted to fit in i just wanted to be normal and so when i first came out with my abilities at the age of seven and I said something to my family, to my parents, I got the hellfire and brimstone, like yeah. the shame. The, yeah. the, don't ever talk about that or, you know, we'll send you away was the the actual phrase. And so here I am, this little kid who's now dealing with all of these energetics and just so much sensory perception. And when I go to the people that I'm, quote, supposed to be able to depend on, I get the, you know, shame, condemn. And so it was at that moment that I, you know, I remember it just like having that sensation, like something is really wrong with me. You know, why am I like this? I don't want this. I don't want to be like this. And so that began my odyssey and my initial compensation for that um, was overachieving. Yes. And I think as humans, so oftentimes we, we do something to cope with, right? Mm-hmm. Whatever it is that we're navigating or, or doing. And for me, it initially it was overachieving. So I was doing the long distance running and, you know, senior class president and did all the things. But ultimately inside, I was so fragile and I was just, I was starting to develop a lot of rage myself because I was just like, yeah. How could you not? This, this, because it's unfair, the unfairness of life to be treated like this at home. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so as you mentioned earlier, you were also starting to connect in 
with not just people, but with nature, with trees Mm -hmm. and so forth. I love trees. Mm -hmm. So for just a moment, you could talk about, before we go to your encounter with the Native American entity, Mm -hmm. talk about a little bit about what trees were like in your world. Oh, amazing. And so they communicate, obviously, through the mycelial network underground. Mm -hmm. So if you're a clairaudient, you may be able to hear the hum of that. And then I can actually see the canopies communicating to each other and it just looks like a lot of times trees have a golden it looks like um very much matrix like vertical data going up and down the trunks and then in the canopy the energy is very golden over the top and they just throw signals and have little jam sessions all the time and communicate. they just seem like they're these quiet sentries that are here to protect all mm-hmm. you know even the humans that pass underneath right. them <laughs> Totally. <laughs> Even a lot of wisdom there, for sure. A lot of wisdom. Have you been to the Redwood Forest? I have. It's so beautiful. That's my favorite place to be, mm-hmm. is the Redwood Forest up north in California. So beautiful. Any Anything unique about the pattern of those ancient wise ones? Oh, you can just feel the oh, wisdom. Yeah. It's, oh, yeah. You said it. It's ancient yeah. wisdom. Yeah. So far surpasses our tiny little like lifespans and life cycles. You know, to I love just going and holding, touching it. It's me too. Incredible. My sister and I both found out recently... I even had it in my will that when I'm done and this body's done, I want my ashes spread in this one particular there grove up there. Mm-hmm. Turns out she did the same thing and we never communicated this no way. in the same grove. Yeah, there's the giant tree there. She yeah. wants to go where the giant tree is. <laughs> so anybody who has a chance to get up to the Redwoods in Northern California, that's the most incredible place on earth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So now let's go to the day where you encountered your full of rage. Oh, yeah. You're overachieving. You're running a lot. And you encountered the Native American because he would come back and play a role later. Yeah, big role. Yeah. So I was running eight to ten miles a day. I had developed by this point a pretty severe eating disorder with binge purge cycles. Just trying to, just trying to control something because I didn't have any control over the stimulus and I didn't have any control of the physical safety. So I was just trying to control something. And so I would go out just to be away, just to be out of the house. And remember, this is a town of 2,000 people mm-hmm. in South Dakota, you know, way out there. So I would just go way off into the prairie and go running by myself. And I could still sense. So for me, running like was became very meditative. And I didn't know what I was doing at the time. I just knew that I needed to like move yeah. my body and escape the, mm-hmm. the house. But the the cadence of my footsteps and the rhythm of my breath going in and out, I later came to understand is, was helping me to ground and was mm-hmm. helping me to, to kind of transmute a lot of that um, excess energy. But I was having a day. I was not in a good headspace mm-hmm. anyway. And then uh, a little Native American uh, female appeared in spirit. And I got mad because I just wanted to be left alone. <laughs> so I picked up some rocks and I threw it at her, right? And I was screaming at the sky like a lunatic, you know, but I'm just like done. I was just so done. And I just started sprinting down the road because I wanted to be left alone. And of course, I tripped and just like launched through the air and just like somersaulted across the dirt road and all the rocks were like scraping into me. I just laid there. And I still remember because like the South Dakota has a huge sky and this wind, right? And you can always hear like the little, you know, bugs and the birds and everything. And I was just laying there in a heap, just like really feeling sorry for myself because I was like, I don't, I want to deal with any of this. this. This sucks, you know? And I felt all of a sudden this like 
prickling on my back, this very warm energy starting to happen. And it was incredible because it was almost like if you felt the sunrise coming onto your skin Mm -hmm. and all of a sudden everything began to illuminate. So if you think of going from a normal color television to a technicolor television, everything just got very amplified and I didn't know what was going on. I'm just laying there, you know, in the ditch and I roll over and I look and there's this full, uh, I believe he was a Lakota Sioux Mm because that was the tribe of the area that I was in, um, chief, with a full headdress sitting on a horse and he's in spirit. And I was hit with the most profound omnipresent uh, sensation. It's, it was just speechless, you know, it's like standing before God, if you mm-hmm. could imagine what that could feel like. And all of a sudden I felt really like a schlep, you know, sitting down there in the dirt, like, and I didn't throwing know. Rocks at the other <laughs> spirit guide throwing rocks at her. I was like, are you, are you mad at me Maybe. because I threw a rock at her? I'm sorry. Like, I didn't know, you know, and he didn't move his mouth. He, everything was telepathic and he just was staring directly at me and he was holding the staff. And again, I got this message of like, hold on, like, this is hard, but you stay on this path and it's all going to make sense. And it was just like this swirling of iridescent energy. It was so incredible. And then boom, just like that, Mm -hmm. they disappear. And I just laid there again, what am I, 14, 15, you know, just really, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of a hot mess trying to like cope with all of the instability. And then all of a sudden I see this tremendous and he still to this day I've only seen him a handful of times Mm -hmm. he only comes in at those pivotal moments where it's like Sarah's about done like you know he'll come in and just give me that gentle little reminder of like yeah you can do this so now you get ready you're graduating from high school we'll kind of hop through some Mm -hmm. of this and your mother dies. She did. Wasn't it on your graduation day or oh, the yeah, it was just bad. Wow, stealing the thunder, man. Well, she uh <laughs> had a uh non-Hodgkin's cancer diagnosis and diagnosis to death was 6 months. So mm-hmm. it was relatively quick. And now I come to understand like I get it. She was hurting as a soul anyway since she she was, she was yeah, she was over it. Yeah. And um but she had gone through treatment and she was frail and showed up at my high school graduation. And I remember her being in the crowd and then she came to the party mm-hmm. afterwards and we were standing next to the cake. And it, I'll always remember it had congratulations, Sarah in red. And I was standing there speaking with her and she's no hair, emaciated, mm-hmm. very unhealthy, very frail. And her eyes rolled back into her head and she dropped to the floor in a grand mal seizure, right? next right. to my cake right <laughs> and I was just like oh well, like I mean it was just blow after blow for like know. you know and I was like oh so she didn't die she had a big seizure and they transported her but that was the last time I saw her alive. yeah yeah okay right. so you go on to college and now you try to excel but you really are kind of on your own I mean you don't even have the dysfunctional mother situation as a weird anchor in life anymore you really are on your own mm-hmm. and um that's not so easy for you to fit in in, no. in college. Um, plus, you you go to the lunchroom and it's like, oh, stop. You're seeing and hearing everything going on in there with all these other, you know, teenagers and mm-hmm. early 20s. And then you discovered ephedrine. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and suddenly the voices stop. So let's talk about your drug experience going into 
the interesting career choice after that. Yes, yes, <laughs> it was indeed. So my world imploded. Um, it was violent for the first 16 years, and then my mom got sick and suddenly died. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, oh, congratulations, you graduated high school now, go live your life. And there was, like, no preparation. I didn't have any foundation. I didn't understand, like, how to cook, how to, like, you know, function as a human because I had been literally in survival mode. Right. And so then it's like, okay, good luck. Uh-huh. Go over there. And so I was, I felt like I was floating. I didn't have any base. I didn't have any structure. I didn't have any family support. And I wasn't self-aware, self-connected at the time, awash in all of that. And so I had started smoking. I started smoking three packs a day. Like I'm oh one of those God. go big or go home people. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> well, yeah, you can see and, that. And I was drinking and I was just like, you know, trying to anesthetize everything. Yeah. And I had a friend who worked at, at this truck stop. And I'll never forget this, Regina, because he was like, oh, have you ever heard of ephedrine? And it was the no-dos back in the day for truckers. Yeah, it was legal. Yeah, it was yeah. like pure form, 100% yeah. meth yeah. is what it was. Yeah. And six ninety nine a bottle, yeah. right? And legal. And legal. Mm-hmm. Over the so counter. I was like, tried it, and it said take one. So, of course, I would take two or three, you know, because right. I thought that'd be a great idea. And it, the only thing I understood, though, Regina, was that the accelerants, the speedies, those things were for the very first time in my life brought the stimulus down. Yeah. Brought the stimulus down. If there was any, if I did any alcohol or any depressants, the energetics would actually increase and it would get even more intense for me than anything. Kind of like Ritalin to a kid. Ritalin, Adderall. Adderall. That's why they do it for ADHD. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Same thing in the neurochemistry of the brain. It worked for you kind of a little bit for a little while. Yes, it was um, a crutch yeah. for a little while, but it was really kind of my gateway. And I really started to, um, I, well, I went off the rails at like a hundred miles so, an hour. So we'll kind of get through the career choice, uh, kind of quickly because we want to get to when she became a paramedic, some of these experiences you started witnessing and what you're doing today. I want to leave plenty of time for that, but just so people understand your journey and what you've been through. So a girlfriend said, Hey, we should go do a stripping contest. Yes, she did. Yeah. And you're like, and she, you said, I'm in. She's 100%. like, no, no, I'm kidding. You said, no, I'm not. <laughs> totally. So you went and did it. So you had a, you, then That's you're like, happened. now you had power and you had drugs and you had, you had power over your life. You were making money. Money. You could actually kind of see a path for yourself. I went into a world and yeah. it was more of the, the shadowy kind of world, but I could under, well, one, I was familiar with shadow with what I grew up with. Yes. Right. And two, I started to see it for what it was, which is just kind of a game. It's an energetic game, right? Between right. the the dancers. And, and the you were gaming it. Exactly. And you were making some good money. Yeah. And I want to talk about one thing in this because I found it interesting, again, because I was kind of like reading about the energetics of it. Mm-hmm. What you would see coming off of the men when they were in these um, the strip places, mm-hmm. when the girls are doing lap dances and mm-hmm. so forth, Kind of describe, and the entities that are lurking around, give us a snapshot of what it's like in a strip club from an energetic point of view working through the men that are attending. Usually a lot of, um, ruddy colored, orange colored, um, root and sacral chakra energy that would kind of come out almost, you know, towards Mm -hmm. the dancer, so to speak. Usually the dancers are quite closed. Mm -hmm. You know, they act like it's, it's again, it's that game. Yeah, but their field is closed. Their field is closed, right? And then there's a lot of, um, 
alcohol in places like that and and a lot of you know kind of fringe characters with pimps and people like that were on the peripheral of that so those types of people would bring in some really heavy dark energies as well and so the the men it would be very lustful and kind of crude and then you compile it with you know any sort of drugs or alcohol and the energetics just get really messy but there was a lot of that sheen with kind of the silvery Mm -hmm. sheen and the darker sheens um there was a lot of that in there because ultimately from us for a lot of us we were coming from obviously I was very traumatized and I didn't have safety or stability. Yeah. And a lot of the other girls had been, you know, traumatized, traumatized well. or but some of them were just assaulted. students also mm-hmm. and or young moms just trying to find yeah. a way to make some 100%. real money. One of, one of my friends there was putting herself through med school. Yeah. Because minimum wage, she wasn't cutting it, mm-hmm. working as a sales clerk somewhere. Mm-hmm. So for every reason, you all ended up in this, mm-hmm. this place, this place. Well, it had its day and then that was gone. And ultimately you ended up. Um, meeting a man, mm-hmm. uh, Dave, I think his name was. Yes, but it's important to note, Regina, though, because I was in such a fragile state. I was using a lot of substances yes. to try to make myself feel powerful and safe. Yes. And that as a culture is what a lot of people do, right? Yeah. I took it way over here, you know, but a lot of people come home and have a few beers or they'll do a little, whatever they do, because we're all trying to navigate the intensity of this human experience. Yes. Right. So I was in that space playing, kind of playing this game, trying, thinking I was like, you know, getting a handle on it, but deeply insecure. And one night I left the club at five in the morning and I woke up three days later Yeah, in my car in the middle of the state with no recollection yeah. and my pants were down. Yeah. So very clearly there had been an assault. Yeah. And it's important to share this because of what happened when I got home, I just blew, like blew apart like that. That had been that like, was your low point. That was the lowest yeah. for me. And that's when I decided to overdose. Right. And I overdosed on some pills because that's when I was like, all right, that's it. I'm done. Mm-hmm. Like, screw this. Like it was, you know, 16 years of physical violence. You were seeing the light. And all of this energetic yeah. stimulus with no help. And no safety, no love, no structure. And just uh, just trying to survive it. And so I had formulated this experience for myself where I felt a semblance of power and then that got yanked too. And so I was like, that screwed him out. So you didn't die. I had my near death experience and I expanded out Mm -hmm. and I went into this beautiful fractal state Mm -hmm. and it was very yummy and warm. And there was a female energy and her voice was familiar, but I don't know, right? Just, you just know who it is, but you might not know in this incarnation and she was essentially, she was much more eloquent than I'm about to be, but she was like, we get it. We get, we get it. It's been hard for you, right? But if you choose to stay, you're going to be able to help a lot of people with this. Yep. And I was like, at first I didn't want anything to do with it. No, I'm done. I'm good. Mm-hmm. I'm done. Like, I don't, mm-mm. But again, I just kind of was in this expanded state and it just felt so nurturing and I was kind of being impressed upon with what the capability could be should I choose to come back. Mm-hmm. So obviously I made the decision. You made that decision <laughs> to come back. And you went through an awful detox period, but angels talked you through it. They really, they worked with you yep. all through the process. It mm-hmm. sounds like it was very painful. Yes. So you got through it. 
you met a man named Dave, and Dave was, wasn't he a, a firefighter? He was a Pro BMX biker. This is where oh, we get biker. into the whole skater oh, yeah. scene. The, yeah, then you got into the skater. <laughs> we, we don't have time to get into all of the personal part, but, oh, he was the skater, right? Yeah, and we so, did the whole X Games thing before I, like, as yeah. it came on. It was so fun. Yeah, and so you had some fun. Mm-hmm. You had a lovely relationship. Mm-hmm. And then there was a time for you to get serious, and you knew it. Mm-hmm. And life changed. Life so changed. then you end up, and what I'm going to do is, in your book, the way it's laid out, you have your story, and then boom, in the middle, you'll have a story of an EMT experience where mm-hmm. someone's someone is dying. Yeah. So what I'm going to do is take all those and put them toward the end, okay. so we can hear a stack of these stories of these people. Cool. And the trends happening right now. So we're going to kind of jump through your life. Then mm-hmm. you met. Dave, who was a firefighter and you became an EMT or was he an no, EMT? No, that was when I was young. But then we okay. ultimately, we ran around, had a good time, but we were just young and, yeah. and I, we uh, moved to California. Yeah. And so once I got into California, then I started to uh, get more stabilized. Yeah. And Dave and I had split and I was on my own just trying to figure it out in LA. Oh yeah, I've got the name wrong. What was the man you met later on? That my kid's dad. Yes. Yeah. In the book, name? it's Derek. Derek. Yeah, yes. For his okay. privacy. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Um, yeah. And so ultimately I was still kind of in a space because I had gone from the Midwest down into Florida and I'd done mm-hmm. some modeling, some pinup modeling and kind of lived this like wild lifestyle in my twenties. And then I come over to, and then to California and that ended. So then I was in that space of now what, what do I do? But my intuition kept pushing every time an ambulance would go by, it'd be like this. Yes. But I was so scared of it. I was like, no way. Like, you know, I could kill somebody. You were having it whispered in your ear, this is what you need to do. It's never stopped for me. I would just try to tune it out, you know, doing different Mm -hmm. things. But after my overdose, I got myself quite cleaned up. And and during the time in Florida, I got very clean. And when I came to California, ultimately, I decided finally to, okay, I went through the UCLA EMT course. Yeah. And uh, I got sent straight down into South Central Los Angeles. Yeah, South Central. Okay, so let's talk about some of those first experiences on the job. Um, uh, first, before you really had yourself wide open, but then we want to go into the wide open experiences. Okay. So the mechanics of a 911 call are intense. And nobody initially just tells you how it all works. So the engineer stays by the engine, the captain has the clipboard, the EMT is taking the blood pressure, my job is to start the IV and deliver the medications. But nobody tells you that. So you have to learn kind of the cadence of the 911 call, right? And so I spent the first six months just learning the basic. And my my guides, I think, took the stimulus and kind of shelved it for yeah. just a second so because you could it do was your job. so high octane yeah. anyway. Yeah. This, we were working 24-hour shifts. And we would run anywhere from 20 to 24 calls in that time. So there's no rest. There's no stopping. There's no eat lunch breaks. You know, you're just back to back to back calls. And this was in early 2000s. It was a quite volatile down in that area. And so we were having a lot of gang shootings and a lot of drive-bys. And then there was just a lot to, to navigate. But ultimately, I got pretty proficient on scene and that's when the energy started to come in and man I was so mad because I'd finally kind of had a break and yeah. I was like yeah <laughs> I got <laughs> a real job yeah like <laughs> I've grown out of mm-hmm. it little did I know that my guys yeah. were going to be like oh yeah and oh, yeah. then just put the energy through so now let's start talking about once the energy starts coming through and we'll bring up a few cases because I want to get to what you're seeing today mm-hmm. in today's world so there was a fellow named Jason who had hung himself mm-hmm. 
Let's talk about that. So we're talking about, um, how old was he? I believe 17. 17, a young man who was committing suicide. But there was this whole dance with karma waiting. Yes. So suicide is an interesting thing. Oftentimes, um, you know, we were talking about we have multiple choice points of opting out of this incarnation or life Mm -hmm. experience. And sometimes it just gets so heavy. I mean, you know, we've been living in tremendous heaviness for the last couple of years. And there's a lot of stuff that we're seeing now. But this, we went in and he was in full rigor mortis, which means the body is stiff. So he Mm -hmm. had been dead for quite a while. And he had hung himself from the door. Um, and But it, walking into his room, it was so surreal because, you know, his computers were on, his music was playing, there's a bag of Cheetos there, he had a notebook with some stuff. Literally just like got out the room like a mouth, yeah. right? And so strange to, to see mm-hmm. that. And uh, from a soul perspective, though, so his dad called and his dad was hysterical. So we were having to t- caretake and navigate his dad. We have to cut the body down, deal with that, get the coroner on the way. And then I could see his soul. And he was so remorseful. And he was in what appeared to be some room. It just looked Mm -hmm. kind of almost like a study or an office. And there seemed to be a guide, a male guide there with him. But his head was in his hands. And he just seemed to be very, very upset and remorseful about the whole experience. And so I think that was one of my first suicides Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. so that was a lot and again i didn't have a real handle on my energetic it wasn't just surrounded by angels whisking a person off it was sounds like it was a little more contemplative and there was still some negotiation going on yes and my understanding with that is that there can in some instances can be a karmic balancing there's almost like a contract Mm -hmm. that has to be completed before the soul can ultimately cross and transition um, but m- my understanding now, after seeing this for many, many years and seeing countless people's transitions, is that ultimately the souls cross. Yeah. So there's no like, yeah, there's no purgatory. Behind. Yeah. So to speak. Yeah. Okay. Let's go to Rudy and the heart attack. Okay. Okay. Oh my gosh. He, uh, there's, but there's so many cases. So the, I just cherry picked a few because I knew we couldn't, people can read the book. You couldn't, we can't go into all of them. Okay. So the heart attack, we've got two that are coming because mm-hmm. I've got so many. Sure. It's like a Rolodex. Of yeah. Calls. You go for it. So one of my first experiences with death, um, was quite incredible because he had had chest pain. We got there to treat the chest pain. We were transporting into the hospital. And he turned all the way around to where I was sitting and he looked me directly in the eyes and said, I'm going to die today, aren't I? And this is right when I was new and I didn't know how to respond to that. Mm-hmm. And that was really shocking because I was like, oh, no, we're going to get you to the hospital. We're going to. But he knew. He knew it was his time. We got him into the hospital. We got him onto the uh, ER bed and he coded, he flatlined. And so that was an interesting experience for me to start to learn how to ride that edge mm-hmm. and what to say to the people as they were alive and yes. then actively beginning to watch them transition. So after he transitioned or during the transition, though, was he, he was peaceful with it? He understood this was his time? Yes. And what is that like? What is that kind of transition like to watch? So in a medical, so this is really neat because... Ultimately, I got to a, a level of proficiency with the energetics on the scene. Mm-hmm. So my experience, let me share my experience and then I'll share how yeah. I kind of learned the protocols. My experience was very matrix-like. I would arrive on scene 
Anytime death was near, I would taste metal. That's always my tell, still to this day. Okay, I just know that somebody right around me is going to die. I'll expand out. And so then it feels like I don't know where the end of my skin and the energies of the universe begin. So I just kind of expand and everything slows down and becomes very crystalline. At that point, then I can like sense, I can hear audible everything that's happening on scene. And again, so it's very matrix and whether it is just a knowing or whether it's a short snippet like a video, I would just get a video clip of what was going to happen just before it did, which helped me navigate the energetics of the mm-hmm. scene. So that was my experience on a mm-hmm. 911 call in addition to dealing with and caretaking the bodies. Okay. Right. So I finally, as a paramedic, felt like I belonged somewhere. I finally fit in. And this was finally socially accepted, right? I had a little bit of esteem and this is a very alpha field, right? So very alpha, very masculine, very type A. We are a different breed because we are the type of people, we are the ones running towards what everybody else is running Running away from, from, right? And so my, the severity of violence that I grew up with I was like a duck to water in those familiar waters. So familiar to Mm -hmm. me, right? And so that was kind of my experience. And then I gained in proficiency um, as a paramedic in the skill set. And I started to just notice that these energies would just come through my hands and it would just be like a warm, loving touch. And I would just intuitively know exactly what that person needed to hear. Mm -hmm. And I would start to relay messages from now I understand it was channeling, yes, right? Yes. Um, and sometimes energies would come over the top of me if something needed to be stabilized on scene. I would just navigate. So it, there's different types of deaths. Here's one thing to understand, okay? There's as many ways to die as there are to live. Yeah. And there's nothing to fear in death. It's like taking off a heavy coat, okay? Yeah. And in the medical death, or an expected death, say we have somebody with end-stage cancer or hospice or whatever, their body would be in bed, and over time, their auric field begins to expand outwardly, and their veil thins. And so we hear all the time in the near-death experiences that those people are talking to, Mm -hmm. you know, they're seeing their dead Mm -hmm. loved ones and doing some astral traveling and stuff like that. Well, at the moment of death, in the actual cardiac arrest, which is when they go agonal and their heart quits beating. the This is so beautiful to watch, too, because it's this really organized, energetic, it looks like ribbons unfurling. And it starts at the base, down at the tailbone, and it unfurls like a ribbon all the way up the vertebral column, and then the soul would exit out the crown of the head. And it that... I came to understand is the light at the end of the tunnel Mm -hmm. experience that so many people have is their Mm -hmm. consciousness going out the crown. I thought that was so cool. Yeah. And then the soul would exit and I would see deceased loved ones, um, some religious archetypes sometimes, depending on the person's belief structure and the pets that had passed. Mm -hmm. So it became kind of this reunion. And I would watch over here, they're floating in the corner of the room, we're doing CPR on the body, or if we're, if it's a DNR, announcing time of death, printing out, you know, all the things that we have to do. But I'd be watching in the corner, almost this joyous reunion, and then they would just disappear, right? From view. It was just incredible. Very beautiful. To watch. 
And when people pass traumatically, for mm-hmm. example, car accidents, it's like with Taylor. Um, what happened? And then they're surrounded by angelic forces. Yeah, it's a very different. Yeah, it's a very different way to die as mm-hmm. far as what the individual experiences. Again, ultimately, nothing to fear. Yeah. Okay, people, I think are our society uh, is death phobic, and um, we kind of try to hide it away and bubble wrap ourselves for the inevitable. When we can start to just take the fear away and understand that it's a very natural part of life, right? And even in a traumatic death, there may be pain, but it's just for a moment, okay? I think that a lot of people fear the pain or feel fear. But they're out of their body so fast. In a trauma, it's like, okay, so here's the deal. You're driving, (laughs) you're going to work. And this is the thing because everybody, or there's so many people that we all think we have time, Yeah. right? We're all, oh yeah, I'll do it later. I'll get there, yeah, whatever. So many people every single day die traumatically and didn't have any idea that it was their final day. And I cannot tell you how many times I've seen it. Like, you know, they're going to work, they go through Starbucks drive through, they're pulling out, they're texting and they get, or they get on the car, on the freeway and there's a rollover or whatever. And that's it. Okay. And so where the medical death has this really beautiful kind of expanded, mm-hmm. there's a bit of time to it, some acclimation. This is, you're in your body. Nope, you're out of your body. Yeah. And so the soul what would be confused. And so we would come up, say it's if it's a drive-by shooting and there's a body on the ground, I would see the soul standing above the body and the soul to me looked just like the person did, except I could see through them. Mm-hmm. But they would be looking down at their body, like super what? confused. Like Taylor yeah. was really confused, yeah. right, when we were in that space. Because it's like, wait a second, I was just there. What, what's happening? So the souls would be able to tell that I could see them uh, from, through my clairvoyant vision. And I think it's in the same way that, you know, spirits can tell when mediums mm-hmm. can can channel. And so I would see them, they would see that I could see them. And then over time, I developed a protocol to start kind of explaining, mm-hmm. okay, you were just in a car accident and this is telepathic, yeah, not verbal. Right. Communicating, this is what happened. This is what we're going to do. We're going to transport your body, etc. But nine times out of 10 on a trauma call, the difference would be that angels mm-hmm. would come. Mm-hmm. And I think... Because some people will be like, well, aren't the like loved ones going to come? And I think that because there was so much volatility on mm-hmm. scene, it's the sheer frequency of chaos yeah. that the soul has to be able to come into a space where they can start to accept before they can shift. Absolutely. And so I think that the angels were there to just help. Yeah, that's incredible. Very beautiful. It's, no, it's beautiful. Even explaining it, we can all see the grace yeah. in that. The grace in that. Okay, this is the little question I want to throw in. Have you ever gotten a call where someone was ready to give birth? Oh, yeah. And so have you ever seen what happens with the soul during the birth process? Oh, yeah, that's so cool. Yeah, great question. Yeah. One of my coolest shifts ever, I had a birth and a death that same day. 
And I was singing the Lion King Circle of Life. (laughs) Because that's that's pretty rare. You know, that was the only time in 15 years that that happened. But what a neat So just briefly let us know what it looks like when the birth Okay, a lot of angelic frequency, a lot of uh, powder pink energy usually surrounding the mom's going through. What she's going through, pain has its own energy. It's not dark when you're going through the birthing process, but pain is more vibrant colors going through the body. But through the canal and as the baby the enters powder pinks and just celestial angels so they're corded uh energetically corded from i mean it's just a few weeks of inception yeah but what, they're not like really committed here right. until they're delivered through the birth and then they still have an opt-out year which is kind of the sibs thing. yes there's still yes. this opportunity thank to you like, for sharing are you that. into this or are you not into this and that's what we see a lot of sibs thank but you for beautiful sharing. in terms of watching birth Yes, and and you can see it when you watch a live birth. You can feel, feel the soul joining with the body, and then the breath. And oh my God, it's just who who doesn't cry? Oh, it's so beautiful. Thank you for sharing that yeah, for sure. And so we're just about to say goodbye. And one of the things you've noticed is in these crazy times where you know COVID has passed, but it left people kind of ravaged and confused and isolated, and just left a lot in its wake uh, with us psychically and otherwise. And one of the things you're seeing in the wake of it is a lot more suicides among very young people. So just give us a glimpse of how we might be able to help if we can with these young people who just can't take it anymore. It's too harsh. Remembering that it's just now. We have been through such an extraordinary time this last couple of years collectively and the density and the prolonged um, chaos externally has just brought up everybody's shadow, right? Yeah. Um, so many people are facing so much stuff right now. So we are seeing even more suicides. We are seeing a lot of people that have been in addiction and alcoholic uh in recovery that they're falling out and going back. And now we've got this whole fentanyl craze that's yes. just mowing people down and they're called one-offs because yeah. it's lethal at such a minimal dose. And a lot of these people don't even know that they're ingesting it. Right. So we're, that's what's happening on the streets right now is yeah. we have huge levels. And so for those of us that are left, yes, it's a heavy time. We, those of us that are sensitive, it's our time. We are being called online for a purpose. Yes. Like all of this stuff that I've been through makes sense now. Because now I'm able to help bridge the mainstream with the yes. energetic and holistic world and yes. make this whole healing world and holistic world make sense, right? Yes. So to the people that are struggling and especially those that are sensitive, yes, I understand it's hard. And ultimately, we have the choice point to make the decision. Yes, it was hard. Yes, it's been traumatic and which way do we want to go with it? Mm-hmm. Do we want to stay down here or do we want to rise up and learn? And I'm living proof that you can take hold of these abilities and use them to help you in are. a pretty profound way. And I'm not the only one, right? Yeah. And so there's so many of us now. Yes. So if you're really struggling, I understand. And, you know, reach out. There's there's people here that can help. Navigate. Yes, including yourself, which we'll get to in just a second. One more comment is we were talking off camera. You said what you're noticing is the type of souls coming into these little baby bodies now. We have powerful entities coming in through these times of transition now. Mm -hmm. They're going to do it. Oh, yes. And we are some of them. Indeed. Some of us will go away, come back as powerful entities ourselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the collective consciousness is definitely shifting as we go away from 
the, you know, denser yeah. marker time, the more masculine linear time, mm-hmm. Piscean age, if you will, into more of the Aquarian type, feminine, collective, holistic, all of that kind of stuff. And we have a ways before the pendulum fully swings. And this is a, it's an incredible time to be alive. It's volatile. Yes. And if you have the openness, the willingness, the curiosity, you can actually lean into your abilities and utilize these not even just as a healer, you can take them into your everyday life and you can Absolutely. impact everyone around you in a positive way yeah. if you choose to transmute your pain and your trauma into power. Absolutely. Thank you for that. Perfect close. How can people reach you, by the way, uh, you can as you, for your healing work? Oh, yes. So I do individual yeah. sessions. I have yeah. group stuff, sarahkgrace.com. Wonderful. S-A-R-A-H.com. Yeah. And you can find me on YouTube. I've got all the things. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you so much, Sarah, Thank for you sharing for your journey me. with us. Very, very powerful. Appreciate it so much. Again, the name of the book is Journey into Grace. Gut-wrenching, but also very heartwarming and powerful little book on life on Earth through the lens of energy. Until next time, thank you for joining us here on Open Minds. Wow. Another one through all sorts of fire, blaze violet fire here. Okay. Yes, that was good to share for her. All right. Rama picks this one. I just remember it was quite a few years ago, but you were talking about this gentleman every other time you were turning around, Rama. Yeah. Okay, this is called the George Adamski Archive Revealed. They came from Venus to warn humanity. Mm. All right. Um, I'm not sure if it's commercial. Well, there's only one way to find out. Yeah. Okay, this is... um, um, where does this start? Beginning in the late 1940s, benevolent extraterrestrial beings reached out to a humble human being, George Adomsky. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Just a second. Okay. Let me read this. Okay. George Adomsky who they trusted to relay their teachings to the world. Throughout the course of his life, the context continued and George diligently documented every encounter. Today, Glenn Steckling bears the mantle of keeper of the Adamski archive, and he has come to reveal what the archive holds including the science of interplanetary travel and anomalies on the lunar surface. Join him in this interview with Regina Meredith. Another one mm-hmm. with Regina Meredith. All right, let's do this one. This is shorter. It's 25 minutes and nine seconds. So here we go. We're seeing common people around the world doing the uncommon, in a sense, becoming supernatural. 
And I'm talking about healing chronic health conditions and even rare genetic disorders that medical science has had no solution for. My job as a doctor for 31 years, as well as a lecturer, author, and researcher, is to not just talk about what is possible, but to show you the latest data that supports my work. Your thoughts can have an effect on your brain, your body, and your life. I'm Dr. Joe Dispenza, and I'm going to show you how to rewire your mind, your heart, and your body with this all-new series called Rewired. community is divided into very distinct camps. Those who are searching for the conspiracy and those who are looking to unify. Both have their value, but those who are looking to unify receive far less publicity. Glenn Steckling is the keeper of a precious archive of materials based on the life and experience of George Adamski, a gentleman contactee who was visited by people from Venus and other planets back in the 1950s and 60s. And I've always just loved this story. It just appeals to me on a very intuitive level and it's interesting because as George passed off his briefcase to you you inherited the briefcase and you carry it with you today uh, I carry <laughs> A the briefcase. same briefcase because it fell apart but, but yes the but the contents That's right. first generation photographs yes. I have copies of the films that have been transferred onto DVD that already happened when I did the uh, uh, the transfer for 20th Century Fox for the remake of the day the earth stood still and I was going to ask you about that, and just that's my next question. So what was The Day the Earth Stood Still patterned after? The significance of that movie, and there is some truth behind it, because an event happened to that prior to the end of World War II, except for the landing was in Alaska, and it was attended by four heads of state. But the entire emphasis of The Day the Earth Stood Still was the fact that Congruently to the observations and sightings that have happened, this craft came, landed close to the White House on the mall, and I remember walking by that mall many times in the 60s when we lived there, and the space person came out along with the robotic, which is common to all these type of crafts that right. have either a robotic or an android, right. and it shows psychologically exactly the type of mentality both of the people of this world, which hasn't changed, the military, which hasn't changed, and also our government officials and how they deal with that. And so this person goes out amongst the general public and begins to try to understand how it is that we have this unconscionable fear and uh, irrationality. And there's a very famous section of that film where he's standing there with the boy that he is at boarding in the, yes. in the room, and the guy is coming down the newspaper or pardon me, the newsreel person with the microphone and he keeps going from person to person. How do you feel? How do you feel? And when they get to him and he says, well, I'm concerned when we substitute unrational behavior and fear for logic and science and they pull the mic right away. Right. <laughs> and so it, it, the, the film is excellent. And it also shows there is a contingency of science-related academics who are also very interested in this field. They don't always throw their names behind it, and that's not how this works, and we can talk about that later. But it also depicts the dangers that we skirt along the abyss continually on how we treat the planet Michaels has bubble deals for Mother's Day. There it goes. Paint her a picture on canvas. 
Frame her favorite memories and save 50% on summer floral. Plus, save $10 when you spend $40 or more. Now through May 13th. In New Mexico, the storytelling power of murals allows artists to engage its ideas. Our ability to destroy each other and the world we live on, and the uh, acknowledgement of that relationship. Mm-hmm. So the movie, all in all, George loved the movie. It was it is depicts very accurately the type of contacts that have happened during that era, and also since. Let me ask you a question. I mean, this is probably out of place, but how did he feel about the story of Valiant Thor? by Frank Stranges. Well, I can only tell you the experience we had. Mm-hmm. George passed away in April of 65. In the fall of 65, there was a knock at our door. My father goes to open the door, and there stands Valiant Thor. Really? Oh, tell me. I didn't know And this. my father says to him, he laughs. He says to him, I know who you are. You're a misinformation agent for the government. <laughs> Your father said that? And Valiant Thor laughed and he says, you're absolutely correct. <laughs> and my father says, well, I've been thoroughly briefed on you and your behaviors and what is going on. And I said, he said to them, he said, you will find no traction here, nor welcome here. And so Mr. Thor said, thank you very much. Have a nice day. And off he went. That is our interaction with Mr. Thor in 1965. And that's... The only um, definitive that I can give you, only that which I have, we have experienced. Well, that's ourselves. responsible. Can, but ha, look, having known of Thor mm-hmm. and the contributions with um, those in power at the time, right? If providing that's part of the story, what was the nature of the disinformation? Well, how was he? Well, first skewing? of all, he was not from Venus. And secondly, the promotion of the information that came downstream for that is contrary to the actual circumstances. So, and this is very common in this field. Um, what happens is it's like fishing. Mm-hmm. In order to catch a good fish, you got to use a well-baited hook. Mm-hmm. So these days what happens is they take established known events, which there's very little knowledge about, but mm-hmm. we can pretty much securely say this happened like Roswell and other mm-hmm. things. And then based upon that foundation, then the injection of other information in order to take it into variable tangents. Kind of piggybacks off of it like a parasite. Exactly well Mm -hmm. said. Mm -hmm. And so it is a method upon which to grab those who don't know, and even better, those who think they know a portion of it, and then run with it. Because unless you have that foundation and the truth of the actual event, you will accept everything that happens downstream. Right. And this is where we're getting ourselves in a great deal of t- trouble in this field. Uh, well, I couldn't agree more. Um, so, you know, going back to Adamski, um, again, as I call him, a gentleman contactee, and that has a lot of connotations. It means there is a type of academic vigor, a morality, and ethics that he stood for. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. But there's something else, of course, that strikes me and has always struck me in this conversation. And that is, he had some unique physical features, if I recall. And we might just bring up one or two of the most obvious ones because my question follows on that. Well, we put a great deal of emphasis on the external and very little on the internal. Mm -hmm. He had a particular symbol on his form 
that passed away when he passed away. But as far as being any different biologically than you and I, mm -hmm. he was not. And neither are these beings that come from other worlds. Mm -hmm. They are exactly like you and I. And if we look at the chemical scientists and the biologists and listen to what they say, we find that the commonality of creation comes from the elements from space. Mm -hmm. And all that is seated on this planet, about two tons a day, compromise the organic materials that eventually bring about life as we know it. Mm -hmm. We trail this material behind our planet. So do all the other planets. Right. We intermix. That's how you get a meteorite from right. Mars and Antarctica and so on and so forth. So we are basically... A very large oven with many different pies, mm -hmm. all made of the same material and over time evolving in the same me method. But as far as George was concerned, um, this particular symbol uh, basically stood for the evolution of his particular character. Um, it's been explained to me by a, a couple of different people. Um, their understanding of the, the track of progression to incarnate on Earth for beings who've come to help in mm -hmm. particular. It starts in one star system and gains density It goes as it goes on. Pleiades is often hit and then it ultimately ends up at Venus before incarnating on Earth. And that's a trajectory two independent people talked about. So if that's true, I guess my question is really more... Is he one of those people that has gravitated from that Venusian path to Earth for the express purpose of helping and bringing higher knowledge to us and thus allowing him to have these constant um, relationships with these other people because he's maybe of that tribe? Well, let's be clear on a couple things. First of all, there is a race of humanoids that travel space. Mm -hmm. And they, as part of their purpose, colonize worlds. Right. And they do that throughout the cosmos. Uh, we have remnants of that symbology mm -hmm. of those people, which are called the Tritarians, which is symbolized by half man, half fish. And of course, if you look now at the symbology of Poseidon and Neptune, mm -hmm. this is left over from that earlier representation. Now, as far as uh, the reincarnation aspect, we all have multiple lives in the past. We've had to because over the period of millions of years, we have to, nature allows us the progression of learning yes. what needs to be used towards our further involvement as a character and of those around us. That cannot be construed in a single lifetime. And if we look at most of the religions, they do teach reincarnation. In fact, I have a very good book written by theologians that said why Jesus taught reincarnation, not resurrection. Right. The church changed that yes. term. Yes. And so when he stood on the mountain of transfiguration and became all these other faces, he was showing to his disciples who he had been. And for anyone else, who you've been in the past, since we'd like to glorify ourselves, is irrelevant. We have been good, we have been bad, the good, bad, the ugly. It's a process of <laughs> it's learning. It's a process, <laughs> right? Anything and everything requires our own individual attention, mm -hmm. responsibility, and action. Mm -hmm. Just like John Kennedy said, we have progressed to a state over a period of time, and when you reverse that, it will still take a period of time, hopefully, 
if it's unabridged in order to return to that state. And we have to take responsibility for ourselves. Do we get a helping hand? Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. But we have to make the choice. And unfortunately, these days, we have chosen the other direction. Right. And at the time, I mean, the the messages that were coming to Adamski were were very life-affirming. Absolutely. On every level. And that is useful to us today. Um, especially considering what became injected into the whole UFO scene starting in the 80s and 90s, which was... What happens when the prostate enlarges and the urine channel gets tight? If you have an enlarged prostate, do this 15-second Japanese morning ritual to shrink it almost immediately. If you've been suffering from frequent urges to pee... Which was almost exclusively fear. Um, Yes. Uh, to make it simply put, and as I mentioned in the re-release of Behind the Flying Saucer Mystery, we originally developed a dogma during the 40s and 50s. We were going to deny these crafts exist, no matter who said so. We were going to deny their existence, their capabilities, and the fact that they come amongst us. When that could no longer be sustained, and we started going out into space, our space program, even though there were many who were discontent with that agenda and spoke openly about against it, had to be congruent to that original thought. You cannot say something doesn't exist and then go into space and said, oh boy, it's that right. because somebody doesn't start pointing the finger and said, oh boy, lie our pants on fire, right? right? <laughs> and so officially we developed a separate agenda to say, okay, when we go out into space, we will make the conditions very hostile, unsustainable to life, and so on and so forth. But as you can see, if enough research is done, you can find holds in all of those reports to show atmosphere on the moon, water, the same on Mars, conditions better on Venus, because as we go along in time, ever so slowly, a sliver of information is left to us. And for most people who don't pay attention or don't follow a thought from point A to point B, it just goes by. Mm -hmm. But if you start to collect it over enough period of time, like we have done at the Adamski Foundation, and you make it available to the public, you can start to paint a much broader oh, picture. Yes. In this book, um, The Mystery of Flying Saucers, uh, part, is it two or two? Three? Two. Um, one, one of the things I love about the book is besides speaking about Adamski himself, is the science mm-hmm. that he was bringing from these other people to us. And we're going to get into that in a moment. One thing that um, the book impresses and that I have been impressed with before is he was very rigorous in looking for people to try to invalidate what he had been told, his findings, his evidence. Now he fell to the misfortune of, you know, some shenanigans where photos would simply disappear, evidence would simply disappear, mm. and that kind of thing, which was unfair. But uh, he actually challenged people to disprove his findings. That's right. He offered several thousand dollars reward to anybody who could disprove or show fakery of the photographs. And as we've shown in the book and as we've discussed before when we did our original yes. interview many years ago, is that the volume of evidence has always stood up behind the examination of George's photos and the films in which I will give you a copy yes. of. And it that is what irks his critics the greatest they will try anything and everything to try to discredit those photographs but none of them are experts 
and yet experts have come forward to show that they are optically correct of the type of crafts they are. None of them can do anything but shoot off opinions or replicate opinions that others have said. So you get second and third and fourth hand domino effect. And I have openly challenged these people many times, okay, let's sit down and let's hash out the facts. Mm -hmm. And they don't want to do that. Right. And so to put it quite clear, George Adamski is to a great degree, especially within this field, highly ignored. Yes. And on purpose. Yes. Of all the people, and I can name dozens over the last five decades, who have come and gone in this field, nobody receives the negative attention that George does. Which is interesting. Consistently. And to me, he is one of the most credible of them all. Because he did two things. He won. He talked about human beings coming to visit us, and we don't want to hear that. Already since the 50s, we have pushed both from the media standpoint and uh, the movie standpoint and, uh, and across the the, uh, the fields, this idea that everything has to be monstrous, bizarre, attacking, aggressive, like Reagan said. Amazing how quickly we would unify if an aggressive force came from space. Well, especially if they look like praying mantises or ant people or something like well, that. Well, worse than that, you can remember the television program called V where they looked like you and I, and then in private they pulled off the mask. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And reptilian, yeah. Because we always go back to right. that because it sells. Right. right. And, and that's basically what this is. This has nothing to do with educating the public. It has nothing to do with being responsible for what you show. It sells and makes some people very rich in order to do that. Right. And so in George's case, he stuck to that, human beings, and he stuck to life in this solar system. While he made the statement, I could have had my life so much easier if I just twisted it a little bit and said, these visitations come from another solar system. We had no way of verifying that. It was conveniently too far away. He said, but that wasn't the truth. The truth is where they come from, and he stood by all means by the truth, and his story never wavered, was never embellished, and never changed, and he was well recognized because of that. He was, and and he did not profit from it. Not at all. He was not a profiteer at all, and again, he offered open challenge, and when when a a few thousand to several thousand dollars was a lot of money in in that day. A lot of money. Yeah, that was a a year's salary for people. Oh, absolutely. And he gave the the rights to publish his materials and books books freely across yes. the world without royalties or yes. any contracts. He gave his pictures openly to whoever came to visit him. Yeah. And um, and so if anybody claims that George profited about it, he died. He owned no house, no car, no property, no estate, a couple suits to his name. And if you look in the San Diego County Registry, I think the entire estate was worth just a couple thousand dollars. Yeah. George was not in this field, and he certainly could have made him lots of money. He was offered millions to shut up. So was my father. My father was offered a million dollars by the intelligence community if he would uh, denounce George Adamski, and my father told him to kiss his behind. Look <laughs> after your dad. <laughs> yeah. Now, in the day, however, um, Adamski had access to positions uh, in very high places. Um, I remember reading one part of the book in, in which it says he had access to an underground passage to the White House. What happened is, in, is George briefed two presidents, Dwight Eisenhower, and took him to an air base out in the California desert where one of these craft came down and they had interacted. Did not go for a ride, just interacted on the apron. And also John Kennedy at a different place. And George used to carry a White House access pass in his wallet. And we witnessed that. 
And there are several entrances to the White House. Of course, if you come through the main entrance, everybody's standing there taking pictures and you're logged into a particular book and so on and so forth. But all of the important stuff comes through the underground accesses that are leading into the White House through the military secure zones. And he had an access to that and he used it on several occasions when he was summoned there. So George was interested in providing factual substance. We were living in the time at the end of an era that broadcast nuclear destruction, the eliminator of life on this planet. He felt that it was vitally necessary that these officials who made the decisions, made the decisions based on accurate statements and facts and not hearsay and opinions. And that's what he went for. He didn't care about his name, meant nothing. Mm Okay, let's get into some of the people he met with, and let's start with those from Venus and the way he, the way they described their life, um, which simply seems to be a more ideal version of Earth life because they seem to have worked through some of the issues of aggression and mm-hmm. such, longer lifespans, healthier bodies, right? Generally attractive yes. people, yes. Um, more companionable social structures. All which is available to us here, we just choose not to partake of it. When George made the statement that you're capable of living in your body for several hundred years, three, four hundred years, everybody scoffed at the idea. Yet recently, geneticists came out and said, yeah, you're capable of living in this form at least two, three hundred years if you were treated correctly. Right. Right. And so we have the ability to participate in this betterment. In their particular civilization, and by no means are they the only civilization in this solar system, they have worked past the point of being fractionalized and divided. We work consistently here to divide people into race, into gender, into state of thought, into religious thinking, and so on and so forth. This is the method upon which we control the masses. There, they have worked past that state and realized that when you work together, you get far further along the line because now you work together towards a common a standard of living towards a common value and a common progression and you don't waste so much of your time trying to find out what your what your talents are trying to get an education trying to get a job that you really didn't want to do 50 years of working for the government and paying taxes and so we lead very unfulfilled lives here and in their society they don't do that and it makes what the whole issue to this is, and I've been asked this before, I had a conversation yesterday evening, in fact, is that George made a statement, and so did one of the space people whom I met. He said, for most of you who come to our world, you would be highly uncomfortable. And I asked, in what manner? He said, not because of the environment. He said, because it's a state of thinking. We work together. Your thoughts are open to everyone. There are no secrets. There's no belittlement. So basically... To put it simple, let us say this is an island of this type of behavior and activity. You don't even get to the shores until you're developed and willing to participate collectively into that type of To be transparent even, yes. To that. And so they do not have individuals who are, um, shall we say, malfeasance, or we don't want to do this, or we want to do it our way, and so on and so forth. You don't even get there until you've worked out those issues beforehand. So when you go to this place or visit this place, you find that you become 
integrated into that betterment. And imagine the discontinuity it must be to experience that, as George did, and by far he was not the only one, to experience that and then have to come back here and deal with the reality, not the mysticism and all the sensationalism and all the things that have been injected into this field. When the space people make contact, they vet you very carefully. This is not some haphazard thing that's thrown out there because it can change your life so dramatically that if you cannot deal with it, you no longer can function in your own society and own world. So it becomes a a counterproductive experience rather than a productive. So they watch and record and they evaluate us very closely. And George went through that his entire life. I'm repeatedly struck by the intelligent, useful, and gentle nature of George Adamski and wonder why these voices have been minimized in favor of the big conspiracy stories. In the end, it's up to us to decide who stood to gain from their silencing. Meanwhile, you can do your own research by contacting Glenn at GeorgeAdamskiFoundation.com. Until next time, thank you for joining us here on Gaia. around the world are doing the uncommon. I mean, it is literally the Netflix of spirituality. (laughs) Sneak another commercial at the very end, why don't ya? Okay. One, two, three strikes, we're on. This is another Regina Meredith, everyone. Oh, I didn't know that. Here we go. This one is called Gene Keys. And the guest is um, Blue, B-L-U. I think she's been a guest before as well. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, Gene Keys and Somatic Healing. How can we learn? to understand our challenges as gifts. Influencer and podcaster Blue rejoins Regina Meredith to dive deeper into gene keys and how these genetic pathways of our DNA are interconnected with our energy fields and our fate. Sharing details around adjusting to her loss of hearing in her 20s Blue looks at her life path as a gift so she can educate, inspire, and connect through somatic healing. Attune yourself to leave toxicity behind and enter new realms of awareness. As Blue shares how we can change our lives by focusing and monitoring distractions to attain deeper listening and inner peace. All right. Um, this is 45 minutes. All right. Let's get started, mm-hmm. honey. Let's do it. swiveled around on his chair and looked at me and he says your results are actually very concerning you have the hearing results of about an 80 year old 
the words have become quieter, recognizing that energy doesn't lie, words do all the time. I remember reading that jinky and it genuinely felt like my DNA was restructuring itself in real time. When I put the hearing aids in, it's so jarring. Apparently it takes three weeks to adjust to hearing aids. It's like metal grinding. Yeah. yeah. Our greatest spiritual currency that exists is our attention. That's why it's constantly being fought for all the time. When we can actually sit in a relationship with a group of women and to transcend competition into inspiration, that's when our geniuses can start to swap. We go down, mm-hmm. in, yeah, and then up. Yes. It's not... Today's guest has had an interesting and mystical journey with deafness. As it turns out, this trait has many dimensions, which all of us may share. She turned deafness into a transformative experience after becoming involved with the Gene Keys. And welcome, Blue. So good to meet you. Thank you so much. Such an honor to be here with you. And we're going to be talking about all of this, your personal journey, and then you're going to be Really, I think the first one introducing my audience to the Gene Keys. Mm -hmm. And just so they know, the founder, the one who created the Gene Keys, Richard Rudd, who you and I both know, will be coming here also. So this is a wonderful kind of entree for the audience to kind of tap into just one or two keys that really can can affect everyone in which you and I share. Mm -hmm. And so I just want to say to everyone, we have a little dog, your little service dog, Mm -hmm. Lily is on your lap. So if you ever see a little, you see a little tough poke up (laughs) right here, it's a little service dog, Lily. She's a sweetie pie. Mm -hmm. So first of all, let's talk about what happened in your life where you began to physically use your sense of hearing mm. and you and your brother both and, and what, what your life was like prior to that and then what started unfolding. So like you said, I wasn't born with this. This is something that was new into my world and how I started noticing it is actually I realized that when the hearing starts to decrease, it's actually not me that's noticing it. It's those that are around me that notices it. I'm sort of in my ignorance is bliss. So yeah. da, 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 da. And then I started noticing these comments of like, all right, come on, Blue, clean your ears out. Like, why aren't you paying attention? Or you're not responding when I'm looking at you. And so it was in those moments of reflections was when it was started to be brought into my field of awareness. And so you really weren't noticing that really... the world is becoming more quiet. It started becoming muffled a little bit, but not to the point that was concerning. And it wasn't until I was actually having lunch with my family and my brother was also there. And he mentioned, mom, my my hearing starting to become muffled and I'm getting a lot of reflections from people saying that I'm not paying attention. That was then what sparked my realization that I was also experiencing the same thing. So still at this point, it's very innocent. And we went to the doctor and we both had our hearing checked. And I'll remember that moment for the rest of my life is sort of happening slow-mo when the doctor sort of swiveled around on his chair and put his glasses from the bridge of my nose up and looked at me. He says, your your results are actually very concerning. You have the hearing results of about an 80-year-old. And I'm in my mid-20s at this point. And he said, well, we won't really understand what is actually happening until extensive testing over a prolonged period of time, see if it's getting worse. However, what I can say is that your brother also has very similar shocking results. And so it's most likely to be hereditary. How old was your brother at the time? My brother was three years older than me. Okay. So he's still so in his late 20s. 20s. Uh-huh. Yeah, late 20s. I'm in my mid-20s at this point. And so we go home and this is quite jarring for my mother and our family. 
And so over the next six months, we're going and testing every single month to just continue to check the, the, the hearing as it is unraveling over time. And during that time, that's when it started coming into my conscious awareness. So I started noticing it more and more that I was in social settings and I would experience this new phenomenon, which was social anxiety. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'd be in a group conversation and someone would say something and it would ping across the other side of the room to somebody else saying something. And all of a sudden, I have no idea what's going on. Everyone's laughing. It's some joke. I feel very alone in the space. And it started progressing to the point where I actually didn't want to be out in public anymore. And so the diagnosis over a prolonged period of time was that it's progressive, meaning that it's getting worse. It's hereditary, meaning that it potentially came from a genetic within our family. And is it normal that it would have a late onset like that, this particular kind yes. of deafness? They couldn't really give it a diagnosis in the sense of what was causing it. Um, they didn't really understand fully the extent of the genetic or what was really happening uh, and they didn't really know the trajectory of where it was going. And so mm-hmm. there was a lot of big question marks placed on such a massive piece to be integrated in my early 20s or mid-20s. So it's been a wild journey since then of learning how to navigate the world with one sense starting to significantly become decreased over time. Uh, my brother also is navigating in his own unique way. So... In each of your cases, how to what percentage was your hearing decreased? We're at about 70%, both of us, um, deafness. So we have about 30% hearing in both our ears left at this point. So uh, what's that block out? First of all, what do you simply not hear in the mm-hmm. spectrum? So I'm completely deaf on my high tones. Okay. So, for example, you know, you get in the car and the, the car's like, beep, 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 put on your seatbelt. Yeah. I don't hear that. Uh-huh. Uh, my dog crying at a really high pitch, like whining. Mm-hmm. I don't hear that. Um, there's certain frequencies that just completely go over my head. Um, and I'm above average on my low tones. <laughs> so, for example, a woman's voice in a public space. The low tone is the background noise. The high tone is the woman's voice. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, the woman's voice now sounds like... Mm-hmm. A man's voice in a in the same situation, I may hear better because it's operating more on the lower tones. So it was such an interesting new terrain for me to learn to navigate how frequencies work and that there are constant frequencies operating all around us. And it depends on what frame I'm in, depends on how much I'm hearing and what I'm picking up on. Okay, so you get the news. This is progressive. Now, has it been progressive or did it kind of stop around 70% or you don't know yet? It started to become progressive, but at the same time, my inquiry around a deeper meaning of life and subscribing to the belief that I can heal myself from anything mm-hmm. and asking, why did I create this in the first place? Therefore, giving myself the, the ownership mm-hmm. of being able to actually shift it has massively catalyzed my spiritual growth mm-hmm. and my understanding on my inner workings and my inner world. And so as the diagnosis was presented, so was the parallel path of wanting to know myself, not from the outside in of what the world expects from me, but from the inside out to ask deeper questions that allows me to actually become the creator of my own experience, not the victim of my circumstances. Yes. So do you think that that actually has slowed the, or maybe even stopped the progression? 
Yes. And to an extent of also recognizing that realizing in this realm where the words have become quieter, recognizing that energy doesn't lie, words do all the time. Yes. And so what was it it was doing? And Albert Einstein talks about how energy is not created nor destroyed, only changed in form. So when when the sense or the energy that was going towards hearing mm-hmm. has now just been redirected to the extrasensory perception of feeling. Mm-hmm. You sit in front of somebody and you can feel somebody. You can feel their essence. You mm-hmm. can feel what it is that they may be thinking. And it's yeah. based off of how the body on a somatic level receives it. So what I was starting to open up the door to was the realm of feeling mm-hmm. that makes perfect sense. Had a massive emphasis on growing up. Mm-hmm. And realizing that as I started to recognize that this could be actually a gift, Mm -hmm. that was when it seemed to stop in its tracks. Interesting. So as we're talking right now, you're reading my lips Mm -hmm. and I have a fairly soft voice. Mm -hmm. Can you hear much of my voice at all? I hear your voice Mm -hmm. to a certain degree and I'm matching your voice with what your lips are are saying. And also on top of that, I'm reading your energy. Yeah. I'm seeing your eye contact. Yeah. I'm feeling the shifts in your body. There's a lot of communication, a very high percentage of communication mm-hmm. that's actually nonverbal. And because we're so reliant on our five senses that we don't give ourselves the gift of really actually tapping into the non-sensory realm, which is actually operating 24-7 at all times. Exactly. Okay, so at what point, was there ever a point where it was discussed that maybe you should learn signing or did you not need to because you had already developed the ability to read lips and hear to an extent? Did signing ever come into it? Sign language is something that I would absolutely adore to get into. I haven't gone into it yet. More so my main focus has been on adjusting. We're such adaptable yes, human beings. Yes. Adjusting my current way of processing information in a way that allows me to still be able to retain as much, if not more information, remain fully present, Mm -hmm. receive the gift of who you are, while also allowing myself to not miss out on anything that is happening in my world. Yes. And dot 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 to be continued would love to learn sign language at some point and recognizing i can't be the only one that learns sign language i gotta bring my friends in with me otherwise i'll be the only one having a conversation with me myself and i so it's a mutual thing okay so do your friends ever use you like at a social gathering say what are they saying (laughs) series lips well i has that ever happened where someone says what are they saying (laughs) it's kind of cheating but do they not so much about reading the lips, but more so about what's your read on this person. Okay. So All it's right. like, hey, Blue, come in here. Yeah. What's your read? I mean, what's your extrasensory uh, yeah. energy picking up on this individual? Yeah. So it's almost like having a sniffer dog in this space. Within human <laughs> form. Like, yeah, they're pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> Very cool. Okay. So now we start going into the story that I mentioned in the open, having to do with part of this transformation process. Along the way, you encountered the gene keys. So let me just set up very briefly, Richard Rudd, who I've had people ask me for years and years to interview. I keep hearing, he seems so beloved, but I didn't know him. And I, but I did know about the basic architecture before Gene Keys called human design. Mm -hmm. And I was very well aware of that. So I just hadn't been pressed into learning more. And so we're talking about a very elegant system, um, both human design and a great structure, architecture, but the, which he was a devotee of many years ago, and then he had his own downloads, the Gene Keys were birthed, which is a very, very 
poetic, sophisticated, profound means of understanding ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so you came in contact with the Gene Keys. So now you share your story. So I, after my diagnosis, decided to book a one-way ticket and go and experience life because tomorrow wasn't guaranteed. Mm -hmm. I bought myself a guitar and I was <laughs> adamant about learning how to play and to sing because I didn't know when I was, if I was going to be able to hear my own voice yeah. again um, or hear music. So nothing was guaranteed. So I decided to go traveling um, around the world and I took this guitar with me and learned a few chords and just started singing and feeling the vibration of my voice. And I remember uh, being in a space and my friends pushed across the table this giant book. I mean, it's hefty. It's, the Jinkies book is hefty. It's a tome. <laughs> it's already <laughs> off-putting for a lot of people. Oh, being yeah. like, that's a lot. <laughs> no thanks. And she said, you know, I think you'd really appreciate this book. Now, I opened it up. And at that time in my life, I just was not a vibrational match to the information. Here comes Lily. Here <laughs> Surprise! <she> <laughs> um, I was not a vibrational match to the information. And so I had it on my shelf, but I didn't dive into it for a while afterwards. And then there was one moment where I was like, okay, this is the time I'm going to get into this book. And now once I actually started to realize and, and deeper level of understanding of what the Gene Keys is, it's so much more than a book. Yes. It's a living transmission that you can never really exhaust. And it is a code book of consciousness to understand oneself and understand that our greatest challenge holds within it the seed of our greatest gift. Now, at my dismay, I was going through the book and realized that I had this jinky uh, deafness. We're and going to dive way into that for all of our sakes. When I saw that word, and while I was processing the curriculum that life had presented me with my hearing, I remember reading that jinky, and it genuinely felt like my DNA was restructuring itself in real time. It was like a psychedelic altered state of consciousness that left me in a place of speechlessness and timelessness and pure awe. I remember it that day and that moment, and I will have remember it for the rest of my life, just sitting in my little cabin in the forest, crying with the potential that my deafness actually wasn't. It was a some, gift. It was a gift. I had been gifted it. And also recognizing that the overarching theme of the Gene Keys is that everybody is dealt certain cards in this life that are challenging, that are painful, that are discombobulating, that leave us on our knees questioning why. And right within that challenge also holds the seed of our greatest gift and then ultimately our service to the whole. And so maybe not everybody relates to the deafness. However, I'm sure everybody can relate to a challenge. And so when I understood that actually in the gene keys, there's the challenge, the shadow, there's also the gift. And then in the highest expression, there's the CD, uh, which is essentially the enlightened aspect where maximum amount of light is entering our DNA. Now we are vibrational beings and ultimately it's never ending on inwards and it's never ending externally, meaning that we have around 75 trillion cells mm -hmm. in our body mm -hmm. that are vibrating. And, and ultimately they have two jobs. Really what it comes down to is to listen and to respond to the story. 60,000 thoughts we think a day on average. The cells are listening and responding to whatever we are telling ourselves yeah. and how far our imagination is willing to go. Right. And so if I could only be limited to, oh, well, this is just the worst thing that could happen to me. And this is super sad. Yeah. Then my cells are listening and going, okay, then that's the truth of it. Yes. So 
we're going to go into, we're going to dive into that key number 43 Mm -hmm. that has deafness, epiphany, insight, Mm -hmm. because every one of the keys starts with the shadow. Mm -hmm. And so Richard really gives, I think Gene Keys, the work gives people permission to look at the shadow Mm -hmm. and to allow themselves to take in what there is to gain from that, because then it guides you right on through to the gift of each one. Mm -hmm. So it's a very complete way of acknowledging one's full self. So I'll just tell a little experience. About a year ago, um, there were three of us. I was here in Boulder, and a couple of girlfriends were with me, and we all we all got our profile, our Gene Key profiles, which anyone can go to genekeys.com and pull up their free profile, right? We pulled up our profiles, and uh, we had the book, the big book. And what I found so fascinating was that in the case of women, and I don't know that this would be the same way with men, the women were happy to acknowledge and accept their shadows, but had a much more difficult time accepting their gift. It was very interesting. And so having each other read together and study it together gave us an opportunity to validate the beauty in each other that oftentimes women are shut down from seeing. Just because of the patriarchy, we, you know, we have learn to minimize our value. And I was watching it in action and thought, this is amazing. It's so beautiful that we can validate each other and say, absolutely, you have that strength. That is your gift. So it's lovely to do in group, not just individually. Okay. Yeah. I love that you said that because it really gave me a new definition of what it means to hold space. Mm -hmm. And what I believe that truly means is that when somebody is in their shadow, a.k.a. a negative thought pattern, mm-hmm. a belief system that is an illusion that is a couple of degrees away from who they truly are. Mm-hmm. When we can witness somebody that is present within that narrative and to hold also in the same breath the potential yeah. that they can live into and seeing their potential mm-hmm. and loving their yeah. potential and knowing their potential that is the opportunity to catalyze them into their greatness because to truly see someone in the entirety Absolutely. of their being, it's the greatest gift. We could it ever gives give. language for it. Yeah. It gives, and it gives poetic, beautiful language for yeah. it and truthful language. You can't really escape. I mean, when I first read my profile, I thought, Oh my God, just this little four, the four primary areas of your life that it illustrates in a paragraph or two. I thought, geez, I do need to interview this man. So I am. He's, he's, he's coming in in a couple of months time. So anyway, but he has great respect for what you've done with it, by the way, because I spoke to him about it and he said, you're really magnificent in interpretation. And I understand you help other people understand that you read, you help them read their gene keys and embrace and understand the knowledge. Is that true? It is true. So after I went through my whole chart and yeah. just had this massive activation around it, when I believe in something, it's called heart marketing in the Gene Keys. When I believe in something, I want to shout it from the rooftops. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh, this is brilliant. <laughs> Everybody gets to have a Gene Key book on no their No wonder Richard table. loves you so much. You're <laughs> the root crier. <laughs> and so I just started reading I my friend's it. Gene Keys just like yeah. you did. Yeah, you know, yeah. you bought it to your sisters yeah. and you, and you just went yeah. into it. Mm-hmm. And it was just, coming and being born from a natural curiosity. Yeah. And then it just organically started to unravel to the point where I actually decoded the entire book. Jeez, that's um, Every single gene key in my own note form. And what it did is it changed my lens 
on perceiving reality based off of sort of archetypes of recognizing that our greatest challenge is our greatest gift. There's a shadow and there's a gift and there's a city to everything, the sweet polarity and the paradox of being alive. Mm -hmm. And it changed my way of processing um, challenging times. It allowed me to soften more. It allowed me to recognize that the more I actually soften as opposed to harden Mm -hmm. against times of resistance is actually when the upgrade, the insight, the light could enter into the cracks. Yeah. And so also when I was doing the readings, what I was doing was I was partnering my ability to feel somebody based off of my hearing and the gift that was presented through my hearing while partnering it with their, their gene key chart and mm-hmm. reading their hologenetic profile, mm-hmm. then feeling what's going on in the individual. Mm-hmm. What I would do is I would partner the information together and then reflect the beauty that I saw in that individual. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, the greatest gift we can give to somebody is to listen intently, ask great questions and reflect the beauty that you see. Absolutely. So now let's go into that little pesky key mm-hmm. that happens to be my top key as well. My life's 43, work. my life's work, which is deafness through epiphany insight. So insight, insight and, then epiphany. and epiphany as yes. So let's talk about that mm-hmm. um, in terms of you went through it quite literally mm-hmm. to go through this transformation. Mm-hmm. But many, many, many people watching this have 43 gene key in there somewhere. That's this deafness. Mm-hmm. And so for myself, I noticed that and and relatively recently where I have allowed myself to live in kind of happy I wouldn't I don't know if I go so far as saying delusions but when you're ignoring something and deaf to something it almost does create a type of delusion Mm -hmm. when you have a, a happy little scenario a story in your head you know where everything's wonderful the happily ever after kinds of stories we tell ourselves in life and we're not actually, we're, we're deaf to the signs that are literally all around us. So let's talk about deafness in that sense, which is where I have certainly had to deal with it and where many people listening deal with it. Mm. Deaf to the inside messages. Because mm-hmm. even you'll even hear them mm-hmm. and say, oh, no. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's confirmation bias around the yeah, stories absolutely. that we tell ourselves. Absolutely. So like, well, this is my narrative and this is what works for yes. me. And I'm going to put those sort of those blinders that horses wear yes. that actually stop us from being able to really fully understand yeah. all 360 of the experience that's yeah. being presented. Uh, it's also a deafness towards our own internal truth of what really actually lights us up from the inside absolutely from the moment that we're born we're told a name and we're given a religion and a social background Mm -hmm. and 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 we've been given these labels of who we think that we are supposed to be and then we're also you know told what success is based off of what society deems as successful and so we mold ourselves to these versions of ourselves that we think will be deemed as, as as acceptable and then actually realizing that what's happened is we're listening to the world as opposed to listening to ourselves yeah. and it creates a deafness to be able to actually hear what is going on outside there's so much noise in the world there's so there much is. noise even just before this interview you know there was a lot of people and things going on swirling for us to actually like sit down mm-hmm. and get quiet and then to be able to find that common thread between mm-hmm. the two of us and so you don't like you said you don't have to have a physical deafness to have the deafness mm-hmm. jinky nor do you even need to have the deafness my life's purpose is the first jinky in deafness is the shadow <laughs> and i listen for a living mm-hmm. 
And it's also, it, it, it is your superpower because yes. before yes. I even came on this, this interview, the reflections I had about who it was that you were is that you asked brilliant questions because of your ability to listen to that which is needed to bring forward the gold in the interview. So as much as we may oscillate into the shadow of like being happy in my own story and not really actually hearing what mm-hmm. is going on in the world. You also have a great gift within that same shadow. Mm -hmm. And so the shadow is the seed. It's not fully actualized yet. Mm -hmm. And then you have the flower, which is the gift. And then you have the seed, which is the fruit. And so instead of judging ourselves for, oh, I've noticed, Mm -hmm. this is just you coming from a deep level of Mm awareness. You're recognizing actually that, oh, because I've actually read this, I ignored what I heard. Exactly. You started yeah. to pull it forward into your conscious mm-hmm. awareness. Yeah. You're now pulling it forward into your awareness and going, okay, oh, this is the Right. Oh, I see it showing up here. Oh, here it shows up too. Oh, and now this is what it means to turn knowledge into wisdom. Yes. Implement it. So let's move through then into the gift of it. Into because the the, uh, people that have many, many people watching have this. Mm-hmm. So let's move into the gift that mm-hmm. follows. Insight. The ability to actually hear the whispers of your own heart, the ability to hear what it is that is being asked of you outside of from inside with your relationship with that that cannot be named, as opposed to what is expected from you from the noise of the outside world, the regurgitation of everybody's thought process. Mm -hmm. Pure originality is born in the silence of being able to truly listen. And so there's hearing and there's listening. Mm -hmm. And there is different layers to the deafness of recognizing actually to a certain degree a lot of people are deaf. Well, that's what, that, the reason I bring it up is this. Some time ago, I heard myself saying this. Someone was going on about something. And I said, the bottom line in the world today is everybody's talking and nobody's listening. And I find that kind of a true state. I found it to be a true statement after it came out of my mouth. I thought, mm-hmm. why did I say that? And I realized that is what I witnessed. Because everybody is so has so much anxiety now, and I think a lot of it has to do with media and social media to be seen, to be known, to be acknowledged. Then there's so much more opportunity for so many more eyeballs to come onto a person because of technology. That everything is about projecting, projecting, projecting more than receiving. Mm-hmm. And so I noticed it was kind of like almost a how do I say? It was like a an attempt to hang on to whatever identity people have of themselves to keep sharing, 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 talking. Mm-hmm. As though if they stop talking, they'd lose the thread to who they are. And I see that a lot now. That that in the last ten years that has radically changed the world. Because mm-hmm. everyone's talking but no one's listening. Mm-hmm. And the fact that you can see it is the very piece in where your service is born from recognizing that which is needed on the planet. And so your lenses have become sensitive to that very unique piece where you can actually use your life's work to recognize a deep level of listening actually extracts the best. Yeah, I was born to do that. Which is what you're doing. Yeah, and that's what I do. I mean, I'm very lucky I'm aligned with my purpose and make a living at it. That's Mm -hmm. an unusual position to be in, and I'm deeply grateful for that. Mm -hmm. So the 43, we've just kind of examined and and I wanted everyone to be able to look at their own piece in a society where we are all talking over each other. Mm -hmm. And that means we're not listening to each other. And so the depth of what can be had by way of listening Mm -hmm. to me is 
the gold of life. Mm -hmm. That's where we start having our epiphanies and our insights. So that's jinky number 43, which you and I both share. Mm -hmm. That's in my case, my life's purpose. And in your case, it's what? It's in my pearl. It's my programming partner in my pearl. So it's actually a huge part of my brand. Yeah. Yeah, A deep level of listening. I have a podcast. I have a show. So it's like listening to the guests. And the piece and the the significant shift is to listening to understand yes. as opposed to listen to respond. And yes. It's different. I want to understand you. Yeah, totally, totally different. And then and then the richness of the responses come from a deep level of heart as opposed to the mind. Yes. And you know, I just we were talking off camera and I thought we all we can all ignore aspects of self that are you know, just maybe uh, a little bit heavier. We don't really want to get, we're not ready to unpack at the moment or something. Or then there's just something, and I'm going to ask you about this. You have used hearing aids. And I was watching a show on a cochlear implant, mm. and the woman wanted it reversed. She could not stand what the world was once she was hearing all of this noise that we're now referring to. It's a noisy place out there. So in your case, what happened to you when you started dialing back into all that noise? When I put the hearing aids in, it's so jarring. Apparently, it takes three weeks to adjust to hearing aids uh, as it's almost like uh, metallic. Mm-hmm. It's like metal grinding. Yeah. Yes. And noises that yeah. I would never hear you yeah. before, which is like the spoon on the bottom of a bowl. Mm-hmm. And I'd be in the other room and I'd be like, ow. Yeah. And it was really jarring. And and it served its purpose in a sense of like if I'm in a group sharing circle and somebody's talking and I just need to hear, I just need a little bit of assistance, I'll put them in. However, for me right now, my relationship with them is that I'm training myself to hear beyond my yes. ears. Yes. And I actually got into music for that, well, for many reasons. One being that I learning to feel music as opposed to hear it. And Beethoven was 100% deaf and made music that lasted long after yes. his life. Because he Which is still feel. hard to get our minds around that that could be. Yes. So you're, you're developing that, that extra sense. I'm strengthening that extra sense. Yes. And also my life's work or part of my life's work is to invite others to strengthen that even if your hearing isn't going anywhere. Mm-hmm. Is mm-hmm. to recognize that we don't strengthen the muscle of our extra sensory as much as we can. Yeah. And it can be such an incredible ally in this life. Yes. And then when we were off camera, I said my uh, corollary to that is my sight. I have very poor vision. Mm-hmm. It's like on a scale twenty twenty, it's twenty four fifty four seventy five. Mm-hmm. So I don't. I, it's like double mm-hmm. legally blind, and I love it. I don't put my eyes in normal. I have to come to come here because I can't see my script or you or anything. But at home, I don't put my eyes in my my contacts in mm-hmm. until I'm ready to leave the house. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, Renoir had vision problems. That's why his paintings are so fuzzy and soft. And you know, in the day, I think it's easy to that's all they were some of the impressionists were able to see because they had poor vision as well and that's what my world looks like very sophomore monet and it's beautiful there's something about it that just has a it takes the hard edges off like that tinny sound that you're talking about i have the hard edges off the world that i look at Mm -hmm. probably at least half the time and i love it I love that you love it. It makes me so happy that you're loving it. I love it. And if you you look at Greek mythology, you'll see the seers, right? The the archetype of the seer. 
they're usually blind. Well, that's true. Because they yeah. see more than most. That's right. Not needing the eyes. Yes. Same thing with the hearing. Yeah. Is the hearing when, when decreased actually becomes a truth filter mm-hmm. because it's navigating through energy like dogs. Mm-hmm. They navigate through energy, not necessarily through words mm-hmm. or appearance yeah, yeah, or exactly. how followers you have online yeah. or any of that sort of stuff. So the same with your eyesight is your ability to yes. see more than most. And that combine that with your scorpionic nature. Yeah, we're both Scorpios. Ooh, I we're, we're both Valentine babies. Yeah. Both of our mothers enjoyed Valentine's yeah. Day. Here we are. My sister's birthday is one day after mine, so I know my mom enjoyed Valentine's Day. <laughs> Nine months out. Um, okay, let's go to another key that you and Richard and I all have, but it has a shadow almost all of society seems to have, and it's almost generationally epidemic. Mm-hmm. So let's go to the the number 56. Distraction. Yes. With the gift and the, or the city of intoxication. Oh, yeah, my favorite part. Ooh. But let's talk about that because it's almost as though in mass our society is living on distraction. Yeah. So it's, it's, a, it's an impact. It's impacting certainly, I think, people probably under the age of 60, um, even 70, because we're all now plugged into technology mm-hmm. and the distraction around us of constant bombardment of information, very enticing and seductive little posts that come through and boom, we're down the rabbit hole. Yeah. So let's talk about that. Mm-hmm. Key 56. Well, our greatest spiritual currency that exists is our attention. That's why yes. it's constantly being fought for all the time. And if we have an app on our phone that we don't pay for, then we are the product. Yes, we our are. Attention is the product. Yeah. If we can give a little bit of context of even just that, mm-hmm. it allows us to understand what we're actually working with here. Is that there is a sort of a spiritual warfare around our attention that oh, is you happening bet. constantly, intentional. And so, also recognizing as we talk about the overarching theme of the gene keys being our greatest challenge and so our greatest gift. You, me, and Richard, which brings me so much delight to know that we all share this the same jinky in the same position. In the same place, right here in the center. And that is the core of our being, which is the ability to (laughs) intoxicate people with our presence. Yes. Not talking about like intoxicated on a good, you know, whiskey over here, but like intoxication in the sense of when you have my full undivided attention, Mm -hmm. I can intoxicate you into a place of timelessness with my presence that allows you to feel fully seen, fully acknowledged, and fully loved, which is the greatest gift we can ever give anybody. Yes. Now... If we are distracted, we're going to suck life out of the space. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of like what was happening with all the noise in the room earlier. It's like, what? Mm -hmm. I can't even, what's going on? Yes, exactly. And I'm right there with you. I feel that exact same piece. It's it's like a scattered, scattered energy of recognizing that just like water, water has the power when it is focused to cut glass. It can be that powerful. Mm-hmm. However, also when it's not focused more like a sprinkling system, right. then it's actually not that powerful. Yeah. And so that is the sprinkling system is, it's like us and our distraction. It's like, oh, I'm just a little bit over here, a little bit over there. It's very watered down. It's very unfocused. It's not powerful. Yeah. Yeah. And so the training for us is that from the moment that we wake up to the moment we go to bed, are we monitoring our distractions and training the mind to be present with every single thing, whether it's washing the dishes, having a phone call or having an interview. How present are we and how can we bring our mm-hmm. full focus into that and strengthen that muscle so that we are recognizing, oh, our weakness is to become very distracted. Yeah. Also, our superpower is to be super intoxicating. Right. And so how can I train myself in the mundane moments, in the in-between moments, to train my focus so that when I am sitting with whatever it is, 
to have my undivided attention and recognizing that gift over a series of time with a series of interactions will start to plant very potent seeds everywhere we go because somebody that feels seen and somebody that feels acknowledged and somebody that feels like they have your undividing attention leaves a wake of beauty absolutely in our, in our passage. And so you tend to work a lot with women. Mm-hmm. And we already said you do gene key interpretation for people to help guide them to seeing the beauty within themselves and planting these seeds you just talked about. So one of your things is the sisterhood kind of pulling women together after thousands of years of pulling each other's hair out Mm -hmm. and competing with one another and denigrating ourselves. Like I said, with the women reading their gifts in the gene keys, oh, no, that's not me. Mm -hmm. Yes, it is you. So let's talk about how this all weaves together for you in your assistance to develop a true sisterhood. Mm -hmm. I think your example is such a perfect example of what you just said. Oh, no, I didn't have that within myself. Yes, you do. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, when we can actually sit in a relationship with a group of women and to transcend competition into inspiration, it's a one degree shift to the right. However, that's when our geniuses can start to swap. The second we're comparing ourselves with somebody else is when there is a block between being able to receive the gift of each other and how I like to see it is like we're like individual pieces of fruit you're a watermelon and I'm an apple for example now if an apple was to try and be a watermelon and be like oh I wish I was a little bit more like the watermelon it's completely bypassing the gift of it being an apple yeah yeah and so recognizing that we have all have our own flavor and our texture and smells and colors and vibrancy and the second we try to be like somebody else is the second we bypass them the genius that is who we are by birthright And so by being in the presence of other women, recognizing there is a core wound in humanity and it's women turned against each other, women competing for attention, women recognizing if I don't get attention, this is directly linked to my survival. Mm -hmm. Well, actually, it has been. Historically, it has been. And that is stored in the memory of our DNA. Absolutely. However, it is not the actual truth right now. So what it's doing, it's feeding an illusion, Mm -hmm. which is creating separation, which is allowing us to restore the balance on the planet. So sisterhood is essential to the evolution of our collective consciousness, our individual consciousness, and about allowing to receive ourselves beyond our own illusions. How do you do that? How do you model it so that we're living in this balance between the yin and the yang with each other and within? It's a little bit like the gene keys in the sense of it's all encompassing that we go into the shadow to find the gift. Mm-hmm. We don't bypass the shadow and go, oh, love and light. Well, yeah. it's hand, it's a whole hands yeah. in a circle. Wearing That's what's beautiful. You're right. The gene keys does not, this is not kumbaya. You look at your whole self. We go down, mm-hmm. in, yeah. and then up. Yes. It's not, ah, yeah. this is a bypass. Yeah. And there's a lot of bypassing that happens in the spiritual community. Absolutely. And so the mantra that we bring forward, which was um, relayed by one of my teachers and a dear sister, is the most sacred thing is what is. So if you're feeling rage, mm-hmm. if you're feeling anger, if you're feeling jealousy, if you're feeling separation, if you're feeling division inside of your being, bring it to the altar. It mm-hmm. is welcome here. We will love that too. Mm-hmm. We love the dark side of the moon as much as the light side of the moon. We cannot have the light side of the moon without the dark side of the moon. And also recognizing that we get to make peace with the dark feminine that lives within us too. And recognizing that's the all-encompassing feminine. Mm-hmm. And so... If a sister brings forward a unpopular opinion of, oh, actually, you said this and it made me feel this certain way, we embrace it, we accept it, we welcome it, we break it down, and we recognize that actually this is the medicine because within the trigger, there's a, there's a five T's, trust the trigger to teach. 
So instead of ostracizing it, oh, well, this is an uncomfortable feeling, then she's not welcome back. Mm -hmm. This is actually a very deep issue within the spiritual community is how can we lean deeper into this? Yes. And there is a, even in the shadow, the shadow for the shadow's sake, Mm -hmm. the reason we indulge that is because we're getting something out of it. Mm -hmm. It can be a repetition of an old pattern that's familiar, and that might be just where our comfort is. It's like, yeah, I felt like this a long time. I'm telling myself the same story. I'm going to keep on doing that. So I think to dive into how does that story actually make you feel when you tell yourself that? Is it still working for you? Mm-hmm. You know? Exactly. And are you, are we ready to transform that story? Because it actually gives me a bit of a knot in my stomach and kind of grinding and judgmental mm-hmm. is what comes out of it. And, you know, then out of judgmental, judgmentalism, a person can feel superior over another person. So, I mean, people are, people are getting something out of their shadows, which oftentimes can even come from past lives and mm-hmm. past experiences in their okay. lives and trauma. Mm-hmm. So to go in and feel it and like, yeah, what am I getting out of it? I think it's important. It's, Before you let go of it, what am I getting out of this shadow? It's essentially we can only move through it by going into it and through it and yes. feeling into the entirety of our beings. And so within these spaces that we create, we also have uh, safe places to express the shadow nature. And there's an exercise that we do. It's called oracling, which is we go in the center and whatever is most alive, we give full permission to it. Yes. And that could be raging into yes. a pillow. That could be like yelling out to the world and being held and witnessed within it. And so it's about going into the crunchy. It's like feeling the crunchy from the entirety Mm -hmm. of it and having a healthy outlet because Mm -hmm. where we get sick is when we don't allow ourselves to feel the entirety of what is moving through us. And so we need safe spaces on this planet to genuinely feel. And the thing is, the interesting, ironic thing of it is, if we're watching a film, for example, and our heroine or our hero breaks down and the most vulnerable part of themselves comes seeping through and they're a heap of tears. That's when our hearts crack open and we love them. We, cause we recognize the vulnerability, not, not just in each other, but in ourselves. We relate to it. We spend all of our lives trying to show us the best side. That's the thing about social media. I'm not happy about everyone showing their sizzle reel, their best side, their hot wise self. They're not seeing the rest of the person. And so we, we keep doing that. But in fact, it's that vulnerable little frightened piece that every person has somewhere in there that we actually are called forth by Mm -hmm. in each other. Mm -hmm. So it's okay to recognize the shadow. That's the perfection of the jinky work. Yes, I have that. Yes, I was stupid. Yes, I paid the price because I was deaf. Willfully deaf, mind you. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Yes. And that actually is where true power lies. That's right. It's the all-encompassing claiming of that which has been, that which is here, and that which I'm moving into in my full humanness. Because it's our humanness that connects us. It's not not the shiny, polished room. No, there's nothing new under the sun. We all share these basic common human traits Mm -hmm. to one degree or another. Mm -hmm. So we're just about out of time. So I want to say there's so much we could talk, so much more to talk about. But just go ahead and, and share with us any final thoughts you have on this whole topic. Well, I just have to say uh, acknowledgement of thank you so much for bringing this topic forward. Richard yes. Rudd, I believe, is a, is a genuine real-life wizard. And he really is, and he's everyone loves him. He's lovable. He's, he's just so, so gracious and kind. He's, and he's extremely humble. And yes, he what is. I appreciate so deeply is that 
the profanity of the teachings of the jinkies and, yeah. and if you just open the book and just over a couple yes. of sentences you'll yeah. realize how yeah. dense it is yeah. and then meeting him in person and his and his um his innocence and his Sweetness. humble nature and his love and his relatability yeah. allows me to truly understand what it means yeah. to recognize of saying this came this came through me as an expression and a transmission to the collective and I am still a forever student and there is no hierarchy yes. there is no pedestaling there is no oh this person has all the answers and they're just mm-hmm. telling all of us but to actually truly understand the essence of what it means to be a student of life until the moment we take our last breath and to just from that place of being a student of life, share what works, share what doesn't work, create a level of relatability and to transcend the pyramid into a circle where we are all equals in our own expression and our own nature and we all bring a piece to the table and recognizing everybody has a superpower Everybody has a challenge. Nobody is exempt. Nobody is And exempt. so if we can embrace our challenge as much as we embrace the beautiful parts of ourselves, that is where the true power lies. Absolutely. And you've said it perfectly. And you're still a very young woman and you have this profound tool and power about you already. You're going to do wonderful things in the world. Thank you so much. Because of your deafness. Mm-hmm. I love it. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much, Blue, for taking the time to be here and uh I think you're especially because you are in the world of social media and such, you bring a kind of depth and spirit to it that I think is really needed. Thank you. you. Truly an honor. You can connect with Blue's work via her podcast, Deja Blue, B-L-U, no E on it, and her mystery school, Fluorescence. Until next time, thank you for joining us here on Open Minds. I was watching her. She was watching her lips uh, through the whole thing. Mm. Uh, she was doing a lot of lip reading. To Rama studied, um, what do you call it, sign language, yeah. right? For people who were deaf. And, uh, yeah. Okay, so uh, we're looking at the time and everything, so we're going to do this one. It's 28 minutes. It's called... The mantis and insectoids. And we've talked about the praying mantis people many, many times. And I've said this a number of times on the show. I had a conversation with the praying mantis um, uh, in some bushes uh, along a uh, parking lot up in Arthur, Ontario, um, where Micah's grandparents lived. And it was 10 o'clock at night, but there were some lights, you know, to light up the parking lot. And so, I mean, this mantis was as, as conscious as a normal everyday person or more so. And I was having a conversation. So anyway, let's see what this is about. How can we interpret ancient myths of insectoid beings helping humanity through cataclysms on Earth? Explore the lost links of ant people, insectoids, and mantis ETs with ancient civilizations and tribes like the Maya and the Dogon. Experts share their research on how these various species 
could live in undiscovered areas of our own inner earth. Discover how mantis beings are working with other ET groups on a wide array of experiments to coordinate evolutionary efforts. And this is a whole family of people. Debbie Solaris, Kadic Olson, Dale Harder, Kurt Courtney Brown, PhD, Craig Compombasso. Oh, maybe it's time to have him back on the show, everybody. Harry Challenger, William Henry, Sarah Brexman, Breckman, Breskman, there we go, Cosme, Sarah Brexman, Cosme, and Caroline Corey. And this is 28 minutes, so let's get started, everybody. Here we go. cataclysms can be found throughout the ancient world. Often referred to as mantis or mantids, insectoids, or even ant people, their influence can still be felt today. Thousands of contactees claiming to have been aboard extraterrestrial spacecrafts recount mantis-looking beings who seem to have a vested interest in our evolutionary development. If this is so, who are these insectoids that work in the shadows? And what is their influence upon humanity and our future? We see representations of insectoids throughout Earth's history, particularly with the Egyptian culture. There was other depictions of insectoid beings in some of the Mayan cultures, with some of the cultures that we see out of Africa. So I think they were, at times, teachers to humanity. And that's why these beings are currently being depicted throughout Earth's history. There was depictions of insectoid beings even within the Native American cultures, particularly the ant people. We know about the ant people helping the Native American people from the oral stories of the Zuni and the Hopi people, as well as from the petroglyphic carvings that we find in northern Arizona, showing us depictions of these insectoid-looking people that are the ant people. Thousands of years ago, Earth was facing a very major cataclysm that was threatening to destroy all of life on the surface of the planet. As this cataclysm was getting underway, the ant people came out from under the surface of the earth and ushered humanity into these underground caverns and cared for humanity while the surface of the earth was just being devastated. And there they stayed for generations. After the cataclysm had passed, humanity was led back up to the surface and these ant people 
were instrumental in helping the humans learn how to replant foods, how to go back into the agricultural communities so that they could survive very well on the surface of the planet. The heterogosts on the walls were ant people have been described in the South and Mexico and various areas. Those people referred to, I believe, were the small grays or the medium-sized grays because they had the long spindly arms, the big heads and so forth. And so they got the idea that the only thing they could link them to or talk about in a description that they knew was the ants. There's also the possibility that some of those that are termed ant people could be from inner earth. There is definitely a group of different alien species on inner earth. They kind of look like ant people. They live in and out where the poles have openings. So there's the possibility of both of those being, you know, classified as ant people. to one nature photographer and art historian, there is a cliff sculpture in Colorado that commemorates when the ant people rescued Native Americans from two separate cataclysms thousands of years ago. While historical lore describe ant or mantis-looking beings inhabiting inner earth, what do we know about their galactic origins? Where do these mantis beings come from? That's still kind of a mystery. We don't know if they've got a home world or if they're scattered throughout the cosmos in various home worlds. There are reports that they do have some bases here in our solar system, you know, little planetoids or even on Mars, different locations. We have only interacted with the insectoids in a few locations, on ships and on the surface of Mars. You can assume that they have places they come from that are all over. It eventually becomes difficult for us to say they come from a planet. The ones that are negatively oriented are almost entirely seen on ships. And we don't really see them running around some other place, having societies. We don't see anything like that. We see them doing jobs on ships. That's it. The ones that are free, the good ones, we see on the surface of some planets, such as Mars. The mantis beings are a physicality type that is seen in variations of forms throughout our universe and our galaxy. My understanding is they actually originated from a different universe, but have settled here in our universe. They were the beings that resided in the star system of Antares. They were considered to be the gatekeepers of the Antarian Stargate. There was a reason why they had to oversee this Stargate, because souls were allowed to pass through from Andromeda Galaxy, but they were not allowed to leave the Milky Way Galaxy. Because once you made that decision to become part of the Milky Way experience, you had to make a commitment to be here for a while. So what's known from contactees is that they come from Orion, Andromeda, and way far out into the galaxies and beyond into realms and worlds. They are a matriarchal society where the females rule, but everyone is still equal. 
they are so advanced in their consciousness moving up the dimensions that they even have these high temples of learning and spiral learning where they can invite an individual or a planetary consciousness that's ready to move into their next realm to ascend. Mantis beings are referred to as insectoids by humans, but that is simply a classification we've created, limited by our current knowledge of Earth species. According to eyewitness accounts, Mantis beings take on a wide range of appearances. Perhaps the most striking aspect of the mantis alien is its physical kinship with the praying mantis, the carnivorous and bipedal insect of its namesake. A lot of what we got about mantis beings comes to us from eyewitness reports, people who've seen them or various other situations and they've come across these insectoid looking beings. They all describe the same kind of thing, that they've got these elongated arms, extended skinny torsos, that they have some sort of a shiny exoskeleton and a triangular shaped head, sometimes with some proboscis poking out from their heads, which really gives us the impression that these look a lot like praying mantis. And sometimes these reports tell us that they have a cloak around them, like a dark gray cloak or a blue cloak, but they definitely have this elongated insectoid appearance about them. Most of the descriptions I've seen, it has proboscis, which is like what an insect has is this sort of tongue and projection of its mouth cavity. And it seems to fit the perfect description of what a praying mantis should be, even down to a point where its hands are actually bent and in that position. The mantis beings have three-pronged hands, so it's sort of like three prongs that go down like this. Their feet have sort of a suction cup feeling, so when they walk, they can have a stability. On their crafts, it is said that everything is run telepathically through them. Insectoids as a whole mostly follow the mantis appearance, but there's varying sizes. There are some that are very, very large, like the Ontarian insectoids were very large beings. They were 15 to 20 feet tall. There are others that were the technicians that work with the gray aliens, maybe some of the insectoids that we saw in Orion that were more closer to human height. And I think that's just a variation where depending on which star systems or which locations that they came from, that was, it was kind of just a natural evolution of height. There are different types of insectoid beings. I would say the mantis is the most prominent one, but there's also beetle-like looking beings. There's just variations of insectoid beings, just like there are variations of insects on planet Earth. Regarding different alien ET races, praying mantises are placed in the quatiloids category within the Defense Intelligence Agency. They are genetically engineered, and one particular type looks like a praying mantis. The larger praying mantis is five or six foot tall, 
And the second type is more humanoid. Now, when we say humanoid, we're not talking about human looking. Thicker skin, a more structured looking head. There's two basic types, the hostile and the friendly. The hostile are essentially a slave race to another group of extraterrestrials called the reptilians. In terms of the hostile groups, the reptilians are at the top. And all groups below that, they manipulate in some way, direct or indirect, and they're essentially all slaves of that higher reptilian source. The good mantis beings are not slaves. They are not controlled by the reptilians, and they have an independent orientation. Despite their daunting outer appearance, many researchers report that encounters with mantis beings have been, for the most part, positive. First of all, they're totally sentient. And like almost everybody else in the galaxy, their communicative capabilities are almost entirely telepathic. So they don't use a mouth like we use to vibrate air to make sounds that produce things. And if you get a good one, and they're interested in communicating with you and you're physically there, they often put like pincers up against your head and they bring themselves close and they go into your head that way. And they can go through your head like a Rolodex. And often when they communicate with you, they're trying to sort out what kind of person you are to have a nice communication. So if you're a hostile to them, you may not fare too well, but if you're friendly to them, they'll have a conversation. Mantis beings are the most enigmatic beings of all of them. I have talked with many researchers just to see if we could find anybody that has had experiences with them. Usually somebody would have at least one experience with a mantis being, which was always positive. I believe that the mantids are very empathic. They are loving, they are caring. And that tends to be, for the most part, what is experienced. I believe that the idea that the mantids are confrontational or negative or anything, most of the time extends from the fact that they look so scary, they look so daunting. And we immediately imply, oh my God, if you look like that, you've got to be mean. And that's not necessarily the case. A lot of the reports come back that these beings have a good sense of humor that there is a lighter disposition to them. They're a bit friendlier and they're kind of fun to be around, despite initially being off-put by their scary appearance. One of the stories we have about interaction comes to us from Pete Peterson when he was working in some of the secret programs. He talked about interacting with mantis-type beings in some of the underground military bases and in the programs that he works with. One of the stories he tells is when they were all sitting around the eating table at the mess hall and the mantis beings were making fun of the way humans were eating because to them, the way we eat is a little disgusting and a little bit weird. But he said that they were cracking jokes all the time and that they were having just a lot of fun. They were just a joy to be around the entire time. For me, because I felt secure with the people I was with, then I felt secure. So it wasn't a fright. I didn't think the thing was going to turn around and eat me, but I had wonderment. It looked like it was an insect that was all structured, you know, two feet, two legs, two arms, two hands, two eyes, and a nose, then a mouth, 
mandible, you know, chin and ears. Didn't have long antennas, but it had little balls on stubs. I noticed that the skin scraped together and it sounded like fingernail files. It looked like it may have come from a praying mantis. Then spoke like it had horny plates and things like that, that it moved around to make the dissonances, the resonances, stuff like that. It didn't sound like it was coming through a soft tissue mouth. It spoke English. And uh, some speak and some just talk to you in your head. It's like you know what they're thinking and they know what you're thinking. In the 1970s, the United States Air Force had an encounter with a craft piloted by a mantis-like being that was taken into custody. According to retired Air Force Office of Special Investigations agent Richard Doty, classified documents that he was privy to describe this event. The Quattroid craft was flying in Nevada. This is in the early 70s. It crashed because it was shot at by an Air Force jet. An F-4 jet flying out of Dallas Air Force Base encountered it. Jet didn't have a weapon system on. Another jet was launched from Nellis Air Force Base, chased this craft. There was hostile acts presented against the Air Force aircraft and the Air Force jet fired a side-winder missile. It struck it and it crashed. There were three quadrilloids in the craft and one of them died. Two of them were alive. When the military personnel could cover the wreckage, these two quadrilloids already had some kind of environmental suit on them. And so they were taken out of the craft. They were detained by military police and they were taken to this containment area. Of course, we obviously did a lot of analysis on the dead one, determining its structure. Entirely different anatomy-wise, biologically-wise. They were all different than any of the even anaphyloids. But their brain was enormously more advanced than anything we'd ever seen. It had lobes and other things that we just couldn't understand. Everything was connected. They took apart the nerve fibers. We called them nerves. Everything was controlled by the brain. They didn't have a central nervous system. They didn't have a backbone, so to speak. They had a bony structure, something different than ours. Their eyes were extremely more advanced. They had almost three sets of eyeballs. They're the ones that could feed themselves. They had little pouches on their side, and they produced a ball or something, and they could eat it and keep themselves sustained. The craft that was shot down over Nevada was 100 foot. It was not exactly saucer shaped, but pretty close to it. It was very tall, probably 30 or 40 feet. The interior craft was extremely complicated. They controlled everything by their hands. And there was something else that they placed over their head as if maybe their brain was also controlling something. One of the things that was really unique about this craft, this blue fluid circulated all over the craft, tubular lines, tubets, I think they called them. And it all centered in the bottom of the craft. 
where the propulsion system was. So when the propulsion system was activated, this bluish fluid would circulate all over the interior walls of the craft. Now, I don't know that we determined whether it was maybe something to do with cooling, maybe it assisted them in, in stabilizing the craft. I don't know. In addition to government encounters with mantis-like beings and their crafts, there are people worldwide who claim to have had direct contact with the mantis species when taken aboard their spacecrafts. One of the most common revelations about the mantis beings is that they appear to be working closely with the extraterrestrials known as the greys. The reports of how people would have interacted with the mantis beings comes through these people on board a spacecraft with gray aliens, short gray aliens, seeming to do a bulk of the work where the mantis-type beings are the superiors, the bosses, giving instructions and guiding the whole situation that's going on. So, of course, the people, when they're in this scenario, they're a little bit afraid, a little concerned for their own safety and what's going on. Then when the mantis bring themselves to the forefront and they're interacting... They give like a sense of calm. They convey a sense of peacefulness and letting them know that you're okay. We're not here to harm you. This is going to be all right. And the mantis will employ the short grays to do that kind of grunt work, to do some of that base level foundation work that leaves them free and open to use their minds to connect at a higher level, do the higher level working. Now, what we're seeing throughout the cosmos is that there are beings that operate on like the fifth or sixth density or even higher, and that they cannot work on the third density where most of humanity is. So they need to work with an intermediary species like the short grays who can communicate to the fifth and sixth density beings, but yet operate in the third density where we are. So that may be one of the biggest reasons why the mantis are using the short grays because their minds are too high of a level to directly interact with what needs to be done. The job is a breeding process, a genetic engineering breeding process. Their ultimate goal is to have a population of extraterrestrials that we would call Esasani, which are half gray and half human. So those mantis beings, their job is to get that group of people ready. Now, that group of people was not designed to live someplace else. They're designed to blend into human society. So the control that's necessary is really oriented around getting the people who are being brought into the ships through a physical examination. And then there is a large component of behavioral stuff. So once you have the Esasani, half-gray, half-human beings there, they don't know how to survive on Earth. They don't know anything. Mantis beings, I think they have their own agenda. I kind of see them more as neutral beings where they have a scientific interest in us. Contactees often report mantis beings conveying mental imagery of the destruction of planet Earth. To illustrate the positive negative impact that our species could have upon the planet. Others have reported an increase in psychic abilities post contact. 
Many experiencers claim that the mantis seemed to possess the uncanny ability to put them at ease, offering telepathic communication to eliminate the fear of an encounter. Understanding the complexity of these communications is the challenge to those having a contact experience. I think possibly they're there to physically invade your mind, and maybe they're specialists in that. So I would suggest that they actually are there for a purpose. They're not just there as an overseer, which is very hard to understand because people can't access that information or use it productively. So there's a very common experience where you get a download into your brain, but then you're not going to use it for any specific things. They don't see humans. They see Earth thinking. And that's the main concept that we have to change. They see a whole planet thinking something, trying to figure out who the planet is. Who am I? Is asking the planet. That's why we have so many cultures, so many countries fighting each other. It's like we are a schizophrenic teenager right now for the galaxy, basically, with too much hormones. So they are just giving us space to figure out who we are, what do we want to be when we grow up. So they are just guiding us, not trying to control us. Based exclusively on the testimony from contactees, some researchers posit that a mantis hybridization program is currently taking place, using alien DNA to upgrade the human species. If this is so, to what end are these insectoid beings guiding humanity? What we know about the agenda of contact with mantis and humans is a little bit disconnected. We don't have necessarily a big, strong agreement, but there does seem to be some sort of genetic experimenting going on. The only collective information that we seem to have from the eyewitnesses and the people who've worked with Mantis as to what their mission is, is to help humanity reach a higher state of being. But it seems to be at the cellular level, the genetic level, not necessarily so much at the spiritual level, like the Arcturians would be more of a spiritual level, type evolution, but it seems the mantis are helping us at the cellular level. The mantis might be interacting with other species who have had a genetic influence on humanity through the Galactic Federation, because our reports of people who've worked with the Galactic Federation and had direct interactions with it have talked about all of the genetic experiments that other beings work with. They get that permission to work with humanity and do the work that they're doing here. So the interactions of the Mantis, I believe, will be as a concerted effort through the Galactic Federation and working with other civilizations that are a part of the Federation. The Mantis mentality regarding humanity, at this point in time, I would say one of benevolence, if it fits their agenda, which is, so far as we know, to learn, to understand, to experience, unlike their appearance, you know, a rose always has thorns. So there may be some negativity in some instance, but the majority of the interaction with mantids has been one of quiet and peace. So ultimately, don't fear the mantis. They might look a little strange. They might seem a little bit weird. They might be a little off-putting the moment that you see them. But we can embrace that diversity. We can embrace that uniqueness because they are ultimately here for our own benefit, for our own good. 
And if we can be open to the benevolence that they have and the kindness that they have, we can have a shared mutual experience that is just beneficial for all. For a civilization such as ours, seemingly separated from the universe, without contact with advanced intelligences outside of our own, it's difficult to imagine how consciousness and life have evolved. For the majority of humankind, it's difficult to accept that highly evolved civilizations exist that have an appearance that remind us of an insect species here on Earth. But whether insectoid beings had a hand in guiding humankind thousands of years ago or are currently influencing us genetically toward a new phase of our evolution remains to be seen. Perhaps when humanity is ready to take that next step in conscious evolution, will this elusive race of insectoids finally step out of the shadows and shine more light on our mutual connection. Join us next time when we discuss a rare ET species from one of the oldest star systems in our galaxy, the felines. Cat people, huh? Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a couple of moments there where I felt a little uneasy of what they were saying, what's going on there. I have met the praying mantis people. They are nothing to be afraid of. Didn't Normal Milanovich meet them too? Yeah. Dr. Norma Milanovich, Ram and I spent time with her. Over about a year and a half or so, we would go to the University of New Mexico, and she was a teacher there in uh, Albuquerque. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, she she had a contact with the praying mantis people. She wrote a book, didn't she? We the Arcturians. We the Arcturians. Are they from there, Arcturus? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Many things going on. Okay. Um, I'm going to read this uh, message from Caroline, and then Rama's got another Aurora Ray uh, little message for us toward the end. So, And then I guess a song or so. But here I go. I will do this. Tide is of the essence. We're twinkling right through. And I just put out a leather request for us, uh, uh, for assistance, everyone, so that we can keep up with, uh, being able to have our contributions come in to support BBS radio so that we can continue this work together. This is a really wonderful platform for us to be able to continue this work that we all, um, and Nasara does enable to release uh, everybody from a nature of the system which is based on slave labor. Uh, and that's, uh, that's not compatible with our higher mission. So let it be so. Thank you. Your contributions are so gratefully accepted. And they can go to um, uh, Stargate Roundtable. No, 
What's our website? RainbowRoundTable.net. All right, everybody. Here we go. This week's guidance from the Ascended Masters, the Galactics, the Earth Elements, the Fairy, Fae Elders, the Angelic Legions, the Archangels, and other divine beings known as the Collective. This channeling was offered as part of the Ashtar Legacy Conference call in April. Greetings, dear ones. We are very pleased to have this moment to speak with you. And in listening to that lovely music that was just played on the Ashtar call, we are imaging the rolling mist of gold dust pouring throughout the earth now. You notice that the song builds as it goes along. Now it has an interesting title, that song, written by Pueblo Native American composer Robert Mirabal, right, mm-hmm. who also plays the flute in it. It's titled Memoir Chaco, as in Chaco Canyon. Okay. Um... In that beautiful tune, the build-up in the song draws one very intentionally into the realization that what we see um, I'm Rainbird, if you have a place to mute the phone, it, it's helpful. I'm not sure, but it, it does. I'm muted, so I don't know what you're hearing. I'm here. Hearing, I don't know, it's, it must be magnifying any kind of movement that's all that's going on from your end. I don't know, can you... I'm not, I'm, I, I am muted. Oh. I guess it's just being connected. I guess that's just the nature of the beast. I don't know. Maybe, Doug, you can do something from that. And I don't know, it's, it just happens every week. I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm just... Curious to how to figure it out. What's that? What's that? There's like a little echo or something, and I know okay. that Rainbird's on the Rainbird, are you there? Yes. Can you hear me? Rainbird? Yes, I have to unmute to talk. Okay. Go ahead. I know why. The number's two up. Keep talking, Rainbird. Oh. Oh, keep talking? Okay. Good day, neighborhood. Okay, good. We got you. Okay. Better? All better? I I I think it it is. Let's see. Okay, I'll continue to read. Thank you, Doug. <laughs> Thank you for your little song, Raymond. All right. So this that that there is a new civilization coming forward that will make the ancient civilizations plainer and more understandable to those who are on the earth now. Um, the build up in the song draws one very intentionally into the realization that what we see around us is reality is is really not all that is there because one wanders the ruins these beautiful centuries old structures of Chaco Canyon left by an indigenous people of long ago and these are considered to be mysterious buildings We've both been to Chaco Canyon. 
more than once, everybody. It, you can definitely feel some otherworldliness there. It's undeniable. You got to go slow to get into the uh, canyon itself. It's about 20 miles of very bumpy little roads, so take your time. <laughs> but it's worth it. It's totally worth it. Um, because there are small openings into some of the chambers that have no light other than through that small opening. And one wonders, well, how did people survive in this? Or they notice the alignment of the lines of the structure. There are several structures, yet they coincide with not only certain environmental earthly alignments, rather with astrological alignments as well. And they seem to speak to the stars and relate to the stars. So, there was clearly star nations assistance in the building of these dwellings. In fact, they were built as a sort of bridge between the stars and the people who lived on the earth. And... Dear ones, you're coming into the same time now. You are coming into something which is going to recall that star nations connect, connection of long ago, uh, coming into contact with that and far exceed it. Don't be surprised as you are visiting a very old structure in the western United States or anywhere where you are picking up images inwardly of the people who lived there hundreds or thousands of years ago. In those moments, you are going to see with your heart. This is how babies and children see angels. It's how children see the fairy realm and the elven realm, the spirits of animals and the spirits of the trees, because they are seeing with their heart. Your consciousness is dropping down into the heart space and coming out of a severe left brain preoccupation because you are realizing it's time to let that go now. Left brain reasoning doesn't answer to everything. It cannot answer to all of human experience. It cannot answer to all of one's person. One person one person's experience and it does not make much sense to expect that of it on the page here how can the conscious mind how can the left brain answer that which is beyond the capability of highly rational left brain reasoning power there are things that the heart space and the spirit will understand that the mind has not yet developed the ability to grasp. And so, you may feel at times that you are in a situation that is difficult for you in grasping why some people did this or that. As you can just take a moment for yourselves in that time and come down into the heart space and pretend you're looking out at that situation. 
close your eyes. Pretend you're looking out at the situation from the heart space. And through the heart, see what is truly happening there. It will not appear to you as it did when you were looking at it purely from this highly rational reasoning aspect of not only left brain, rather the trained impulse to make everything make sense according to your mind and the social structures and the belief structures that humanity has been given over the past 100 years or so, which have grown a bit. They have absolutely grown to include such things as computers and space travel and all sorts of exciting new technologies in healing and new forms of education. Yet really, what you are looking at, dear ones, is the development of the higher self within that human body. And accepting fifth dimensional vibrational reality within how you view your daily reality. This is a huge shift. This is one of the biggest shifts you will ever hear of in your life. And certainly it is the biggest leap humanity has ever undergone. We say this knowing that there was a very great fall from the higher dimensional awareness in that in which people lived utterly intuitively. There was no veil before their eyes and they could see and understand one another and communicate over many miles telepathically. Yet we would say you're coming back into that to move up into that beautiful time of not only self-healing, rather healing one's planet, and moving back up into the vibration of being spiritually aware that that new consciousness seeks to integrate your daily earth self and your entire being. This is the biggest leap that one could possibly imagine. Coming up from a third dimensional vibration, an environment covering the entire planet, as well as human awareness. So, now, as you're listening to that song, Memoir Chaco, by Robert Mirabal, and the music is building, and there's an ongoing, growing, braver and stronger drumbeat to that background. Do you have that song, Rama? Mm-hmm. Not for tonight, though. Mm-hmm. Okay, <laughs> we can play that next week or something. We've used to play it in the past. Um, uh, yeah, the drum beat in the background. And the volume is growing as the dramatic sense of expectation is growing. As you listen to it, or to any music that is swelling in intensity and moving towards some higher movement of realization, you can imagine this beautiful gold dust spreading out around your entire planet. We strongly encourage that you see this rolling out particularly to all places in which there is great strife, great struggle, great loss, and over and through the violence 
that has taken place this year and over the past year or more in the case of the war in Ukraine. And understand that as much as the people there and elsewhere are suffering, including the natural disasters and the toxic spills upon the environment, such as in Ohio, as much as the people are suffering with this, understand that this is their path. As they plant the light within this desperate darkness, they are working on a higher level, on a soul level, and within their higher self-consciousness. Understand that this is their way of shifting this planet to a higher level. Turn the page. How beautiful, how incredible that even those who are still children have come forward to do this. Absolutely astounding. And never doubt, dear ones, that your family, who are star nations, as the indigenous folk will call them, never doubt that they have never ceased to be involved with this planet. And now are ratcheting up and increasing their involvement and their interventions all the more. And as you invite them in, they can do more. Now, our writer was saying recently on one of the conference calls that the White Knights hold on Friday evenings. I call it the ETs. I call in, I call in the ETs. I call in the star nations, yet they don't show up. And we have reminded her, they show up all the time, but they are not always obviously visible. One can always speak with them and receive the energy of their reply, as not the actual words inwardly. One can always call them forward for assistance, and the assistance is going to be there. Without question, it is going to be there. Long one. Okay. We're getting there. Okay. Um, it's just that, yes, one might look forward to a ship landing in the backyard garden, yet it's not going to happen that way every time. And there are many reasons for that. Although we have a friend that has lots of land up in northern, is that Truchus as well? Mm-hmm. And a ship landed in their garden, <laughs> very mm-hmm. large garden. And yet the calls are answered, dear ones. Just as these prayers, particularly if you speak them aloud, or call upon angelic assistance, call upon ascended master or light being assistance, or just assistance from source energy. All of this is going to be answered because it must be. Vibrationally, where a call is sent out, it always creates a pulling action, which then pulls back to one, the results of one's own intention. So, we would ask that even though these times can feel treacherous, feel highly tenuous, feel very uncertain and strange, as you see a lot of human rights 
being upended and denied after 30, 40, or 50 years a very clear and plain practice of certain human rights, such as a woman's right to choose what to do with her own body. Yes, this can be very difficult. And yet, look at all of the aspects of life that are awakening in response to the, we're going to say, attempted totalitarian effects. They aren't really winning. All they are doing, you've noticed, is succeeding in awakening people all the more. All they are doing is succeeding in drawing people together to stand together very bravely and to make a strong stance for whatever area of freedom or freedom of expression of their choice or movement or ideas they have decided they will take a stand for. Yet the fascist or totalitarian oppression, as it's termed on your planet, which is simply a very dark, slow, very thick energy, this is not ever going to win. Not now. It may have had its day at one time. And obviously there are some trying to bring that through again. Yet they cannot. Because this is not the same planet it was 80 or 90 years ago. So you may feel to be facing in some ways something very grave. Almost insurmountable some days. And you're wondering, how do we get through this? I think we're on the last page now. Um, we would say you don't resist. You stay in the moment and you live out the, and breathe out your own beautiful higher self out into the atmosphere. And believe us, this is transforming everything into your desire to move the planet to a higher level. You won't be able to avoid the good effects of it, dear ones. You'll be caught up in the joy of it. No one will be able to stop you. We promise you that. So listen as you can. Listen to the beautiful music such as this, which connects you to your own past as well as your present and your future. Combine them. The only time that exists is now. That exists is now. And it is so when people say, there is only one of us here. It is true that all of you are one. An ongoing interconnection of consciousness experience. There it is. And and light forms. And when the predominant movement and expectation on the planet is that of light, that of enlightenment, and of forward progression into unity consciousness, into peace, into abundance for everyone, and into compassion, empathy, and kindness, when that's the predominant vibration, you will see the birth of the fifth dimension on earth. And all of you are working toward that right now. Many who are working toward it have been sparked and encouraged to do so in response to those ridiculous new rules which are handed down, which are called totalitarian on your planet. And they are such. And so all of these sparks come together, dear ones, and you form your own sun, your own sight, 
your own emanation of light and higher vibration, and that cannot be denied. You tip the scales in favor of ascension. This is what you're doing. Anytime you decide to be joyful, anytime you decide to go to dance, to sing, to play outside in the garden, or lie in the grass, and look at the clouds as you did as a child, or to just be with loved ones and be laughing, as well as the time that you meditate or listen to inspiring music. Anytime you do that, you're lifting the vibration of the entire planet. Certainly there are bigger planets, yet this one has weighed heavily on many, many minds and hearts throughout this universe of Nebadon because of what she has been through. So we ask you to not ever doubt the efficacy and the depth or reach of your own vibration, friends, because then as that vibration goes out, it matches and connects with the vibration of so many others that are that are turning density back into life. And this is beyond glorious. Absolutely. When we stand back, we look at how this planet's vibration has shifted even in the last three or four months. It, it's a glorious thing to see. And almost incalculable, the, love, the level of joy that is being felt and offered in the angelic realms and amongst your ET friends and family who are able with their instruments or their special sight. It's almost time, Ram. Don't, don't, don't go now. To actually see the vibration rising. So, as you listen to this or any other inspiring music, dear ones, image that light pouring out, pouring into those areas of the world that need it. That beautiful, sparkling, sentient, healing gold dust. Lighting up the hearts and the outlook of everyone and disabling all guns, all bombs. We're on the last page. <laughs> Um, disabling all the tools of war machinery and utterly diffusing them then lifting consciousness to the level of realization that humanity we we are in change now of our own planet in charge now excuse me we are in charge now of our own planet we are no one's minions and this old crowd it's time for you to face the light and to see who you are. To finally, to look in the mirror, see who you are. We'll just allow them that time, dear ones. Many are jumping into the light that even five years ago would not have dreamt of doing so. So hold wide open the door. They are coming forward, yes. And so we send much love dear ones, and many blessings. Full of thanks for the beauty of your beautiful, powerful presences upon the earth at this time. Namaste. All right, I pass this talking stick to you, Rainbird. That was beautiful. And all Excalibur and Emerald Serpent Feathered One is with us. Are you there, Commander? I am here. <laughs> oh, I am here. We are here to there and together. <laughs> okay. 
I thought we were going to listen to Aurora Ray, but we'll do that after I talk or something, maybe. I don't know. Um, I think we'll squeeze it in. It's only six minutes. Let's just start. I'm sure that, uh, Dougie, you'll last six more minutes, right? Let's do it. Okay. Thank you, Rainbird. Anything else? <laughs> no. I just thank you, and I'll just pass talking speak back to you. And thank you for everything tonight. It's awesome. The whole thank you. All right, here we go, everyone. In twelve weeks, how did you get so fit? I balanced my hormones. How do you balance your? You have arrived. certain that the idea that we should become something is totally wrong. The idea itself is the problem. The desire that you are not what you are is the cause of suffering. And if you desire to be something else, then you have to look into the future, which is never going to happen. Realize that you have arrived. That's the first step. You have come here and dropped down in this body, this mind, this consciousness. This is your arrival. You could have arrived anywhere else but here. You have chosen this place because it is a very rare opportunity for awakening. It has its own challenges, but when challenges arise for someone who has realized his true nature, they don't create any problems for him. They only make him more alert and more aware. They help him grow in his inner awareness by seeing himself and recognizing the need to be more watchful. I'm not saying that God made anyone a bad person. We're all good at the core, but we've all gone astray. The real you is pure consciousness. It's what you are before your mind starts creating other things. It's who you are before the world, society, and your parents start molding you into what they want you to be. Trying to become something is useless because, deep down inside, you already are it all. No matter how much power you accumulate, how many accomplishments you achieve, or how much money you make, it won't make a difference because there is already a greater power within every cell of your being, God. The more we forget this truth and try to become something else instead of being who we really are, the more pain we cause ourselves and the world around us. What makes things even worse is when people try to express their divinity using the wrong channels. If someone is an artist by nature but decides he or she can only be creative in a factory setting with a big team of like-minded people and lots of money, then he or she will never allow the divine energy to come through him or her in a natural way. Even if that person could eventually make millions doing something, he or she would not be natural at it. I have said, and I will say it again, that you are perfect. There is not a single imperfect thing about you. You are perfect, but the world has treated you otherwise. You have accepted the world as your teacher, and so the world has taught you that you are imperfect. You have accepted the world as your judge, and so the world has judged you and found you wanting. Trying to be perfect will only frustrate you, because there is no such thing as a perfect person in this world. When I talk about perfection, 
I am not talking about the outer perfection that the world has tried to give you, but about a deep inner perfection of which only you can be aware. The outer perfection of which the world speaks is in many ways like a rusted iron pot. It looks good from the outside, but when you hold it in your hands and try to use it, it will break into pieces because it is not whole, not perfect. The real perfection of which I speak is like a gold ring. It may be old and worn out in appearance. It may even look useless. But if you hold it close to your eyes and polish it, then its light will spread all around like a sunburst, and its gold will shine more brightly. I have seen many people who are miserable. They suffer in silence. They do not know the cause. Their misery is self-generated. The outside world is not responsible for their suffering. They are. They have created a state of mind that they do not know how to get out of. Enlightenment is the ability to be fully aware of your mind, body, and spirit, living in the present moment with no resistance. Enlightenment is our natural state of being. We were born enlightened, but over time we have become more concerned with doing than being, and we have lost touch with our natural state of enlightenment. We need to remember who we really are in order to reconnect with our natural state of enlightenment. When you understand this, you will be grateful to the whole world. You may be poor, but you will be an emperor inside yourself. You may not have a palace, but your soul will be a palace. You may not have a painting by Picasso hanging on your walls, but your soul will be a Picasso painting. It will be full of music, poetry, and dance. All that is needed for happiness is already within you. Truly, if you understand this, there is nothing more to seek. If you can know yourself as a masterpiece of God, there is only celebration and gratitude towards life itself. These words from Eckhart Tolle, author of The Power of Now, describes the core concept of the book. Tolle's goal is to teach readers how to live in the present moment. He explains that most people are unhappy because they're not living in the now. Instead, they are always worrying about the future or regretting the past. In his book, Toll tells his story and describes how he came to this way of thinking. In addition to this autobiographical information, he offers practical exercises that readers can use to train their minds to stay in the present moment. Toll's message can be difficult to hear but it's important for anyone who is feeling unhappy or unfulfilled. If you have trouble getting along with other people at work or at home, or if you're struggling with anxiety or depression, Toll's approach may be worth a try. We love you dearly. We are here with you. We are your family of light. Aho. This is a message to humanity from Aurora Ray, ambassador of the Galactic Federation. Power of Now. I forgot about that book. Mm-hmm. Our dear friend Diana told us about Eckhart Tolle, and now Mike is getting really enthusiastic about his work. And uh, good to be reminded of it. All right. 
it's time to say aloha and see you in your dreams and on the ships and on that bridge. And inshallah, satnam. Satnam ji. Thirteen thank yous, honey in the heart. No evil. And live long and prosper. Namaste.